Chapter 9. The National Civic Federation. Big Business Organized for Progressivism. At about the same time the nation acquired its first progressive president, Theodore Roosevelt, various big business leaders decided to organize on behalf of the new concept, one which has in recent years been termed corporate liberalism. The nation was to be guided into the new path of a strong state, expanding, regulating and governing, all in behalf of a tripartite coalition led by big business, by means of big government, and creating big unionism as a junior partner. Or rather, a quadripartite coalition, since economists and other intellectuals were needed to argue for and help plan the new system. How fitting, then, that the major big business-led organisation for the new dispensation should itself include all four of these groups. Editor's footnote. Rothbard here is alluding to the famous rebirth of the Alliance of Throne and Altar, which occurred between progressive economists and government in the early 20th century. During the progressive era, big business turned to big government in order to cartelize, and both in turn needed planners to sell their interventions to the public and convince them that government-sponsored monopolies were not being created. Instead of saying that the king was divine, the new court apologists said big government was necessary to improve welfare. In return, the collectivist intellectuals would benefit from the power and prestige of planning the new system, which was more lucrative than what existed in a laissez-faire regime. The secularization of the alliance and the transformation of economists during this time from laissez-faire philosophers to activist government planners was heavily related to the fact that many Yankee post-millennial pietist reformers went to Bismarck's Germany to get their PhDs and became instilled with German socialism and centralization. End footnote. 1. The Origins The Chicago Civic Federation The National Civic Federation, NCF, the major organization for the new statism, was organized in 1900 by Ralph M. Easley, a former schoolteacher and journalist and a self-styled conservative Republican. The NCF emerged out of the Chicago Civic Federation, CCF, which itself was launched in a blend of pietist reform, corporate statism and high-level foreign influence. The CCF began as the result of frenetic denunciations of vice, gambling and prostitution in Chicago by the pietistic Englishman William T. Stead, editor of the distinguished London magazine Review of Reviews. The culmination of Stead's agitation over sin in Chicago came at a mass meeting in the city's Civic Centre Club in November 1893 at which Stead hoped to establish a Chicago form of his Civic Church, a London group Stead had helped to organise. The November meeting selected an organising committee, which in turn incorporated the Civic Federation of Chicago in early 1894. President of the new CCF was Lyman J. Gage, head of the First National Bank of Chicago, a man strongly in the Rockefeller ambit, who was later to become Secretary of the Treasury in the McKinley administration. Secretary of the CCF and operating head was Ralph Eastley. A majority of posts in the new CCF was held by a group of wealthy Chicago businessmen. 
Stead, the spiritual founder of the CCF, was a powerful figure in England as a religious reformer and editor, and even more so behind the scenes. A social reformer and ardent English imperialist, Stead was a disciple of the English art critic and social philosopher John Ruskin, and was instrumental in bringing Ruskin's young Oxford as well as Cambridge disciples together with an older Ruskinian, Cecil Rhodes. In early 1891, Rhodes and Stead had formed a secret society to spread the cause of social imperialism, the Society of the Elect. Rhodes was the leader, and Stead was on the executive committee, along with Alfred, later Lord, Milner. Other devotees of the circle included future Prime Minister Arthur Lord Balfour and the powerful investment banker Lord Rothschild. Editor's Footnote In the early 1910s, this organisation would establish roundtable groups in Britain, the US and other countries. The US branch would later be involved in setting up the highly influential and Morgan-dominated Council on Foreign Relations. End footnote. The new CCF lost little time in plunging into political activity in Chicago. It pioneered in upper-class municipal reform efforts which would later become so prominent during the Progressive Era. It drafted and pushed through expansion of civil service in Illinois. Various academics worked with the wealthy businessmen in the CCF, including Albion W. Small, University of Chicago sociology professor, and particularly Chicago political economy professor Edward W. Bemis, member of the five-man nominating committee of the Federation. Both Small and Bemis had been students of the formidable progressive economist Richard T. Ely, and both followed Ely enthusiastically into statism. Very quickly, the well-organized CCF branched out into national affairs, holding four national conferences, one on American foreign policy, in 1898. The most publicized and important conference held by the CCF which led directly to the formation of the National Civic Federation, was the Chicago Conference on Trusts, held in 1899. Ralph Easley travelled across the nation, mobilising delegates and support for the conference. Indeed, the conference took on semi-official status, since some governors, including Theodore Roosevelt in New York, were induced to send delegations to the Chicago Conference. Most speeches at the conference spearheaded by progressive economists Jeremiah W. Jenks, Edward Bemis and John R. Commons, asserted that the trust was here to stay, and trusts needed to be regulated by government. Even the supposedly radical Democratic leader William Jennings Bryan, while more aggressively anti-business in rhetoric, ended by advocating a very similar programme. The conference also touched off the compulsory publicity agitation which marked the early days of the corporate reform movement. So successful was the Chicago Conference on Trusts that the leadership of the CCF, determined by unanimous vote of the Executive Committee in September 1899, to organise a national civic federation with Easley at the head, a task accomplished the following year. The more progressive and corporatist leaders then joined the new NCF, while the more conservative, local-minded members continued to run the CCF. 2. Organising the NCF 
Helping easily organise the ambitious new NCF was Jeremiah W. Jenks, Oscar S. Strauss of the New York department store family and later to become Secretary of Commerce and Labour under Theodore Roosevelt, and Samuel Gompers and John Mitchell of the AFL, the American Federation of Labour. Also on the Advisory Council of the new Federation were Richard T. Ely, Bemis, Commons, the Columbia University economist E.R.A. Seligman of the powerful international banking family, and the intriguing Albert Shaw. Shaw, a political scientist and a disciple of Ely, was later to be a leading advisor of Theodore Roosevelt, and he had spoken before the Chicago Conference on Trusts. As a leading magazine editor of the American Review of Reviews, Shaw lent the power of the press to the corporatist cause. When John D. Rockefeller came to launch his General Education Board, Albert Shaw became one of the trustees of the powerful new foundation. An interesting point about Shaw is that he became the long-time editor of the journal in 1891, when it was set up by William T. Stead, editor of the London Review of Reviews. Easley's success was marked and rapid, and very quickly official leadership of the NCF was assumed by top Rockefeller ally Marcus A. Hanna as first president of the NCF, by Chicago utilities tycoon Samuel Insull, Chicago banker Franklin McVeigh, later Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Carnegie, and, inevitably, several partners of J.P. Morgan & Co. By 1903, the National Civic Federation included representatives of nearly one-third of all the 367 corporations worth more than $10 million, and it also included one-fourth of the largest railroads. George W. Perkins, Morgan's main man in the political sphere, was prominent in the organization. August Belmont Jr., prominent Democrat and Rothschild agent in the U.S., was elected president of the NCF on Hannah's death. At various times, the executive committee of the NCF also included such prominent politicians as ex-president Grover Cleveland, Roosevelt's attorney general Charles J. Bonaparte, TR's close friend Nicholas Murray Butler of Columbia University, TR's Secretary of State Elihu Root, George B. Cotelieu, Roosevelt's private secretary and later his Secretary of the Treasury, and finally President of Consolidated Gas and Secretary of War under TR and then later President William Howard Taft. It is clear, in short, that the NCF represented a coalition of top big business interests with the Morgans the most prominent, but with Rothschilds and Rockefellers also included. Three, the clash over unions. The union problem was a particularly sticky one for the NCF for two major reasons. Many businessmen were stubbornly laissez-faire and particularly were opposed to unionism, and unions scarcely existed except in such non-competitive, between localities, industries as the building trades, the catalyzed railroads, and in certain skilled crafts where unions could exclude competing labor. Overall, unions did not rise above a meager 6% of the labor force until America's entry into World War I, and they were usually well below that figure. But those unions that did exist were perfectly suited for the corporatist ideal. Monopolistic craft unions grouped in the AFL unions 
which had abandoned the early radical socialism of the Knights of Labour and were prepared to take their place in a corporatist order, a role that would be far greater than any they could possibly achieve in a free market. And so Labour leaders played a prominent role in the National Civic Federation from the very beginning. Samuel Gompers, long-time head of the AFL, was first vice president of the NCF from its inception until his death in 1924. John Mitchell, head of the United Mine Workers, was chairman or co-chairman of the Trade Agreements Department of the NCF from 1904 to 1911. The heads of the Railroad Brotherhoods, powerful craft unions in the railroad industry, were on the NCF Executive Committee. The Trade Agreements Department was organised in 1904 to promote unionism among employer groups. It was jointly chaired for four years by Mitchell and a prominent employer, Francis L. Robbins of the Pittsburgh Coal Company. The department engineered union agreements with the New York clothing trades, the iron moulders, the newspaper publishers and the typographical union, between theatrical managers and the Musicians' Protective Association the New York Metal Trades Association and the Boilermakers Union, bituminous coal operators and the struggling United Mine Workers, and U.S. Steel and the Metal Workers Union. Many of the progressive big businessmen, however, while eager to foist corporatist unionism on the rest of the country, balked at dealing with unions in their own plants. Leading the parade favouring unions for everyone but themselves were men prominent in the Morgan ambit, George W. Perkins, Cyrus McCormick of International Harvester, and Judge Albert Gary of U.S. Steel. Typical was the fact that Auguste Belmont Jr. was boosted vigorously as successor to Hannah as president of the NCF by the union leaders in the organisation. Despite these cordial relations, Belmont refused to have anything to do with unions in his own Interborough Rapid Transport Company on the New York City subways. Opposing the big business-dominated NCF was the newly organised National Association of Manufacturers. Formed in 1895 as a small, low-profile group to promote foreign trade, the NAM was taken over in 1902 by an aggressive group of small businessmen in the Middle West dedicated to free markets and hostility to labour unions. Revealingly, easily condemned the NAM and like-minded capitalists as anarchists. He saw the NCF as a third way between radical socialism on the one hand and anarchist, free market capitalism on the other. As easily wrote to a supporter, our enemies are the socialists among the labour people and the anarchists among the capitalists. For their part, the NAM leaders angrily saw the National Civic Federation as part and parcel of the AFL and as a proponent of the most virulent form of socialism, closed-shop unionism. They also attacked the threat they saw in socialised industry and they perceptively saw the NCF, as a later historian would sum it up, as a conspiracy between the magnates and the unionists aimed directly at them. As Professor Weber puts it, the threat of big labour and big business combined horrified members of the NAM, who believed their future depended upon an economic fluidity which the recently formed trusts and the AFL would destroy. 
Meanwhile, Ralph Easley was sneering at the NAM anti-union employers as small fry. They included none of the great employers of labour representing basic industries, such as coal, iron and steel, building trades and railroads. The conflict between the two groups was dramatised by the anti-union action taken by one of the leaders of the newly constituted National Association of Manufacturers, James W. Van Cleve, head of the Bucks Stove and Range Company of St. Louis. The Metal Polishers Union had struck the Bucks Company for union recognition, and the AFL in 1908 had organised a secondary boycott of the Bucks Company in support of the strike. Van Cleve responded by filing suit to try and obtain an objunction against the boycott. At that point, Wall Street lawyer Alton B. Parker, Democratic presidential candidate in 1904 and later president of the NCF, became the defence counsel for Gompers, while much of the AFL defence was secretly financed by Andrew Carnegie, steel magnate in the Morgan ambit who was also the NCF's biggest contributor. Footnote. Van Cleve won a temporary injunction against the AFL secondary boycott in the federal courts, but two years later the Supreme Court reversed. Bucks was one of the few cases where the courts enjoined peaceful persuasion rather than the use of union violence. End footnote. 4. The Drive for Workmen's Compensation Laws If the pro-union attitude of the NCF offended anti-union employers, the Civic Federation's increased attention to promoting welfare and the welfare state after 1905 avoided such alienation. The Welfare Department of the NCF was founded in 1904 and took on an accelerating role by the following year. By 1911 it had 500 employer members. Its task was to promote a voluntary paternalistic welfare programme by the corporations toward their workers, promoting a sense of team spirit and a kind of feudalistic loyalty by the workers to the corporation. As Weinstein puts it, the approach of the welfare department was to promote sympathy and a sense of identification between the employer and his employees by integrating the lives and leisure time of the workers with the functioning of the corporation. More important was the National Civic Federation's push for welfare state measures. Particularly important was its leadership driving for workmen's compensation laws. Under the sensible and cogent doctrine of the common law, employers were not liable for accidents to workers if a. other workers were responsible for the accident, the fellow-servant defence, b. if the worker knew the risk and therefore could be held to have voluntarily assumed it, the assumption of risk defence, or c. if the worker himself contributed to the accident by his negligence, the contributory negligence defence. In this period, labour unions did not favour workmen's compensation laws. Rather, they called for changing liability laws to make the employer liable when the worker himself did not contribute to the accident. By 1907, agitation had managed to pass such employer liability laws in 26 states. Most of these laws applied only to railroads, however, where unions were strongest, and limited only the fellow-servant, the weakest of the three employer defences. Progressive employers, in contrast, 
began moving in this period toward workmen's compensation laws. From their point of view, these laws would confer several important benefits. First, they would forestall the threat of employer liability laws. The payments would be far less, and the costs would be spread among all the employers, not only those with the highest rates of accidents. Second, and more important, the taxpayers would be forced to pay a large proportion of the costs of compensation. In contrast, say, to voluntary insurance, the taxpaying public would be forced to pay for the bureaucracy of the regulatory commissions and to socialise the costs of accident insurance under state insurance plans. Third, the laws would impose high fixed costs for compliance and for accident prevention, which would fall with particular severity on smaller competitors. Hence, workmen's compensation laws, in the name of humanitarianism and progress, would advance the cartelization of industry. Specifically in line with cartelization, such large firms, which had already instituted voluntary workmen's compensation plans, such as International Harvester and U.S. Steel, could now impose higher costs on their competitors by agitating for the government legislation. And fourth, for anti-union employers, Workmen's compensation would reduce benefits workers might expect from unions and lead them to look elsewhere. Thus, at the annual 1911 meeting of the National Civic Federation, August Belmont Jr. announced that he had induced half a dozen major corporations, from Edison Electric and Otis Elevator to Ingersoll Rand, to come out for workmen's compensation laws. Andrew Carnegie also endorsed the idea. The NCF frankly saw a major reason as the forestalling of any application of employer liability laws to manufacturing. In the meanwhile, the always far-sighted George W. Perkins stressed workmen's compensation as part of a broad reach toward industrial cartelization. As Perkins explained at the 1909 annual meeting of the NCF, cooperation in business is taking and should take the place of ruthless competition. To succeed, this new order must demonstrate that it is better for the labourer as well as for capital and the consumer. The NCF began its drive for workmen's compensation in 1908, establishing an industrial insurance commission with George W. Perkins as chairman. This commission was rather quiescent, however. The major drive was launched the following year, when new president Seth Lowe appointed past president August Belmont Jr as head of a new department on compensation for industrial accidents and their prevention. From then on, the NCF was at the centre of the movement for workmen's compensation legislation. Among those involved in the NCF agitation were the prominent progressive reformer Louis D. Brandis, active in the Massachusetts branch of the NCF, the vice president of Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, and a representative of the Sage Foundation Fund. At the 1909 annual meeting, workmen's compensation was strongly defended by George M. Gillette, head of Minneapolis Steel and Machinery Company and president of the Minnesota Employers Association, Louis B. Schramm, head of the Labor Committee of the U.S. Brewers Association, and Major J.G. Pangborn of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. By 1909, too, the NCF had managed to convert Samuel Gompers and the AFL to the idea of compensation laws. 
In the meanwhile, by 1910, the small manufacturers of the NAM had also been converted to workmen's compensation. By the spring of 1911, journalist Will Irwin noted that the entire business community was now in favour of workmen's compensation laws. The only remaining holdouts against this scientific system, he opined, were a few old-time manufacturers who can see nothing but next year's dollar. The NCF proceeded to draw up model workmen's compensation bills and to agitate for them on the state and federal levels. There were no state laws before 1909, but as in so many other areas of statism in 20th century America, President Roosevelt led the way by pushing a federal compensation act through Congress in 1908. The actual drive for workmen's compensation legislation was sparked by August Belmont, Jr. Shortly after becoming head of the NCF Compensation Department in 1909, Belmont appointed a legal committee headed by P. Tecumseh Sherman, a conservative lawyer and former commissioner of labor in New York, to draw up a model bill. Sherman was particularly inspired by the German system of compulsory medical, old age and accident insurance. Realizing that this comprehensive welfare state model could not be established in the United States all at once, he frankly called his proposed model state workman's compensation bill a halfway measure, a mere entering wedge. Completed by the spring of 1910, the model bill was sent to all state governors and legislators interested in the problem. In contrast to the stereotype of older historians, the major opposition to the Sherman bill within the NCF was from big businessmen urging Sherman to have the courage to be far more radical. One leading critic within the Federation was Raynal C. Bolling of U.S. Steel, who declared that workmen's compensation should be nothing less than universal and compulsory. Sherman had extended it only to hazardous industries, and applied to agriculture and domestic work as well as manufacturing. Also leading an unsuccessful call for more radical legislation were George M. Gillette, head of the Minnesota Employers Association, and Hugh V. Mercer, a Minnesotan appointed to study workmen's compensation in that state. In 1909, New York became the first state to pass a compulsory workmen's compensation law. After the NCF flooded the states with the model Sherman Bill the following year, former President Theodore Roosevelt addressed the annual meeting of the NCF and called for workmen's compensation laws. During the year 1911, the number of state workmen's compensation laws jumped from 1 to 13. But a temporary hitch suddenly developed in the rapid march to paradise. In the spring of 1911, the New York Court of Appeals in Ives v. South Buffalo Railway Company unanimously held the compensation law to be unconstitutional, an assault on the common law and deprivation of property without due process. In many ways, the courts proved to be the last stronghold of the old laissez-faire order. While the courts had outlawed compensation acts before without provoking much comment, times were now changing rapidly. Teddy Roosevelt led the howls of outrage, writing that the path of necessary social reform was being blocked. The progressive magazine Survey significantly and trenchantly noted that the court would not have struck down workmen's compensation if a board of broad-gauge businessmen, with responsibility for vast property interests on their shoulders, 
had constituted the judge's bench. Survey particularly pointed to the wise statemanship in this matter of J.P. Morgan, E.H. Gary, Andrew Carnegie, and Jacob H. Schiff, all but the last solidly in the Morgan ambit, and the latter the head of Kuhn Loeb. Sure enough, the Ives' decision was promptly denounced by Sherman, the National Civic Federation, and by the redoubtable Francis Lynn Stetson, longtime Morgan lawyer and now attorney for Morgan's International Harvester Company. The NCF called for Congress to pass federal compensation legislation. Moving quickly and obediently to Berry Ives, the New York State Legislature in 1913 proposed a constitutional amendment to remove the protection of due process in the case of workmen's compensation. In the former times, this drastic assault on private property would have caused a great furore. Now it passed overwhelmingly, both in the legislature and among the public. In December 1913, the Conference of New York State Republicans, led by the formidable Elihu Root, unanimously passed a resolution hailing the new amendment and trumpeting the new spirit of government intervention. Changed and changing social and industrial conditions impose new duties on government, the Republicans opined. The party must therefore meet industrial and social demands of modern civilization. Seeing the handwriting on the wall, other state courts began to ratify compensation legislation. By 1920, all but six states had workmen's compensation laws in force, and the federal government had widened its coverage to all of its own employees. 5. Monopolizing Public Utilities Another aspect of progressive reform pushed by the NCF was the transformation of public utilities in the United States. The thrust here was to change from a roughly free market in utilities toward outright grants of monopoly privilege. The public utility, the gas, electric or trolley franchises, was to be protected from competition and regulated by the state or municipality so as to provide a guaranteed fixed rate of profit. For those lucky enough to obtain utility franchises, this seemed like paradise. The NCF established a commission on public ownership of public utilities in late 1905, ostensibly to engage in a scientific, impartial study of the public utility question and of the results of public ownership, which had become the prevalent system in Europe. The commission was chaired by Melville E. Ingalls, chairman of the board of the Big Four Railroad, and its first vice-chairman was John Mitchell of the United Mine Workers. Other members of the executive committee of the commission included Frank A. Vanderlip of the Rockefeller-oriented National City Bank, prominent investment banker Isaac N. Seligman, wealthy reformer Jacob Rees, Louis D. Brandis, and utilities magnate Samuel Insull, who was previously affiliated with Thomas Edison and General Electric. It also included the leading progressive economist John R. Commons of the University of Wisconsin. Ingalls and Commons were featured in a tour of Britain and the US studying public utilities. Finally, in 1907, the Commission issued a three-volume report, whose tone was set by Samuel Insull and whose views were close to that of the National Electric Light Association, the trade association of the electric utility industry. Public utilities were to be legal grants of monopoly, 
to be regulated by public utility commissions established by the government. In contrast to the NELA, however, the NCF Commission took no stand on municipal ownership. Insull had formed these views nearly a decade earlier, learning them from the Chicago traction magnate Charles Tyson Yerkes. Yerkes, in the late 1890s, had a problem. His system of public utilities could, under state law, only receive monopoly franchises for 20 years' duration, and hence one part or another of his utility empire had to have its franchise renewed every few years. Yerkes was willing and able to bribe city councilmen to keep renewing the franchises, but he found that he could not float long-term bonds for companies that might lose their monopoly status in a few years' time. Taking advantage of the election of a purchasable Republican governor, Yerkes managed to have introduced a series of bills in the 1897 Illinois legislature, which presaged Wisconsin progressivism by a decade. They would have extended all traction franchises by 50 years and removed control of transportation from city councils and transferred it to an expert, allegedly non-partisan, state regulatory commission. This not only would have placed the mantle of science on monopoly privilege, it would of course have considerably reduced Charles Tyson Yerkes's bribery costs. While Yerkes's bills presaged progressive reform, he came a cropper because of another aspect of the burgeoning progressive ethos that he had violated. A vital part of urban progressivism, as shall be seen further below, was a frenetic attack on the corruption of politicians, and it was the bribery issue that laid Yerkes low. Editor's footnote. Rothbard planned to elaborate on the de-democratization described earlier in Chapter 6 and tie it in with the urban municipal reform movement. This movement was driven largely by upper-class pietist businessmen and professionals to take various elected party machine positions out of politics and replace them with centralised bureaucratic commissions of experts shielded from voters. Far from being championed by the poor and middle classes, this drive was seen as weakening ethnic liturgical power in politics by removing local ward influence on the political structure. End footnote. Even such progressive business organisations as the powerful Chicago Civic Federation turned on Yerkes, and his measures went down to defeat. Learning from Yerkes's abortive programme and applying it to electric utilities, Samuel Insull launched progressivism in public utilities in his presidential address before the National Electric Light Association in June 1898. He urged his fellow electric utility magnates to get the industry regulated by state commissions, with the full power to fix rates and the quality of service. In contrast to Yerkes's bold grab for monopoly, Insull, more sensitive to public relations, stressed the government's rate-making power, rather than the attendant long-run monopoly franchise. Most of the utilities executives were shocked at this assault on laissez-faire, but Insull garnered a few supporters and appointed them to the association's new committee on legislative policy. While the committee languished for lack of support in the industry, Insull instructed the employees of his Chicago Edison and Commonwealth Electric companies in advertising and public relations, and established one of the first public relations departments in industry in 1901. The threat of municipal rate regulation and municipal ownership of public utilities 
which had given rise to the NCF's commission study in 1905, provided an impetus for the eventual success of the regulated monopoly movement. The idea of municipal ownership of electric utilities had been launched in the 1880s and 1890s by electric equipment salesmen, who wanted electric power subsidised by the taxpayers, and gas companies, which wanted to stifle the growing competition of electricity by having it supplied by local governments. Municipal ownership grew after the mid-1890s and reached a peak in 1905-06 when interest yields were low and the municipal bond market was strong. Transportation companies were the principal area of government ownership, but public electric companies grew as well. From 1902 to 1907, the number of publicly owned plants were growing at twice the rate of private electric plants. This was particularly true in the small cities. More than 80% of municipally owned electric plants were in cities of less than 5,000 population. In response to this trend, the National Electric Light Association was moved to establish a Committee on Municipal Ownership, which grew two years later into the Committee on Public Policy. The new committee included Insull and most of the people on his earlier Legislative Policy Committee. The new Public Policy Committee lobbied energetically for state regulatory commissions, basing its propaganda on its own report of 1907 which paralleled the recommendations of the NCF Commission report of the same year. The NELA Public Policy Committee report stressed that the NELA should favour state commission regulation, with the power to control franchise, establish rates, and enforce a uniform system of accounting, as well as making all pertinent information public, thus adding to the cartelization and decreasing competition in the utility industries. The committee particularly stressed the threat of municipal ownership as the alternative, deliberately ignoring the third alternative of free competition and free markets. The municipal ownership threat died shortly thereafter, living long enough to act as a goal toward monopoly privilege. The Panic of 1907 drove up interest rates and shattered the municipal bond markets, especially for the weak, smaller cities. The National Civic Federation was never content to stop at theory. Theory, in the pragmatic progressive tradition, was to be the groundwork for political action. The NCF Commission report was used by Professor Commons, one of its authors, to draw up the Wisconsin Public Utilities Law as part of Commons' promotion of the Wisconsin idea while working for Charles McCarthy's Legislative Reference Bureau in that state. The progressives in Wisconsin pushed the law through in the spring of 1907, establishing the Wisconsin Railroad Commission and setting the model for other states. Similar laws quickly followed in New York and Massachusetts. The result was the monopolization of the public utilities industry, the end of competitive discriminatory pricing, and the raising of rates. As Weinstein sums it up, quote, by 1909, many industry people had begun to look favourably on regulation by state commissions and to understand the advantages of taking utilities regulation out of politics. The underlying principles of the regulatory legislation supported responsible private ownership, and the experts appointed to the new commission were almost invariably conservative in that they did not question the framework of the utilities industry. The result, therefore, was to introduce stability in the industry and to raise public morality 
through the removal of discriminatory rates. End quote. Footnote. The industry pushing for utilities regulation in this period was invariably the electric utility industry. Other utilities tended to oppose regulation. End footnote. Spearheading the NCF drive for state public utilities regulation was Emerson Macmillan, banker and president and director of several gas, electric and traction companies. Collaborating with him was Teddy Roosevelt's ex-secretary, George B. Coltelieu, now head of Consolidated Gas of New York. When some utilities magnates balked at the possible effect of regulatory commissions on the floating of utilities bonds, Macmillan shrewdly pointed out that state utilities commissions performed the valuable function of supervising utilities' finances and their bond issues, both calculated to assist in the financing of public utilities. By the fall of 1913, Ralph Easley was able to write to President Seth Lowe of the success of the drive for public utilities regulation. Twenty-five years ago, he exulted, we would have regarded this as a species of socialism. But now utilities are submitting, with many railways even embracing regulation, joyfully in some cases. Editor's footnote. One of the main problems with public utilities is that they occur on public and not private streets, which interferes with the ability of entrepreneurs to effectively engage in economic calculation. Of course, in so-called natural monopolies earning profits, as with all goods, there is always competitive pressure from other potential innovative producers of substitute products. Cost price and franchise regulation leads to inefficient and cumbersome firms, unable to quickly change when their costs change, reduces rivalrous innovation, incentivizes firms to transfer some of their profits into costs, and invites regulatory capture. Moreover, it neglects the fact that a firm's costs, and therefore prices, are not objectively available to the regulator, but must be appraised and discovered by the entrepreneur. End footnote. 6. Regulating Industry On the national level, the NCF, as might be expected, was close to President Roosevelt and his Bureau of Corporations. In its first annual report in 1904, the Bureau attacked the Sherman Antitrust Act, and propose that it be replaced by another kind of legislation, one that regulates trusts by eliminating improper rebates, discrimination and unfair combinations. Each one of these proposed crackdowns was well calculated to cripple the most effective forms of competition and the market's ability to break up cartels and monopoly. The NCF leadership then moved to draw up proposed legislation along the Rooseveltian lines. Spurred by Melville E. Ingalls, chairman of the Big Four Railroad, and more especially by August Belmont, Jr., the NCF first established a commission to rewrite the antitrust laws. But soon it concluded that more powerful and dramatic action was needed. Drawing on the CCF experience of the Conference on Trusts, the NCF called in Professor Jenks, steeped in the experience of organising the previous conference. Before going ahead with the new conference, easily won the unofficial but powerful blessing of President Roosevelt and his Secretary of Commerce and Labour, Oscar Strauss. The NCF's National Conference on Trusts and Combinations was held in Chicago in October 1907. 
it drew 492 delegates from 147 delegations appointed by state governors, business and labor associations, and civic groups. Businessmen were in the overwhelming majority, seconded by a sprinkling of academics, politicians, and reformers. The revered President Nicholas Murray Butler of Columbia served as chairman and convenient frontman. The conference urged that railroads be permitted to enter into rate agreements, as recommended by the ICC and Roosevelt, that Congress establish a commission to amend the Sherman Act to regulate competition, establish federal licensing of corporations, and endorse trusts in the public interest, in short, Teddy Roosevelt's good trusts, and that the Bureau of Corporations be empowered to require compulsory publicity from large corporations. It was a program designed to quicken the hearts of big corporations and the Roosevelt administration. So delighted were Roosevelt and the congressional leaders with the conference proposals that they easily induced the NCF to draw up the required bill and not wait for any commission. Seth Lowe, new president of the NCF, established an informal committee of leading corporatists to draw up the desired bill for industrial regulation. It was truly a gathering of the eagles. Businessmen on the committee included, among others, Judge Gary, chairman of the U.S. Board of Steel, Isaac N. Seligman and James Speyer, top New York investment bankers, the ubiquitous Morgan man George W. Perkins, and August Belmont, Jr. Labour leaders included Samuel Gompers and John Mitchell, while progressive academia was well represented by President Butler and Jeremiah W. Jenks. From the media, there came the inevitable Albert Shaw. Also on the committee were Judge Alton B. Parker, who had made the disastrous Democratic run for the presidency in 1904, and Herbert Knox Smith, Roosevelt's Commissioner of Corporations, representing the administration. Actually drawing up the bill were two formidable and also ubiquitous lawyers in the Morgan ambit. Morgan's own attorney, Francis Lynde Stetson, and Victor Morowetz, counsel to the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railroad. Working eagerly and at top speed, this formidable committee came up with a bill in February 1908, and it was approved by the NCF shortly afterwards. Working closely and approvingly with Stetson and Morowetz was Commissioner Smith. The NCF bill, obediently introduced into Congress by Representative William P. Hepburn, gave the Bureau of Corporations power to approve any corporate contract or merger in advance, thus lending a selective imprimatur of the federal executive to combinations, and to supervise and veto a host of daily operations of business firms. Unions were also to be exempt from the antitrust laws. A firestorm of opposition descended upon Congress, however, from small and medium-sized businesses across the country. Organizations of such businesses, including the National Association of Manufacturers, the Merchants' Association of New York, and the Board of Trade of New York, opposed the legislation. They objected not only to the pro-union provision, but also to allowing the executive branch to pick and choose between good and bad corporate actions. The Roosevelt administration was forced to withdraw its support for the bill, and Perkins wrote to Smith that, If the opponents to governmental supervision could only know how intelligently and how fairly you have worked for the very highest and best interests of American corporations, I am sure they would abandon their present attitude. 
As Seth Lowe correctly wrote to the president, the large interests, such as Judge Gary represents, are still loyally behind our bill. The objection comes from the mercantile element. Footnote. Gabriel Kolko, in his book The Triumph of Conservatism, lays exclusive emphasis for Roosevelt's withdrawal of support on personal opposition to the pro-union clause of the NCF Hepburn Bill. He thereby downplays the effects of the pressure from small and medium businesses. End footnote. It was time to regroup, and the NCF then turned to an alternative approach suggested by Ingalls and Andrew Carnegie to accomplish the same purpose by setting up a new interstate trade commission to do for general business, as it was often put, what the ICC had already done for the railroads. The embryo of the Federal Trade Commission had come into being. Editor's footnote. Rothbard planned on devoting additional space later to the Clayton Antitrust Act and the Federal Trade Commission, the Bureau of Corporations' successor, both of which were created under the Wilson administration in the fall of 1914. The five-man commission was dominated by pro-business sentiment from the outset, and in the words of prominent commission member Edward N. Hurley, it was intended to do for general business what the ICC, the Federal Reserve, and the Department of Agriculture did for railroads, bankers, and farmers. Influential advisers to the commission included familiar names such as Louis D. Brandis and Victor Morowetz, railroad executive Walker D. Hines and Arthur Eddy. The latter was an important corporate lawyer who proclaimed in his influential book that competition is war and war is hell. The acts helped eliminate competitive price discrimination and various market forms, such as holding companies and tying agreements. This benefited larger existing firms and smaller firms engaged in intrastate commerce. With regards to larger businesses, which vertically or horizontally integrated due to cost advantages, they would benefit at the expense of their medium-sized competitors, who could only afford to partially integrate through various market agreements now deemed restrictions on competition. The FTC would later hold trade practice conferences in the 1920s in order to meet with industry members to figure out unfair practices, such as price discrimination and secret price cutting. End footnote. 7. Allied Group, the American Association for Labor Legislation If the National Civic Federation was an organization of corporatist big businessmen with a sprinkling of intellectual and academic allies, the American Association for Labor Legislation, AALL, was an organization of corporatist intellectuals financed by big business. The AALL was a spin-off of the American Economic Association, which had originally been organized to foster the new spirit of statism among economists. The AALL was organized by a committee established at the 1905 annual meeting of the AEA, and its first annual meeting two years later was held in conjunction with the meeting of the Economists' Association. First president of the AALL was the inevitable Richard T. Ely, and its longtime executive secretary was John B. Andrews, a research associate of Ely and John R. Commons, and a collaborator with Commons in various tomes on industry and labor. 
The AALL worked the labour and social welfare end of the corporatist street. It was organised as a branch of the International Association for Labour Legislation and received a government subsidy from the Bureau of Labour Statistics to publish an English edition of the Bulletin of the International Labour Bureau. As self-proclaimed scientists, AALL claimed not to take a partisan stand in economic or industrial conflicts, but it pretentiously asserted that its only allegiance is to the general welfare. As such, it supported uniform labour legislation among the states. In addition, a 1914 AALL national conference, including businessmen, state and labour officials, agreed on the idea of stabilising employment, on calling for state and federal unemployment agencies to provide tax-supported free employment service to workers and employers, and on the desirability of some form of compulsory unemployment insurance. The conference quickly inspired Governor Martin Glynn, Democrat of New York, to push through a bill establishing a state employment agency. In the following year, AALL called for a planned program of public works to relieve unemployment, a program well calculated, of course, to subsidise the construction industry. In subsequent years, AALL drafted model bills pushing for employment agencies, workmen's compensation, compulsory health insurance, increased safety legislation, a minimum wage employing marginal workers, and child labour laws, a humanitarian programme outlawing the employment of minors and thereby freeing adult workers from their unwelcome and often successful competition. In 1916, Congress passed the Kern-McGillicuddy Bill, which had been drafted by AALL and which applied workmen's compensation to federal employees. Editor's footnote. The minimum wage and other proposals by progressive economists had strong racist and sexist underpinnings. Many economists and other social theorists were strong believers in eugenics, which stated that society could effectively plan and control the racial quality of the labour force in order to improve and thereby enhance social welfare. As a result, they were intensely worried about the flood of inferior immigrants from Asia and parts of Europe diluting the labour pool and undercutting the wages of the superior Anglo-Saxon white man. They were also concerned about female workers, who were undercutting the male breadwinners and not being properly allocated to the household to raise children. A minimum wage and other labour regulations, such as immigration restriction and maximum hour legislation, would unemploy the less skilled immigrants and females and protect the jobs of the superior white males. The book by Thomas C. Leonard, Illiberal Reformers, Race, Eugenics and American Economics in the Progressive Era, is crucial for understanding the transformation of the economics profession from laissez-faire to one of interventionist technocrats and planners and the inherent paternalism and elitism motivating it. Of course, modern progressivism has replaced eugenics with egalitarianism, or equality for all. However, it is not really egalitarianism, but elitism in a different form, since everyone must be made equal except the intellectuals and opinion moulders, who are still chosen to plan society and run people's lives. End footnote. 
The idea behind the seemingly innocuous and merely efficient drive for uniform labour legislation, and also behind much of the push for workmen's compensation and other social welfare measures, was to enable paternalistic employers, who had already established private welfare programmes, to impose higher costs on their non-socially conscious competitors. As Eakins puts it, quote, A number of pieces of progressive legislation were not only supported, but also were, in a number of important instances, drafted by enlightened businessmen. These men, many of them corporate liberals, could support some regulation on the grounds that a uniform application of the laws by the states or the federal government would permit the socially conscious employer to compete on an even footing with the individualistic, cost-cutting employer. There would be no room for unscrupulous, i.e. successfully competitive, employers. End quote. He goes on with a candid quote from the New York branch of AALL in 1910. To set limits to this competition, to establish standards in law which it cannot overcome, and thus to put an end to the process of exploitation, are the meaning and purpose of AALL. Editor's footnote. This exploitative competition was already declining regardless of recent progressive legislative efforts. Since 1900, workers' living standards rose through higher real wages, a decline in hours of work per week, reduced child labour, earlier retirement, and better working standards. This occurred primarily due to the normal progression of an unfettered capitalist economy, and not legislation that only codified existing trends. End footnote. AALL included the standard business-politician mix, but with a broader spectrum of statist intellectuals than the NCF. A particularly important politician was Woodrow Wilson, while governor of New Jersey and later while president. Wilson was an officer of AALL for five years. Wilson's Secretary of Commerce, businessman William Redfield, was also active in the AALL. Unionists Gompers and Mitchell were also in the AALL. Corporatist intellectuals included such NCF stalwarts as Ely, Commons and Jenks, and AALL published a book by Jenks, 1910, on governmental action for social welfare. NCF consultant Henry R. Seeger, professor of political economy at Columbia, was a three-term president of AALL, and in his AALL-published work, Social Insurance, a Programme of Social Reform, 1910, Seeger set forth much of the basic AALL doctrine. He called for an aggressive programme of governmental control and regulation on behalf of the common welfare. The idea of freedom from government interference is obsolete, Professor Seeger thundered, and must be replaced by active government promotion of the common welfare. His ideal was the compulsory state insurance plans for accident, disease and unemployment modelled after Europe. Three years earlier, Seeger had pioneered in proposing a uniform minimum wage law. A major difference from NCF is that AALL included a raft of frankly leftist and socialist intellectuals. Its spectrum of statist and collectivist intellectuals was considerably broader than NCF. This included socialists such as Florence Kelly, Victor Berger, W.D.P. Bliss and Robert Hunter. 
corporatist big business control remained secure, however. Officers of AALL included corporate liberal financiers and industrialists like the Bostonian Edward A. Feline and Charles M. Cabot, Gerard Swope of General Electric and investment banker Isaac Seligman. Financiers of AALL included such financial notables as Judge Elbert Gary of United States Steel, Mrs. Madeline Astor, John D. Rockefeller, Anne Morgan, daughter of J.P., and the Kuhn-Loeb-connected banker Felix Warburg. Big business support and control of AALL demonstrates the fallacy of the traditional sharp separation by historians of progressives into business moderates and radical intellectuals. In actuality, there was no genuine separation, but rather an interpenetration, a happy collaboration between big business supporters and intellectuals, whether moderate or radical corporatist, marching hand in hand into the new order. Chapter 10. The Progressive Era and the Family While the Progressive Era used to be narrowly designated as the period 1900 to 1914, historians now realise that the period is really much broader, stretching from the latter decades of the 19th century into the early 1920s. The broader period marks an era in which the entire American polity, from economics to urban planning to medicine to social work, to the licensing of professions, to the ideology of intellectuals, was transformed from a roughly laissez-faire system based on individual rights to one of state planning and control. In the sphere of public policy issues closely related to the life of the family, most of the change took place, or at least began, in the latter decades of the 19th century. In this paper, we shall use the analytic insights of the new political history to examine the ways in which the so-called progressives sought to shape and control select aspects of American family life. 1. Ethno-religious conflict and the public schools In the last two decades, the advent of the new political history has transformed our understanding of the political party system and the basis of political conflict in 19th century America. In contrast to the party systems of the 20th century, the fourth party system, 1896 to 1932, of Republican supremacy, the fifth party system, 1932 onwards, of Democratic supremacy, the 19th century political parties were not bland coalitions of interests with virtually the same amorphous ideology, with each party blurring what is left of its image during campaigns to appeal to the large independent centre. In the 19th century, each party offered a fiercely contrasting ideology, and political parties performed the function of imposing a common ideology on diverse sectional and economic interests. During campaigns, the ideology and the partisanship became fiercer and even more clearly demarcated, since the object was not to appeal to independent moderates, there were virtually none, but to bring out the vote of one's own partisans. Such partisanship and sharp alternatives marked the second American party system, Whig versus Democrat, approximately 1830 to the mid-1850s, and the third party system, closely fought Republican versus Democrat, mid-1850s to 1896. 
Another important insight of the new political history is that the partisan passion devoted by rank-and-file Democrats and Republicans to national economic issues stemmed from a similar passion devoted at the local and state level to what would now be called social issues. Furthermore, that political conflict, from the 1830s on, stemmed from a radical transformation that took place in American Protestantism as a result of the revival movement of the 1830s. The new revival movement swept the Protestant churches, particularly in the north, like wildfire. In contrast to the old creedal Calvinist churches that stressed the importance of obeying God's law as expressed in the church creed, the new pietism was very different. The pietist doctrine was essentially as follows. Specific creeds of various churches or sects do not matter. Neither does obedience to the rituals or liturgies of the particular church. What counts for salvation is only each individual being born again, a direct confrontation between the individual and God, a mystical and emotional conversion in which the individual achieves salvation. The rite of baptism to the pietist therefore becomes secondary. Of primary importance is his or her personal moment of conversion. But if the specific church or creed becomes submerged in a vague Christian interdenominationalism, then the individual Christian is left on his own to grapple with the problems of salvation. Pietism, as it swept American Protestantism in the 1830s, took two very different forms in North and South, with very different political implications. The Southerners, at least until the 1890s, became salvationist pietists. That is, they believed that the emotional experience of individual regeneration, of being born again, was enough to ensure salvation. Religion was a separate compartment of life, a vertical individual-God relation carrying no imperative to transform man-made culture and interhuman relations. In contrast, the Northerners, particularly in the areas inhabited by Yankees, adopted a far different form of pietism, evangelical pietism. The evangelical pietists believed that man could achieve salvation by an act of free will. More particularly, they also believed that it was necessary to a person's own salvation and not just a good idea, to try his best to ensure the salvation of everyone else in society. Quote, To spread holiness, to create that Christian commonwealth by bringing all men to Christ, was the divinely ordered duty of the saved. Their mandate was to transform the world into the image of Christ. End quote. Since each individual is alone to wrestle the problems of sin and salvation, without creed or ritual of the church to sustain him, the evangelical duty must therefore be to use the state, the social arm of the integrated Christian community, to stamp out temptation and occasions for sin. Only in this way could one perform one divinely mandated duty to maximise the salvation of others. Footnote. In contrast to previous Christian groups, which were either amillennial the return of Jesus will bring an end to human history, or pre-millennial, the return of Jesus will usher in a thousand-year reign of the kingdom of God on earth, most evangelical pietists were post-millennials. In short, whereas Catholics, Lutherans and most Calvinists 
believe that the return of Jesus is independent of human actions, the post-millennialists held that Christians must establish a thousand-year reign of the kingdom of God on earth as a necessary precondition of Jesus' return. In short, the evangelicals will have to take over the state and stamp out sin, so that Jesus can then return. End footnote. And to the evangelical pietist, sin took on an extremely broad definition, placing the requirements for holiness far beyond that of other Christian groups. As one anti-pietist Christian put it, they saw sin where God did not. In particular, sin was any and all forms of contact with liquor, and doing anything except praying and going to church on Sunday. Any forms of gambling, dancing, theatre, reading of novels, in short, secular enjoyment of any kind, were considered sinful. The forms of sin that particularly agitated the evangelicals were those they held to interfere with the theological free will of individuals, making them unable to achieve salvation. Liquor was sinful because, they alleged, it crippled the free will of the imbibers. Another particular source of sin was Roman Catholicism, in which priests and bishops, arms of the Pope, whom they identified as the Antichrist, ruled the minds and therefore crippled the theological freedom of will of members of the Church. Evangelical pietism particularly appealed to, and therefore took root among, the Yankees, i.e. that cultural group that originated in, especially rural, New England, and emigrated widely to populate northern and western New York, northern Ohio, northern Indiana, and northern Illinois. The Yankees were natural cultural imperialists, people who were wont to impose their values and morality on other groups. As such, they took quite naturally to imposing their form of pietism through whatever means were available, including the use of the coercive power of the state. In contrast to evangelical pietists were, in addition to small groups of old-fashioned Calvinists, two great Christian groups, the Catholics and the Lutherans, or at least the high church variety of Lutheran, who were liturgicals, or ritualists, rather than pietists. The liturgicals saw the road to salvation in joining the particular church, obeying its rituals and making use of its sacraments. The individual was not alone with only his emotions and the state to protect him. There was no particular need then for the state to take on the functions of the church. Furthermore, the liturgicals had a much more relaxed and rational view of what sin really was. For instance, excessive drinking might be sinful, but liquor per se surely was not. The evangelical pietists from the 1830s on were the northern Protestants of British descent, as well as the Lutherans from Scandinavia and a minority of pietist German synods. The liturgicals were the Roman Catholics and the high church Lutherans, largely German. Very rapidly, the political parties reflected a virtually one-to-one correlation of this ethno-religious division. The Whig and later the Republican Party, consisting chiefly of the Pietists, and the Democratic Party, encompassing almost all the liturgicals. And for almost a century, on a state and local level, the Whig or Republican Pietists tried desperately and determinedly to stamp out liquor and all Sunday activities except church 
Of course, drinking liquor on Sunday was a heinous double sin. As to the Catholic Church, the Pietists tried to restrict or abolish immigration, since people coming from Germany and Ireland, the Turgicals, were outnumbering people from Britain and Scandinavia. Failing that and despairing of doing anything about adult Catholics poisoned by agents of the Vatican, the evangelical Pietists decided to concentrate on saving Catholic and Lutheran youth by trying to eliminate the parochial schools, through which both religious groups transmitted their precious religious and social values to the young. The object, as many Pietists put it, was to Christianize the Catholics, to force Catholic and Lutheran children into public schools, which could then be used as an instrument of Pietist Protestantization. Since the Yankees had early taken to the idea of imposing communal civic virtue and obedience through the public schools, they were particularly receptive to this new reason for aggrandizing public education. To all of these continuing aggressions by what they termed those fanatics, the liturgicals fought back with equal fervor. Particularly bewildered were the Germans, who, Lutheran and Catholic alike, were accustomed to the entire family happily attending beer gardens together on Sundays after church, and who now found the fanatic pietists trying desperately to outlaw this pleasurable and seemingly innocent activity. The pietist Protestant attacks on private and parochial schools fatally threatened the preservation and maintenance of the liturgical's cultural and religious values. And since large numbers of the Catholics and Lutherans were immigrants, parochial schools also served to maintain group affinities in a new and often hostile world, especially the world of Anglo-Saxon pietism. In the case of the Germans, it also meant for several decades preserving parochial teaching in the beloved German language, as against fierce pressures for Anglicization. In the last three decades of the 19th century, as Catholic immigration grew and the Democratic Party moved slowly but surely toward a majority status, the Republican and more broadly pietist pressures became more intense. The purpose of the public school to the pietists was to unify and make homogenous the society. There was no 20th century concern for separating religion and the public school system. To the contrary, in most northern jurisdictions, only pietist Protestant church members were allowed to be teachers in the public schools. Daily reading of the Protestant Bible, daily Protestant prayers and Protestant hymns were common in the public schools, and school textbooks were rife with anti-Catholic propaganda. Thus, New York City school textbooks spoke broadly of the deceitful Catholics, and pounded into their children, Catholic and Protestant alike, the message that Catholics are necessarily, morally, intellectually, infallibly, a stupid race. Teachers delivered homilies on the evils of popery, and also on deeply felt pietist theological values the wickedness of alcohol, the demon rum, and the importance of keeping the Sabbath. In the 1880s and 1890s, zealous pietists began working ardently for anti-alcohol instruction as a required part of the public school curriculum. By 1901, every state in the Union required instruction in temperance.
Since most Catholic children went to public rather than parochial schools, the Catholic authorities were understandably anxious to purge the schools of Protestant requirements and ceremonies and of anti-Catholic textbooks. To the Pietists, these attempts to de-Protestantize the public schools were intolerable Romish aggression. The whole point of the public schools was moral and religious homogenization, and here the Catholics were disrupting the attempt to make American society holy, to produce through the public school and the Protestant gospel a morally and politically homogenous people. As Kleppner writes, quote, When they, the Pietists, spoke of moral education, they had in mind principles of morality shared in common by the adherents of gospel religion. For in the public school, all children, even those whose parents were enslaved by Lutheran formalism or Romish superstition, would be exposed to the Bible. That alone was cause for righteous optimism, for they believed the Bible to be the agent in converting the soul, the volume that makes human beings men. End quote. In this way, America would be saved through the children. The Pietists were therefore incensed that the Catholics were attempting to block the salvation of America's children, and eventually of America itself, all at the orders of a foreign potentate. Thus, the New Jersey Methodist Conference of 1870 lashed out with their deepest feelings against this Romish obstructionism. Quote, Resolved that we greatly deprecate the effort which is being made by haters of light and especially by an arrogant priesthood, to exclude the Bible from the public schools of our land, and that we will do all in our power to defeat the well-defined and wicked design of this mother of harlots. End quote. Throughout the 19th century, nativist attacks on foreigners and the foreign-born were really attacks on liturgical immigrants. Immigrants from Britain or Scandinavia, pietists all, were good Americans as soon as they got off the boat. It was the diverse culture of the other immigrants that had to be homogenized and molded into that of pietist America. Thus, the New England Methodist Conference of 1889 declared, quote, We are a nation of remnants, ravelings from the old world. The public school is one of the remedial agencies which work in our society to diminish this and to hasten the compacting of these heterogeneous materials into a solid nature. End quote. Or, as a leading citizen of Boston declared, the only way to elevate the foreign population was to make Protestants of their children. Since the cities of the North in the late 19th century were becoming increasingly filled with Catholic immigrants, pietist attacks on sinful cities and on immigrants both became aspects of the anti-liturgical struggle for a homogenous Anglo-Saxon pietist culture. The Irish were particular butts of pietist scorn. A New York City textbook bitterly warned that continued immigration could make America the common sewer of Ireland, filled with drunken and depraved Irishmen. The growing influx of immigrants from southern and eastern Europe toward the end of the 19th century seemed to pose even greater problems for the pietist progressives, but they did not shrink from the task. As Elwood P. Cubberley of Stanford University, 
the nation's outstanding progressive historian of education, declared, Southern and Eastern Europeans have, quote, served to dilute tremendously our national stock and to corrupt our civil life. Everywhere these people tend to settle in groups or settlements and to set up here their national manners, customs and observances. Our task is to break up these groups or settlements, to assimilate and amalgamate these people as a part of our American race, and to implant in their children the Anglo-Saxon conception of righteousness, law and order, and popular government. End quote. 2. Progressives, Public Education and the Family The Case of San Francisco The moulding of children was of course the key to homogenization and the key in general to the progressive vision of tight social control over the individual via the instrument of the state. The eminent University of Wisconsin sociologist Edward Ellsworth Ross, a favourite of Theodore Roosevelt and the veritable epitome of a progressive social scientist, summed it up thus. The role of the public official, and in particular of the public school teacher, is, quote, to collect little plastic lumps of human dough from private households and shape them on the social kneading board. End quote. The view of Ross and the other progressives was that the state must take up the task of control and inculcation of moral values once performed by parents and church. The conflict between middle and upper class urban progressive Anglo-Saxon Protestants and largely working class Catholics was sharply delineated in the battle over control of the San Francisco public school system during the second decade of the 20th century. The highly popular Alfred Roncovieri, a French-Italian Catholic, was the elected school superintendent from 1906 on. Roncovieri was a traditionalist who believed that the function of schools was to teach the basics and that teaching children about sex and morality should be a function of home and church. Hence, when the drive for sex hygiene courses in the public schools got underway, Roncovieri consulted with mothers' clubs and, in consequence, kept the programme out of the schools. By 1908, upper-class progressives launched a decade-long movement to oust Roncovieri and transform the nature of the San Francisco public school system. Instead of an elected superintendent responding to a school board elected by districts, the progressives wanted an all-powerful school superintendent, appointed by a rubber-stamp board that in turn would be appointed by the mayor. In other words, in the name of taking the schools out of politics, they hoped to aggrandise the educational bureaucracy and maintain its power virtually unchecked by any popular or democratic control. The purpose was threefold, to push through the progressive program of social control to impose upper-class control over a working-class population and to impose pietist Protestant control over Catholic ethnics. Footnote. The cities were already beginning to reach the point where class and ethnic divisions almost coincided, where, in other words, few working-class Anglo-Saxon Protestants resided in the cities. End footnote. The ethno-religious struggle over the public schools in San Francisco was nothing new. It had been going on tumultuously since the middle of the 19th century. In the last half of the 19th century, 
San Francisco was split into two parts. Ruling the city was a power elite of native-born old Americans hailing from New England, including lawyers, businessmen, and pietist Protestant ministers. These comprised successively the Whig, Know Nothing, Populist, and Republican parties in the city. On the other hand, were the foreign-born, largely Catholic immigrants from Europe, Irish, Germans, French, and Italians, who comprised the Democratic Party. The Protestants early tried to use the public schools as a homogenizing and controlling force. The great theoretician and founder of the public school system in San Francisco, John Swett, the Horace Mann of California, was a lifelong Republican and a Yankee who had taught school in New Hampshire before moving west. Moreover, the Board of Education was originally an all New England show, consisting of emigrants from Vermont, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. The mayor of San Francisco was a former mayor of Salem, Massachusetts, and every administrator and teacher in the public schools was a transplanted New Englander. The first superintendent of schools was not exactly a New Englander, but close. Thomas J. Nevins, a Yankee Whig lawyer from New York and an agent of the American Bible Society, and the first free public school in San Francisco was instituted in the basement of a small Baptist chapel. Nevins, installed as superintendent of schools in 1851, promptly adopted the rule of New York City schools. Every teacher was compelled to begin each day with a Protestant Bible reading, and to conduct daily Protestant prayer sessions. And John Swett, elected as Republican State Superintendent of Public Instruction during the 1860s, declared that California needed public schools because of its heterogeneous population. Nothing can Americanize these chaotic elements and breathe into them the spirit of our institutions. He warned, except the public schools. Swett was keen enough to recognize that the pietist educational formula meant that the state takes over jurisdiction of the child from his parents, since children arrived at the age of maturity belong not to the parents but to the state, to society, to the country. A seesaw struggle between the Protestant Yankees and the Catholic ethnics ensued in San Francisco during the 1850s. The state charter of San Francisco in 1855 made the schools far more responsive to the people, with school boards being elected from each of a dozen wards instead of at large, and the superintendent elected by the people instead of appointed by the board. The Democrats swept the Know Nothings out of office in the city in 1856 and brought to power David Broderick, an Irish Catholic who controlled the San Francisco. As well as the California Democratic Party, but this gain was wiped out by the San Francisco Vigilance Movement, a private organization of merchants and New England-born Yankees who, attacking the Tammany tactics of Broderick, installed themselves in power and illegally deported most of the Broderick organization, replacing it with a newly formed People's Party. The People's Party ran San Francisco with an iron hand for ten years, from 1857 to 1867, making secret nominations for appointments and driving through huge slates of at-large nominees chosen by a single vote at a public meeting. No open nomination procedures, primaries, or ward divisions were allowed in order to ensure election victories by reputable men.
the People's Party promptly reinstalled an all-Yankee school board, and the administrators and teachers in schools were again firmly Protestant and militantly anti-Catholic. The People's Party itself continually attacked the Irish, denouncing them as micks and rank-pats. George Tate, the People's Party-installed superintendent of schools in the 1860s, lamented, however, that some teachers were failing to read the Protestant Bible in the schools, and were thus casting a slur on the religion and character of the community. By the 1870s, however, the foreign-born residents outnumbered the native-born, and the Democratic Party rose to power in San Francisco, the People's Party declining and joining the Republicans. The Board of Education ended the practice of Protestant devotions in the schools, and Irish and Germans began to pour into administrative and teaching posts in the public school system. Another rollback began, however, in 1874, when the Republican state legislature abolished ward elections for the San Francisco School Board and insisted that all board members be elected at large. This meant that only the wealthy, which usually meant well-to-do Protestants, were likely to be able to run successfully for election. Accordingly, whereas in 1873 58% of the San Francisco School Board was foreign-born, the percentage was down to 8% in the following year. And while the Irish were approximately 25% of the electorate, and the Germans about 13%, the Irish were not able to fill more than one or two of the 12 at-large seats, and the Germans virtually none. The seesaw continued, however, as the Democrats came back in 1883, under the aegis of the master politician, the Irish Catholic Christopher Blind Boss Buckley. In the Buckley regime, the post-1874 school board, dominated totally by wealthy, native-born Yankee businessmen and professionals, was replaced by an ethnically balanced ticket with a high proportion of working class and foreign-born. Furthermore, a high proportion of Irish Catholic teachers, most of them single women, entered the San Francisco schools during the Buckley era, reaching 50% by the turn of the century. In the late 1880s, however, the stridently anti-Catholic and anti-Irish American Party became strong in San Francisco and the rest of the state, and Republican leaders were happy to join them in denouncing the immigrant peril. The American Party managed to oust the Irish Catholic Joseph O'Connor, principal and deputy superintendent, from his high post as religiously unacceptable. This victory heralded a progressive Republican reform comeback in 1891, when none other than John Sweat was installed as superintendent of schools in San Francisco. Sweat battled for the full reform program, to make everything, even the mayoralty, an appointive rather than an elective office. Part of the goal was achieved by the state's new San Francisco Charter in 1900, which replaced the 12-man elected Board of Education by a four-member board appointed by the mayor. The full goal of total appointment was still blocked, however, by the existence of an elective superintendent of schools, who, since 1906, was the popular Catholic Alfred Roncovieri. The pietist progressives were also thwarted for two decades by the fact that San Francisco was ruled, for most of the years between 1901 and 1911, by a new Union Labour Party, 
which won on an ethnically and occupationally balanced ticket, and which elected the German-Irish Catholic Eugene Schmitz, a member of the Musicians' Union, as mayor. And for 18 years after 1911, San Francisco was governed by its most popular mayor before or since, Sonny Jim Rolf, an Episcopalian friendly to Catholics and ethnics, who was pro-Roncovieri and who presided over an ethnically pluralistic regime. It is instructive to examine the makeup of the progressive reform movement that eventually got its way and overthrew Roncovieri. It consisted of the standard progressive coalition of business and professional elites and nativist and anti-Catholic organisations, who called for the purging of Catholics from the schools. Particular inspiration came from Stanford educationist Elwood P. Cubberley, who energised the California branch of the Association of Collegiate Alumni, later the American Association of University Women, led by the wealthy Mrs. Jesse H. Steinhardt, whose husband was later to be a leader in the Progressive Party. Mrs. Steinhardt got Mrs. Agnes DeLima, a New York City progressive educator, to make a survey of the San Francisco schools for the association. The report, presented in 1914, made the expected case for an efficient, business-like school system run solely by appointed educators. Mrs. Steinhardt also organised the Public Education Society of San Francisco to agitate for progressive school reform. In this, she was aided by the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. Also backing progressive reform and anxious to oust Roncovieri were other elite groups in the city, including the League of Women Voters and the prestigious Commonwealth Club of California. At the behest of Mrs. Steinhardt and the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, which contributed the funds, Philander Claxton of the U.S. Office of Education weighed in with his report in December 1917. The report, which endorsed the Association of Collegiate Alumni Study and was extremely critical of the San Francisco school system, called for all power over the system to go to an appointed superintendent of schools. Claxton also attacked the teaching of foreign languages in the schools, which San Francisco had been doing, and insisted on a comprehensive Americanization to break down ethnic settlements. The Claxton Report was the signal for the Chamber of Commerce to swing into action, and it proceeded to draft a comprehensive progressive referendum for the November 1918 ballot, calling for an appointed superintendent and an appointed school board. This initiative, Amendment 37, was backed by most of the prominent business and professional groups in the city. In addition to the ones named above, there were the Real Estate Board, elite women's organisations such as the Federation of Women's Clubs, wealthy neighbourhood improvement clubs, and the San Francisco Examiner. Amendment 37 lost, however, by two to one, since it had little support in working-class neighbourhoods or among the teachers. Two years later, however, Amendment 37 passed, aided by a resurgence of pietism and virulent anti-Catholicism in post-war America. Prohibition was now triumphant, and the Ku Klux Klan experienced a nationwide revival as a pietist anti-Catholic organisation. The KKK had as many as 3,500 members in the San Francisco Bay Area in the early 1920s. The Anti-Catholic American Protective Association also enjoyed a revival, led in California by a British small businessman 
the anti-Irish Grand Master Colonel J. Arthur Peterson. In opposing Amendment 37 in the 1920 elections, Father Peter C. York, a prominent priest and Irish immigrant, perceptively summed up the fundamental cleavage. The modern school system, he declared, is not satisfied with teaching children the three R's. It reaches out and takes possession of their whole lives. Amendment 37 passed in 1920 by the narrow margin of 69,200 to 66,700. It passed in every middle and upper class assembly district and lost in every working class district. The higher the concentration of foreign-born voters in any district, the greater the vote against. In the Italian precincts 1-17 to of the 33rd Assembly District, the amendment was beaten by 3-1. to In the Irish precincts, it was defeated by 3-1 to as well. The more Protestant a working-class district, the more it supported the amendment. The bulk of the lobbying for the amendment was performed by the ad hoc educational conference. After the victory, the conference happily presented a list of nominees to the school board, which now consisted of seven members appointed by the mayor, and which in turn appointed the superintendent. The proposed board consisted entirely of businessmen, of whom only one was a conservative Irish Catholic. The mayor surrendered to the pressure, and hence after 1921, cultural pluralism in the San Francisco school system gave way to unitary, progressive rule. The board began by threatening to dock any teacher who dared to be absent from school on St. Patrick's Day, a San Francisco tradition since the 1870s, and proceeded to override the wishes of particular neighbourhoods in the interest of a centralised city. The superintendent of schools in the new regime, Dr. Joseph Mar Gwynne, fit the new dispensation to a T. A professional scientist of public administration his avowed aim was unitary control. The entire package of typical progressive educational nostrums was installed, including a Department of Education and various experimental programs. Traditional basic education was scorned, and the edict came down that children should not be forced to learn the three R's if they didn't feel the need. Traditional teachers, who were continually attacked for being old-fashioned and unprofessional, were not promoted. Despite continued opposition by teachers, parents, neighbourhoods, ethnic groups and the ousted Roncovieri, all attempts to repeal Amendment 37 were unsuccessful. The modern dispensation of progressivism had conquered San Francisco. The removal of the Board of Education and School Superintendent from direct and periodic control by the electorate had effectively deprived parents of any significant control over the educational policies of the public schools. At last, as John Sweat had asserted nearly 60 years earlier, schoolchildren belonged not to the parents, but to the state, to society, to the country. 3. Ethno-religious conflict and the rise of feminism A. Women's suffrage by the 1890s, the liturgically oriented democracy was slowly but surely winning the national battle of the political parties. Culminating the battle was the Democratic congressional victory in 1890 and the Grover Cleveland landslide in the presidential election of 1892, 
in which Cleveland carried both houses of Congress along with him, an unusual feat for that era. The Democrats were in way of becoming the majority party of the country, and the route was demographic. The fact that most of the immigrants were Catholic, and the Catholic birth rate was higher than that of the pietist Protestants. Even though British and Scandinavian immigration had reached new highs during the 1880s, their numbers were far exceeded by German and Irish immigration, the latter being the highest since the famous post-potato famine influx that started in the late 1840s. Furthermore, the new immigration from southern and eastern Europe, almost all Catholic and especially Italian, began to make its mark during the same decade. The pietists became increasingly embittered, stepping up their attacks on foreigners in general and Catholics in particular. Thus, the Reverend T. W. Kyler, president of the National Temperance Society, intemperately explained in the summer of 1891, how much longer will the Republic consent to have her soil a dumping ground for all Hungarian ruffians, bohemian bruisers, and Italian cutthroats of every description. The first concrete political response by the pietists to the rising Catholic tide was to try to restrict immigration. Republicans successfully managed to pass laws partially cutting immigration, but President Cleveland vetoed a bill to impose a literacy test on all immigrants. The Republicans also managed to curtail voting by immigrants, by getting most states to disallow voting by aliens thereby reversing the traditional custom of allowing alien voting. They also urged the lengthening of the statutory waiting period for naturalisation. The successful restricting of immigration and of immigrant voting was still not enough to matter, and immigration would not really be foreclosed until the 1920s. But if voting could not be restricted sharply enough, perhaps it could be expanded, in the proper pietist direction. Specifically, it was clear to the pietists that the role of women in the liturgical ethnic family was very different from what it was in the pietist Protestant family. One of the reasons impelling pietists and republicans toward prohibition was the fact that culturally, the lives of urban male Catholics, and the cities of the northeast were becoming increasingly Catholic, evolved around the neighbourhood saloon. The men would repair at night to the saloon for chit-chat, discussions and argument, and they would generally take their political views from the saloon keeper, who thus became the political powerhouse in his particular ward. Therefore, prohibition meant breaking the political power of the urban liturgical machines in the Democratic Party. But while the social lives of liturgical males revolved around the saloon, their wives stayed at home. While pietist women were increasingly independent and politically active, the lives of liturgical women revolved solely around home and hearth. Politics was strictly an avocation for husbands and sons. Perceiving this, the pietists began to push for women's suffrage, realising that far more pietist than liturgical women would take advantage of the power to vote. As a result, the women's suffrage movement was heavily pietist from the very beginning. Ultra-pietist third parties, like the Greenback and the Prohibition parties, which scorned the Republicans for being untrustworthy moderates on social issues, supported women's suffrage throughout, and the populists tended in that direction. 
the Progressive Party of 1912 was strongly in favour of women's suffrage. Theirs was the first major national convention to permit women delegates. The first woman elector, Helen J. Scott of Wisconsin, was chosen by the Progressive Party. Perhaps the major single organisation in the women's suffrage movement was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, founded in 1874 and reaching an enormous membership of 300,000 by 1900. That the WCTU was also involved in agitating for curfew, anti-gambling, anti-smoking and anti-sex laws, all actions lauded by the women's suffrage movement, is clear from the official history of women's suffrage in the 19th century. Quote, The WCTU has been a chief factor in state campaigns for statutory prohibition, constitutional amendment, reform laws in general and those for the protection of women and children in particular, and in securing anti-gambling and anti-cigarette laws. It has been instrumental in raising the age of protection for girls in many states and in obtaining curfew laws in 400 towns and cities. The association, WCTU, protests against the legalisation of all crimes, especially those of prostitution and liquor selling. End quote. Not only did Susan B. Anthony begin her career as a professional prohibitionist, but her two successors as president of the leading women's suffrage organisation, the National American Woman's Suffrage Association, Mrs. Carrie Chapman Catt and Dr. Anna Howard Shaw, also began their professional careers as prohibitionists. The leading spirit of the WCTU, Francis E. Willard, was prototypically born of New England stock parents who had moved westward to study at Oberlin College, then the nation's centre of aggressive evangelical pietism, and had later settled in Wisconsin. Guided by Miss Willard, the WCTU began its pro-suffrage activities by demanding that women vote in local option referendums on prohibition. As Miss Willard put it, the WCTU wanted women to vote on this issue because majorities of women are against the liquor traffic. Conversely, whenever there was a voters' referendum on women's suffrage, the liturgicals and the foreign-born, responding to immigrant culture and reacting against the pietist feminist support of prohibition, consistently opposed women's suffrage. In Iowa, the Germans voted against women's suffrage, as did the Chinese in California. The women's suffrage amendment in 1896 in California was heavily supported by the bitterly anti-Catholic American Protective Association. The cities where Catholics abounded tended to be opposed to women's suffrage, while pietist rural areas tended to favour it. Thus, the Oregon referendum of 1900 lost largely because of opposition in the Catholic slums of Portland and Astoria. A revealing religious breakdown of votes on an 1877 women's suffrage referendum was presented in a report by a Colorado feminist. She explained that the Methodists, the most strongly pietistic, were for us, the less pietistic Presbyterians and Episcopalians, fairly so, and while the Roman Catholics were not all against us, clearly they were expected to be. And testifying before the US Senate Judiciary Committee in favour of women's suffrage in 1880, Susan B. Anthony presented her own explanation of the Colorado vote. Quote, in Colorado, 6,666 men voted yes. Now I'm going to describe 
the men who voted yes. They were native-born men, temperance men, cultivated, broad, generous, just men, men who think. On the other hand, 16,007 voted no. Now I'm going to describe that class of voters. In the southern part of that state are Mexicans, who speak the Spanish language. The vast population of Colorado is made up of that class of people. I was sent out to speak in a voting precinct having 200 voters. 150 of those voters were Mexican greasers, 40 of them foreign-born citizens, and just 10 of them were born in this country. And I was supposed to be competent to convert those men to let me have so much right in this government as they had. End quote. A laboratory test of which women would turn out to vote occurred in Massachusetts, where women were given the power to vote in school board elections from 1879 on. In 1888, large numbers of Protestant women in Boston turned out to drive Catholics off the school board. In contrast, Catholic women scarcely voted, thereby validating the nativist tendencies of suffragists who believed that extension of full suffrage to women would provide a barrier against further Catholic influence. Footnote. Joining in the demand that only Protestants be elected to the Boston School Board were, in addition to British-American clubs and numbers of Protestant ministers, the WCTU, the Loyal Women of American Liberty, the National Women's League, and the League of Independent Women Voters. End footnote. During the last two decades of the 19th century, quote, the more hierarchical the church organization and the more formal the ritual, the greater was its opposition to women's suffrage, while the democratically organized churches with little dogma tended to be more receptive. End quote. Footnote. Hierarchically organized pietist churches, like the Methodist or the Scandinavian Lutheran, were no less receptive to women's suffrage than the others. End footnote. Four mountain states adopted women's suffrage in the early and mid-1890s. Two, Wyoming and Utah, were simply ratifying, as new states, a practice they had long adopted as territories, Wyoming in 1869 and Utah in 1870. Utah had adopted women's suffrage as a conscious policy by the pietistic Mormons to weight political control in favour of their polygamous members, who contrasted to the Gentiles, largely miners and settlers, who were either single men or who had left their wives back east. Wyoming had adopted women's suffrage in an effort to increase the political power of its settled householders, in contrast to the transient, mobile and often lawless single men who peopled that frontier region. No sooner had Wyoming Territory adopted women's suffrage than it became evident that the change had benefited the Republicans particularly since women had mobilized against democratic attempts to repeal Wyoming's Sunday Prohibition Law. In 1871, both houses of the Wyoming legislature, led by its democratic members, voted to repeal women's suffrage, but the bill was vetoed by the Republican territorial governor. Two additional states adopting women's suffrage in the 1890s were Idaho and Colorado. In Idaho, the drive adopted by referendum in 1896 was led by the ultra-pietistic populists and by the Mormons, who were dominant in the southern part of that state. The populist counties of Colorado 
gave a majority of 6,800 for women's suffrage, while the Republican and Democratic counties voted a majority of 500 against. Footnote: Furthermore, in the Colorado legislature that submitted the women's suffrage amendment to the voters in 1893, the party breakdown of voting was as follows: Republicans 19 for women's suffrage and 25 against. Democrats 1 in favor and 8 against. Populists 34 in favor and 4 against. End footnote. It may be thought paradoxical that a movement women's suffrage born and centered in the east should have had its earliest victories in the remote frontier states of the mountain west. But the paradox begins to clear when we realize the pietist Anglo-Saxon Protestant nature of the frontiersmen, many of them Yankees hailing originally from that birthplace of American pietism, New England. As the historian Frederick Jackson Turner, that great celebrant of frontier ideals, lyrically observed, quote, "In the arid west, these pioneers from New England have halted and have turned to perceive an altered nation." and changed social ideals if we follow back the line of march of the puritan farmer we shall see how responsive he has always been to isms he is the prohibitionist of iowa and wisconsin crying out against german customs as an invasion of his traditional ideals he is the granger of wisconsin passing restrictive railroad legislation he is the abolitionist the anti-mason the millerite the woman suffragist the spiritualist the mormon of western new york end quote b eugenics and birth control thus the women's suffrage movement dominated by pietist progressives was not directed solely to achieving some abstract principle of electoral equality between males and females this was more a means to another end the end of electoral majorities for pietist measures of direct social control over the lives of american families they wished to determine by state intervention what those families drank and when and where they drank how they spent their sabbath day and how their children should be educated one way of correcting the increasingly pro-catholic demographics was to restrict immigration another was to promote women's suffrage a third way often promoted in the name of science was eugenics an increasingly popular doctrine of the progressive movement broadly eugenics may be defined as encouraging the breeding of the fit and discouraging the breeding of the unfit the criteria of fitness often coinciding with the cleavage between native white protestants and the foreign born or catholics or the white black cleavage in extreme cases the unfit were to be coercively sterilized To the founder of the American eugenics movement, the distinguished biologist Charles Benedict Davenport, a New Yorker of eminent New England background, the rising feminist movement was beneficent provided that the number of biologically superior persons was sustained and the number of the unfit diminished. The biologist Henry H. Lochlin, aide to Davenport, assistant editor of the Eugenical News, and highly influential in the immigration restriction policy of the 1920s as eugenics expert for the House Committee on Immigration and Naturalization stressed the great importance of cutting the immigration of the biologically inferior southern Europeans 
for in that way the biological superiority of Anglo-Saxon women would be protected. Harry Lachlan's report to the House Committee, printed in 1923, helped formulate the 1924 immigration law, which, in addition to drastically limiting total immigration to the United States, imposed national origin quotas based on the 1910 census, so as to weight the sources of immigration as much as possible in favour of northern Europeans. Lachlan later emphasised that American women must keep the nation's blood pure by not marrying what he called the coloured races, in which he included southern Europeans as well as blacks. For if, quote, men with a small fraction of coloured blood could readily find mates among the white women, the gates would be thrown open to a final radical race mixture of the whole population, end quote. To Lachlan, the moral was clear, quote, the perpetuity of the American race, and consequently of American institutions, depends upon the virtue and fecundity of American women. End quote. But the problem was that the fecund women were not the pietist progressives, but the Catholics. For in addition to immigration, another source of demographic alarm to the pietists was the far higher birth rate among Catholic women. If only they could be induced to adopt birth control. Hence, the birth control movement became part of the pietist armamentarium in their systemic struggle with the Catholics and other liturgicals. Thus, the distinguished University of California eugenicist Samuel J. Holmes lamented that the trouble with birth control is that it is practiced least where it should be practiced most. In the Birth Control Review, leading organ of the birth control movement, Annie G. Porritt was more specific attacking the folly of closing our gates to aliens from abroad while having them wide open to the overwhelming progeny of the least desirable elements of our city and slum population. In short, the birth controllers were saying that if one's goal is to restrict sharply the total number of Catholics, coloured Southern European or no, then there is no point in only limiting immigration while the domestic population continues to increase. The birth control and the eugenics movement therefore went hand in hand, not the least in the views of the well-known leader of the birth control movement in the United States, Mrs. Margaret Higgins Sanger, prolific author, founder and long-time editor of the Birth Control Review. Echoing many of the various strains of progressivism, Mrs. Sanger hailed the emancipation of women through birth control as the latest in applied science and efficiency. As she put it in her autobiography, quote, In an age which has developed science and industry and economic efficiency to their highest points, so little thought has been given to the development of a science of parenthood, a science of maternity, which could prevent this appalling and unestimated waste of womankind and maternal effort. End quote. To Mrs. Sanger, science also meant stopping the breeding of the unfit. A devoted eugenicist and follower of C.B. Davenport, she in fact chided the eugenics movement for not sufficiently emphasising this crucial point. Quote, the eugenicists wanted to shift the birth control emphasis from less children for the poor to more children for the rich. We went back of that and sought first to stop the multiplication of the unfit. This appeared the most important and greatest step toward race betterment. End quote. 
Four, gathered together, progressivism as a political party. Progressivism was, to a great extent, the culmination of the Pietist Protestant political impulse, the urge to regulate every aspect of American life, economic and moral, even the most intimate and crucial aspects of family life. But it was also a curious alliance of a technocratic drive for government regulation, the supposed expression of value-free science, and the Pietist religious impulse to save America and the world. By state coercion, often both pietistic and scientific arguments would be used, sometimes by the same people, to achieve the old pietist goals. Thus, prohibition would be argued for on religious as well as on alleged scientific or medicinal grounds. In many cases, leading progressive intellectuals at the turn of the twentieth century were former pietists who went to college and then transferred to the political arena. Their zeal for making over mankind as a salvation by science, and then the social gospel movement managed to combine political collectivism and pietist Christianity in the same package. All of these were strongly interwoven elements in the progressive movement. All these trends reached their apogee in the Progressive Party and its National Convention of 1912. The assemblage was a gathering of businessmen. Intellectuals, academics, technocrats, efficiency experts, and social engineers, writers, economists, social scientists, and leading representatives of the new profession of social work. The progressive leaders were middle and upper class, almost all urban, highly educated, and almost all white Anglo-Saxon Protestants of either past or present Pietist concerns. From the social work leaders came upper-class ladies bringing the blessings of statism to the masses: Lillian D. Wald, Mary Kingsbury Simcovich, and above all, Jane Adams. Miss Adams, one of the great leaders of progressivism, was born in rural Illinois to a father John who was a state legislator and a devout non-denominational evangelical Protestant. Miss Adams was distressed at the southern and eastern European immigration. People who were primitive and credulous, and who posed the danger of unrestrained individualism. Their different ethnic background disrupted the unity of American culture. However, the problem, according to Miss Adams, could be easily remedied. The public school could reshape the immigrant, strip him of his cultural foundations, and transform him into a building block of a new and greater American community. In addition to writers and professional technocrats at the Progressive Party convention, there were professional pietists galore: social gospel leaders Lyman Abbott, the Reverend R. Haber Newton, and the Reverend Washington Gladden were Progressive Party notables. And the progressive candidate for governor of Vermont was the Reverend Fraser Metzger, leader of the Interchurch Federation of Vermont. In fact, the Progressive Party proclaimed itself as. The recrudescence of the religious spirit in American political life. Many observers, indeed, reported in wonder at the strongly religious tone of the Progressive Party convention. Theodore Roosevelt's acceptance address was significantly entitled "A Confession of Faith," and his words were punctuated by amens and by a continual singing of Christian hymns by the assembled delegates. They sang "Onward, Christian Soldiers." The Battle Hymn of the Republic, and finally the Revivalist Hymn, 
follow, follow, we will follow Jesus, except that Roosevelt replaced the word Jesus at every turn. The New York Times of August 6, 1912, summed up the unusual experience by calling the progressive assemblage a convention of fanatics. And it was not a convention at all. It was an assemblage of religious enthusiasts. It was such a convention as Peter the Hermit held. It was a Methodist camp following done over into political terms. Thus, the foundations of today's massive state intervention in the internal life of the American family were laid in the so-called progressive era from the 1870s to the 1920s. Pietists and progressives united to control the material and sexual choices of the rest of the American people, their drinking habits and their recreational preferences. Their values, the very nurture and education of their children, were to be determined by their betters. The spiritual, biological, political, intellectual and moral elite would govern, through state power, the character and quality of American family life. 5. Significance It has been known for decades that the Progressive Era was marked by radical growth in the extension and dominance of government in America's economic, social and cultural life. For decades, this great leap into statism was naively interpreted by historians as a simple response to the greater need for planning and regulation of an increasingly complex economy. In recent years, however, Historians have come to see that increasing statism on a federal and state level can be better interpreted as a profitable alliance between certain business and industrial interests looking for government to cartelize their industry after private efforts for cartels and monopoly had failed and intellectuals, academics and technocrats seeking jobs to help regulate and plan the economy as well as the restriction of entry into their professions. In short, the progressive era recreated the age-old alliance between big government, large business firms and opinion-moulding intellectuals, an alliance that had most recently been embodied in the mercantilist system of the 16th through 18th centuries. Other historians uncovered a similar process at the local level, especially that of urban government, beginning with the progressive era. Using the influence of media and opinion leaders, Upper income and business groups in the cities systematically took political power away from the masses and centralized this power in the hands of urban government responsive to progressive demands. Elected officials and decentralized ward representation were systematically replaced either by appointed bureaucrats and civil servants or by centralized at-large districts where large-scale funding was needed to finance election races. In this way, power was shifted out of the hands of the masses and into the hands of a minority elite of technocrats and upper-income businessmen. One result was an increase of government contracts to business, a shift from Tammany-type charity by the political parties to a taxpayer-financed welfare state, and the imposition of higher taxes on suburban residents to finance bond issues and redevelopment schemes accruing to downtown financial interests. During the last two decades, educational historians have described a similar process at work in public, especially urban, school systems. The scope of the public school was greatly expanded, 
Compulsory attendance spread outside of New England and other Yankee areas during the Progressive Era, and a powerful movement developed to try to ban private schools and to force everyone into the public school system. From the work of educational historians, it was clear that the leap into comprehensive state control over the individual and over social life was not confined during the progressive and indeed post-progressive eras to government and the economy. A far more comprehensive process was at work. The expansion of compulsory public schooling stemmed from the growth of collectivist and anti-individualist ideology among intellectuals and educationists. The individual, these progressives believed, must be molded by the educational process to conform to the group, which in practice meant the dictates of the power elite speaking in the group's name. Historians have long been aware of this process, but the accruing insight into progressivism as a business cartelizing device led historians who had abandoned the easy equation of businessmen with laissez-faire to see that all the facets of progressivism. The economic and the ideological and educational were part of an integrated whole. The new ideology among business groups was cartelist and collectivist, rather than individualist and laissez-faire. And the social control over the individual exerted by progressivism was neatly paralleled in the ideology and practice of progressive education. Another parallel to the economic realm, of course, was the increased power and income. Accruing to the technocratic intellectuals controlling the school system and the economy. If the action of business and intellectual elites in turning toward progressivism was now explained, there was still a large gap in the historical explanation and understanding of progressivism, and therefore of the leap into statism beginning in the early 20th century. There was still a need to explain mass voting behavior. And the ideology and programs of the political parties in the American electoral system. This chapter applied the illuminating findings of recent ethno-religious historians to significant changes that took place during the Progressive Era in the power of government over the family. In particular, we discussed the movement to expand the power of the public school and the educationist elite over the family, as well as the women's suffrage and eugenics movement. All important features of the progressive movement. In every case, we see the vital link between these intrusions into the family and the aggressive drive by Anglo-Saxon Protestant Pietists to use the state to make America holy, to stamp out sin, and thereby assure their own salvation by maximizing the salvation of others. In particular, all of these measures were part and parcel of the long-standing crusade by these Pietists. To reduce, if not eliminate, the role of liturgicals, largely Roman Catholics and High Church Lutherans, from American political life, the drive to stamp out liquor and secular activities on Sundays had long run into successful Catholic and High Church Lutheran resistance. Compulsory public schooling was soon seen as an indispensable weapon in the task of Christianizing the Catholics, of saving the souls of Catholic children. By using the public schools as a Protestantizing weapon, the neglected example of San Francisco politics was urged as a case study of this ethno-religious political battle over the schools, and hence over the right of Catholic parents to transmit their own values to their children without suffering Anglo-Saxon Protestant obstruction.
women's suffrage was seized upon as a means of increasing Anglo-Saxon Protestant voting power, and immigration restriction, as well as eugenics, was a method of reducing the growing demographic challenge of Catholic voters. In some recent insights into the cartelizing drive of various business interests have provided an important explanation of the rapid growth of statism in the 20th century. Ethno-religious history provides an explanation of mass voting behavior and political party programs that neatly complement the cartelizing explanation of the actions of business elites. Chapter 11. Origins of the Welfare State in America Standard theory views government as functional. A social need arises and government, semi-automatically, springs up to fill that need. The analogy rests on the market economy. Demand gives rise to supply, e.g. a demand for cream cheese will result in a supply of cream cheese on the market. But surely it is strained to say that in the same way, a demand for postal services will spontaneously give rise to a government monopoly post office, outlawing its competition and giving us ever poorer service for ever higher prices. Indeed, if the analogy fails when even a genuine service, e.g. mail delivery or road construction, is being provided, imagine how much worse the analogy is when government is not supplying a good or service at all, but is coercively redistributing income and wealth. When the government, in short, takes money at gunpoint from A and gives it to B, who is demanding what? The cream cheese producer on the market is using his resources to supply a genuine demand for cream cheese. He is not engaged in coercive redistribution. But what about the government's taking from A and giving the money to B? Who are the demanders and who are the suppliers? One can say that the subsidised, the donees, are demanding this redistribution. Surely, however, it would be straining credulity to claim that A, the fleeced, is also demanding this activity. A, in fact, is the reluctant supplier, the coerced donor. B is gaining at A's expense. But the really interesting role here is played by G, the government. For apart from the unlikely case where G is an unpaid altruist, performing this action as an uncompensated Robin Hood, G gets a rake-off, a handling charge, a finder's fee, so to speak, for this little transaction. G, the government, in other words, performs this act of redistribution by fleecing A for the benefit of B and of himself. Once we focus on this aspect of the transaction, we begin to realise that G, the government, might not just be a passive recipient of B's felt need and economic demand, as standard theory would have it. Instead, G himself might be an active demander, and as a full-time paid Robin Hood, might even have stimulated B's demand in the first place, so as to be in on the deal. The felt need, then, might be on the part of the governmental Robin Hood himself. 1. Why the welfare state? Why has government increased greatly over this century? Specifically, why has the welfare state appeared, grown and become ever larger and more powerful? What was the functional need felt here? 
One answer is that the development of poverty over the past century gave rise to welfare and redistribution. But this makes little sense, since it is evident that the average person's standard of living has grown considerably over the past century and a half, and poverty has greatly diminished. But perhaps inequality has been aggravated, and the masses, even though better off, are upset by the increased income gap between themselves and the wealthy. English translation, the masses may be smitten with envy and rankle furiously at a growing income disparity. But it should also be evident from one glance at the third world that the disparity of income and wealth between the rich and the masses is far greater there than in Western capitalist countries. So what's the problem? Another standard answer more plausibly asserts that industrialization and urbanization by the late 19th century, deprived the masses, uprooted from the soil or the small town, of their sense of community, belonging and mutual aid. Footnote. Harold Wilensky put it boldly and succinctly. Economic growth is the ultimate cause of welfare state development. End footnote. Alienated and deracinated in the city and in the factory, the masses reached out for the welfare state to take the place of their old community. Certainly it is true that the welfare state emerged during the same period as industrialization and urbanization, but coincidence does not establish causation. One grave flaw in this urbanization theory is that it ignores the actual nature of the city at least as it had been before it was effectively destroyed in the decades after World War II. The city was not a monolithic agglomeration, but a series of local neighbourhoods, each with its own distinctive character, network of clubs, fraternal associations and street corner hangouts. Jane Jacobs's memorable depiction of the urban neighbourhood in her Death and Life of Great American Cities was a charming and accurate portrayal of the unity in diversity of each neighbourhood, of the benign role of the street watcher and the local storekeeper. Large city life in the United States by 1900 was almost exclusively Catholic and ethnic, and both the political and social life of Catholic males in each neighbourhood revolved and still to an extent revolves around the neighbourhood saloon. There the men of the neighbourhood would repair each evening to the saloon, where they would drink a few beers, socialise and discuss politics. Typically they would receive political instruction from the local saloon keeper, who was generally also the local democratic ward healer. Wives socialised separately and at home. The beloved community was still alive and well in urban America. On deeper historical inquiry, moreover, this seemingly plausible industrialism explanation falls apart, and not only on the familiar problem of American exceptionalism, the fact that the United States, despite industrializing more rapidly, lagged behind European countries in developing the welfare state. Detailed investigations of a number of industrialized countries, for example, find no correlation whatsoever between the degree of industrialization and the adoption of social insurance programs between the 1880s and the 1920s or the 1960s. More strikingly, the same findings hold true within the United States, where American exceptionalism can play no role. 
The earliest massive social welfare program in the United States was the dispensing of post-Civil War pensions to aging veterans of the Union Army and their dependents. Yet these post-Civil War pensions were more likely to aid farmers and small townsmen than residents of large industrial cities. County-level post-Civil War pension studies in Ohio in the late 1880s, the peak years for these pension payments, demonstrate a negative correlation between the degree of urbanism, or percentage of people living in homes rather than on farms, and the rates of receipt of pensions. The author of the study concluded that, generally pensions were distributed to predominantly rural Anglo-Saxon areas, while the major city of Cleveland had the lowest per capita rate of receipt of pensions. Furthermore, pioneers in unemployment insurance and other social legislation were often the less industrialized and more rural states, such as Wisconsin, Minnesota, Oklahoma, and Washington State. Another standard view, the left liberal, or social democratic model, as its practitioners call it, holds that the welfare state came about not through the semi-automatic functioning of industrialization, but rather through conscious mass movements from below, movements generated by the demands of the presumptive beneficiaries of the welfare state themselves, the poor, the masses, or the oppressed working class. This thesis has been summed up boldly by one of its adherents. Everywhere, he says, the welfare state has been the product of, quote, a highly centralized trade union movement with a class-wide membership base, operating in close coordination with a unified reformist socialist party, which, primarily on the basis of massive working-class support, is able to achieve hegemonic status in the party system. End quote. Footnote. A similar sentiment is, the welfare state is a product of the growing strength of labor in civil society. End footnote. Certainly much of this thesis is overdrawn even for Europe, where much of the welfare state was brought about by conservative and liberal bureaucrats and political parties, rather than by unions or socialist parties. But setting that aside and concentrating on the United States, there has been, for one thing, no massively supported socialist party, let alone one which has managed to achieve hegemonic status. We are left then with labor unions as the only possible support for the social democratic model for the United States. But here, historians, almost uniformly starry-eyed supporters of labor unions, have wildly exaggerated the importance of unions in American history. When we get past romantic stories of strikes and industrial conflicts, in which the union role is inevitably whitewashed, if not glorified, even the best economic historians don't bother informing the reader of the meagre quantitative role or importance of unions in the American economy. Indeed, until the New Deal, and with the exception of brief periods when unionization was coercively imposed by the federal government, during World War I and in the railroads during the 1920s, the percentage of union members in the labor force typically ranged from a minuscule 1-2% to during recessions up to 5 or 6% during inflationary booms, and then down to the negligible figure in the next recession. Footnote. The percentage of union membership to the American population, aged 15 to 64, amounted to only 1.35% in 1871, 
1880, and after the development of the AFL and the modern labour movement in 1886, totaled 1% in 1890 and 1.9% in 1900. End footnote. Furthermore, in boom or bust, labour unions, in the free market environment, were only able to take hold in specific occupations and areas of the economy. Specifically, unions could only flourish as skilled craft unions, a. which could control the supply of labour in the occupation because of the small number of workers involved, b. where this limited number constituted a small fraction of the employer's payroll, and c. where, because of technological factors, the industry in question was not very actively competitive across geographical regions. One way to sum up these factors is to say, in economist jargon, that the employer's demand schedule for this type of labour is inelastic. That is, a small restriction in the supply of such labour could give rise to a large wage increase for the remaining workers. Labour unions could flourish, moreover, in such geographically uncompetitive industries as anthracite coal, which is found in only a small area of northeastern Pennsylvania and the various building trades, carpenters, masons, electricians, joiners, etc., since building construction in, say, New York City is only remotely competitive with similar construction in Chicago or Duluth. In contrast, despite determined efforts, it was impossible for unions to prosper in such industries as bituminous coal, which is found in large areas of the United States, or clothing manufacture, where factories can move readily to another non-unionized area. It was a shrewd understanding of these principles that enabled Samuel Gompers and the craft unions in his American Federation of Labour to flourish, while other, more radical and socialistic unions, such as the Noble Order of the Knights of Labour, collapsed quickly and faded from the scene. It should be obvious, then, that the advent and growth of the welfare state in the United States had little or nothing to do with the growth of the labour movement. On the contrary, the growth of labour unionism in America, during World War I and during the 1930s, its two great spurts of activity, were brought about by governmental coercion from above. Labour unions, then, were an effect rather than a cause of the welfare state, at least in the United States. 2. Yankee Postmillennial Pietism If it wasn't industrialism or mass movements of the working class that brought the welfare state to America, what was it? Where are we to look for the causal forces? In the first place, we must realise that the two most powerful motivations in human history have always been ideology, including religious doctrine, and economic interest, and that a joining of these two motivations can be downright irresistible. It was these two forces that joined powerfully together to bring about the welfare state. Ideology was propelled by an intensely held religious doctrine that swept over and controlled virtually all Protestant churches, especially in Yankee areas of the North, from 1830 on. Likewise, a growing corollary ideology of statism and corporate socialism spread among intellectuals and ministers by the end of the 19th century. Among the economic interests promoted by the burgeoning welfare state were two in particular, 
One was a growing legion of educated and often over-educated intellectuals, technocrats, and the helping professions who sought power, prestige, subsidies, contracts, and cushy jobs from the welfare state, and restrictions of entry into their field via forms of licensing. The second was groups of big businessmen who, after failing to achieve monopoly power on the free market, turned to government, local, state, and federal, to gain it for them. The government would provide subsidies, contracts, and particularly enforced cartelization. After 1900, these two groups coalesced, combining two crucial elements: wealth and opinion-molding power. The latter no longer hampered by the resistance of a democratic party committed to laissez-faire ideology. The new coalition joined together to create and accelerate a welfare state in America. Not only was this true in 1900, it remains true today. Perhaps the most fateful of the events giving rise to and shaping the welfare state was the transformation of American Protestantism that took place in a remarkably brief period. During the late 1820s, riding in on a wave from Europe, fueled by intense emotionalism, often generated by revival meetings, this second Great Awakening conquered and remolded the Protestant churches, leaving such older forms as Calvinism far behind. The new Protestantism was spearheaded by the emotionalism of revival meetings held throughout the country by the Reverend Charles Grandison Finney. This new Protestantism was pietist, scorning liturgy as papist or formalistic, and equally scornful of the formalisms of Calvinist creed or church organization. Hence, denominationalism, God's law, and church organization were no longer important. What counted was each person's achieving salvation by his own free will, by being born again or being baptized in the Holy Spirit. An emotional, vaguely defined pietist, non-creeded, and ecumenical Protestantism was to replace strict creedal or liturgical categories. The new pietism took different forms in various regions of the country. In the South, it became personalist or salvational. The emphasis was on each person achieving this rebirth of salvation on his own, rather than via social or political action. In the North, especially in Yankee areas, the form of the new Protestantism was very different. It was aggressively evangelical and post-millennialist. That is, it became each believer's sacred duty to devote his energies to trying to establish a kingdom of God on earth, to establish the perfect society in America and eventually the world, to stamp out sin and make America holy, as essential preparation. For the eventual second advent of Jesus Christ, each believer's duty went far beyond mere support of missionary activity. For a crucial part of the new doctrine held that he who did not try his very best to maximize the salvation of others would not himself be saved. After only a few years of agitation, it was clear to these new Protestants that the kingdom of God on earth could only be established by government. Which was required to bolster the salvation of individuals by stamping out occasions for sin. While the list of sins was unusually extensive, the PMPs, post-millennial Pietists, 
stressed in particular the suppression of demon rum, which clouds men's minds to prevent them from achieving salvation. Slavery, which prevented the enslaved from achieving such salvation. Any activities on the Sabbath except praying or reading the Bible. And any activities of the Antichrist in the Vatican, the Pope of Rome, and his conscious and dedicated agents who constituted the Catholic Church. The Yankees who particularly embraced this view were an ethnocultural group descending from the original Puritans of Massachusetts, and who, beginning in rural New England, moved westward and settled upstate New York, the burned-over district, northern Ohio, northern Indiana, northern Illinois, and neighboring areas. As early as the Puritan days, the Yankees were eager to coerce themselves and their neighbors. The first American public schools were set up in New England to inculcate obedience and civic virtue in their charges. Footnote. Those two great ideological and political opponents of the late 1880s and early 1890s, Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison, embodied this battle within the Presbyterian Church. Cleveland, an old-fashioned Calvinist Presbyterian from Buffalo, was the son of a Calvinist clergyman, a Democrat, a wet on liquor, and a personal bon vivant. The prim Dower Harrison was a Pietist Presbyterian from Indiana and a Republican. End footnote. The concentration of the new statists in Yankee areas was nothing short of remarkable. From the Reverend Finney on down to virtually all the progressive intellectuals who would set the course of America in the years after 1900, they were, almost to a man, born in Yankee areas. Rural New England and their migrant descendants in upstate and western New York, northeastern Ohio, the Western Reserve, originally owned by Connecticut and settled early by Connecticut Yankees, and the northern reaches of Indiana and Illinois. Almost to a man, they were raised in very strict, Sabbatarian homes, and often their father was a lay preacher and their mother the daughter of a preacher. Footnote. Rural because urban New England centres such as Boston had gone Unitarian during the 18th century. The Unitarians, on the other hand, were allied to the PMPs in advocating a more secular version of the coercive utopian kingdom to be achieved by government. End footnote. It is very likely that the propensity of the Yankees in particular to take so quickly to the coercive, crusading aspect of the new Protestant pietism was a heritage of the values, mores and world outlook of their Puritan ancestors and of the community they had established in New England. Indeed, we have in recent years been strikingly reminded of the three very different and clashing groups, all Protestants, who came from very different regions of Great Britain, and who settled in different regions of North America. The coercive, community-oriented Puritans from East Anglia, who settled in New England, the manor and plantation-oriented Anglian Cavaliers who came from Wessex and settled in the Tidewater South, and the feisty, individualistic, Presbyterian borderers who came from the border country in northern England and southern Scotland and who settled in the southern and western backcountry. Footnote. Whether or not these borderers or Scotch-Irish are Celtic is controversial, with David Hackett Fisher denying it, 
and most other authorities, notably Grady McWhiney and Forrest MacDonald, maintaining this thesis. End footnote. The Reverend Charles Grandison Finney, who essentially launched the pietist sweep, was virtually a paradigmatic Yankee. He was born in Connecticut. At an early age, his father joined the emigration by taking his family to a western New York farm on the Ontario frontier. In 1812, fully two-thirds of the 200,000 people living in western New York had been born in New England. While a nominal Presbyterian, in 1821, at the age of 29, Finney converted to the new pietism, experiencing his second baptism, his baptism of the Holy Spirit, his conversion being greatly aided by the fact that he was self-educated in religion and lacked any religious training. Tossing aside the Calvinist tradition of scholarship in the Bible, Finney was able to carve out his new religion and ordain himself in his new version of the faith. Launching his remarkably successful revival movement in 1826, when he was an attorney in northeastern Ohio, his new pietism swept the Yankee areas in the East and Midwest. Finney wound up at Oberlin College in the Western Reserve area of Ohio, where he became president and transformed Oberlin into the preeminent national center for the education and dissemination of postmillennial pietism. The pietists quickly took to statist paternalism at the local and state level to try to stamp out demon rum, Sabbath activity, dancing, gambling, and other forms of enjoyment, as well as trying to outlaw or cripple Catholic parochial schools and expand public schools as a device to Protestantize Catholic children, or in the common phrase of the later 19th century, to Christianize the Catholics. But use of the national government came early as well, to try to restrict Catholic immigration in response to the Irish Catholic influx of the late 1840s, to restrict or abolish slavery, or to eliminate the sin of mail delivery on Sunday. It was therefore easy for the new pietists to expand their consciousness to favour paternalism in national economic affairs. Using big government to create a perfect economy seemed to parallel employing such government to stamp out sin and create a perfect society. Early on, the PMPs advocated government intervention to aid business interests and to protect American industry from the competition of foreign imports. In addition, they tended to advocate public works and government creation of mass purchasing power through paper money and central banking. The PMPs therefore quickly gravitated toward the statist Whig Party and then to the vehemently anti-Catholic American or Know-Nothing Party, finally culminating in all-out support for the Republican Party, the Party of Great Moral Ideas. On the other hand, all religious groups that did not want to be subjected to the PMP theocracy, Catholics, High Church or liturgical German Lutherans, old-fashioned Calvinists, secularists, and southern personal salvationists, naturally gravitated toward the laissez-faire political party, the Democrats. Becoming known as the Party of Personal Liberty, the Democrats championed small government and laissez-faire on the national economic level as well, including separation of government and business, free trade, and hard money, 
which included the separation of government from the banking system. The Democrat Party was the champion of laissez-faire, minimal government and decentralization from its inception until its takeover by the ultra-pietist Bryanite forces in 1896. After 1830, the laissez-faire democratic constituency was greatly strengthened by an influx of religious groups opposed to Yankee theocracy. If post-millennial pietism provided a crucial impetus towards state dictation over society and the economy, another vital force on behalf of the partnership of government and industry was the zeal of businessmen and industrialists eager to jump on the bandwagon of state privilege. Vital to the Republican coalition, then, were the big railroads, dependent on government subvention and heavily in debt, and the Pennsylvania iron and steel industry, almost chronically inefficient and in perpetual need of high tariffs to protect them from import competition. When industrialists, as was often the case, were at one and the same time Yankee post-millennial pietists seeking to impose a perfect society, and also inefficient industrialists seeking government aid, the fusion of religious doctrine and economic interest became a powerful force in guiding their actions. 3. Yankee Women, the Driving Force Of all the Yankee activists in behalf of statist reform, perhaps the most formidable was the Legion of Yankee Women, in particular those of middle or upper class background, and especially spinsters whose busybody inclinations were not fettered by the responsibilities of home and hearth. One of the PMP's favourite reforms was to bring about women's suffrage, which was accomplished in various states and localities long before a constitutional amendment imposed it on the entire country. One major reason, it was obvious to everyone that, given the chance to vote, most Yankee women would be quick to troop to the ballot box, whereas Catholic women believed their place to be at home and with the family, and would not bother about political considerations. Hence, women's suffrage was a way of weighting the total vote toward the post-millennialists and away from the Catholics and High Church Lutherans. The impact of the revivalist transformation of Protestantism in the 1820s and 1830s upon female activism is well described by the feminist historian Carol Smith Rosenberg. Quote, Women's religious movements multiplied. Female revival converts formed holy bands to assist the evangelist in his revival efforts. They gathered with him at dawn to help plan the day's revival strategies. They posted bills in public places urging attendance at revival meetings, pressured merchants to close their shops and hold prayer services, and buttonholed sinful men and prayed with them. Although merely women, they led prayer vigils in their home that extended far into the night. These women, for the most part, were married, respected members of respectable communities. Yet, transformed by millennial zeal, they disregarded virtually every restraint upon women's behaviour. They self-righteously commanded sacred space as their own. They boldly carried Christ's message to the streets, even into the new urban slums. End quote. The early suffragette leaders began as ardent prohibitionists, 
the major political concern of the post-millennial Protestants. They were all Yankees, centering their early activities in the Yankee heartland of upstate New York. Thus, Susan Brownell Anthony, born in Massachusetts, was the founder of the first women's temperance prohibitionist society in upstate New York in 1852. Susan B. Anthony's co-leader in generating suffragette and prohibitionist women's activities, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, came from Johnston, New York, in the heart of the Yankee Burned Over district. Organized prohibitionism began to flourish in the winter of 1873 to 74, when spontaneous women's crusades surged into the streets, dedicated to direct action to closing down the saloons. Beginning in Ohio, thousands of women took part in such actions during that winter. After the spontaneous violence died down, the women organized the Women's Christian Temperance Union (WCTU). In Fredonia, near Buffalo, New York, in the summer of 1874, spreading like wildfire, the WCTU became the outstanding force for decades on behalf of the outlawry of liquor. What is less well known is that the WCTU was not a one-issue organization. By the 1880s, the WCTU was pushing throughout states and localities for a comprehensive statist program. For government intervention and social welfare, these measures included the outlawing of licensed brothels and red light districts, imposition of a maximum eight-hour working day, the establishment of government facilities for neglected and dependent children, government shelters for children of working mothers, government recreation facilities for the urban poor, federal aid to education, mothers' education by government. And government vocational training for women. In addition, the WCTU pushed for the new kindergarten movement, which sought to lower the age when children began to come under the purview of teachers and other educational professionals. Four, progressives and the gradual secularization of post-millennial Pietism, Ely, Dewey, and Commons. A critical but largely untold story in American political history is the gradual but inexorable secularization of Protestant post-millennial Pietism over the decades of the middle and late 19th century. The emphasis, almost from the beginning, was to use government to stamp out sin and to create a perfect society in order to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. Over the decades, the emphasis slowly but surely shifted more and more away from Christ and religion, which became ever vaguer and woollier, and more and more toward a social gospel, with government correcting, organizing, and eventually planning the perfect society. From paternalistic mender of social problems, government became more and more divinized, more and more seen as the leader and molder of the organic social whole. In short, Whigs, know-nothings, and Republicans were increasingly becoming progressives, who were to dominate the polity and the culture after 1900. A few of the more radical thinkers were openly socialist, with the rest content to be organic statists and collectivists. And as Marxism became increasingly popular in Europe after the 1880s, the progressives prided themselves on being organic statist middle-of-the-roaders. 
between old-fashioned dog-eat-dog laissez-faire individualism on the one hand and proletarian socialism on the other. Instead, the progressive would provide to society a third way in which big government in the service of the joint truths of science and religion would harmonize all classes into one organic whole. By the 1880s, the focus of post-millennial Christian endeavor began to shift from Oberlin College to the liberal New Theology at Andover Theological Seminary in Massachusetts. The Andover liberals, as Jean Quand points out, stressed the imminence of God in nature and society, a concept derived in part from the doctrine of evolution. Furthermore, Christian conversion came more and more to mean the gradual moral improvement of the individual. Thus, says Quant, Andover's identification of God with all the regenerating and civilizing forces in society, together with its Arminian emphasis on man's moral achievements, pointed toward an increasingly secular version of America's transfiguration. Professor Quant sums up the gradual but fateful change as a change that amounted to a secularization of the eschatological vision. As Quand writes, quote, The outpourings of the Holy Spirit, which were to usher in the kingdom of the 1850s, were replaced in the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era by advances in knowledge, culture, and ethical Christianity. Whereas evangelical Protestantism had insisted that the kingdom would come by the grace of God acting in history, and not by any natural process, the later version often substituted the providential gift of science for redeeming grace. These changes toward a more naturalistic view of the world's progress were paralleled by a changing attitude toward the agencies of redemption. The churches and benevolent societies connected with them were still considered important instruments of the coming kingdom but great significance was now attached to such impersonal messianic agencies as the natural and social sciences. The spirit of love and brotherhood was now regarded as an achievement of human evolution, with only tenuous ties to a transcendent deity. End quote. Progressive intellectuals and social and political leaders reached their apogee in a glittering cohort which, remarkably, were almost all born in precisely the year 1860, or right around it. Richard T. Ely was born on a farm in western New York, near Fredonia, in the Buffalo area. His father Ezra, a descendant of Puritan refugees from Restoration England, came from a long line of Congregationalist and Presbyterian clergy. Ezra, who had come from rural Connecticut, was a farmer whose poor soil was suited only to grow barley. Yet, as an ardent prohibitionist, he refused to give his sanction to barley, since its main consumer product was beer. Highly intense about religion, Ezra was an extreme Sabbatarian, who prohibited games or books, except the Bible, upon the Sabbath, and hated tobacco as well as liquor. Richard was highly religious, but not as focused as his father. He grew up mortified at not having had a conversion experience. He learned early to get along with wealthy benefactors, borrowing a substantial amount of money from his wealthy Columbia classmate, Edwin R. A. Seligman, of the New York investment banking family. 
graduating from Columbia in 1876, in a country where there was not yet a PhD program, Ely joined most of the economists, historians, philosophers and social scientists of his generation in travelling to Germany, the land of the PhD, for his doctorate. As in the case of his fellows, Ely was enchanted with the third way, or organic statism, that he and the others thought they found in Hegel and in German social doctrine. As luck would have it, Ely, on his return from Germany with a PhD at the young age of 28, became the first instructor in political economy at America's first graduate university, Johns Hopkins. There, Ely taught and found disciples in a glittering array of budding statist economists, social scientists and historians, some of whom were barely older than he was, including Chicago sociologist and economist Albion W. Small, born 1854, Chicago economist Edward W. Bemis, economist and sociologist Edward Ellsworth Ross, City College of New York President John H. Finley, Wisconsin historian Frederick Jackson Turner, and future president Woodrow Wilson. During the 1880s, Ely, like so many post-millennial pietists, remarkably energetic, founded the American Economic Association and ran it with an iron hand for several years. He also founded and became the first president of the Institute for Christian Sociology, which pledged to present God's kingdom as the complete ideal of human society to be realized on earth. Ely also virtually took over the summer evangelical Chautauqua movement, and his textbook Introduction to Political Economy became a bestseller, largely by being distributed through and becoming required reading for the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle for literally a half-century. In 1891, Ely founded the Christian Social Union of the Protestant Episcopal Church, along with the avowedly socialist Reverend William Dwight Porter Bliss, who was the founder of the Society of Christian Socialists. Ely was also enamoured by the socialist One Big Union, Knights of Labour, which he hailed as truly scientific and lauded in his book The Labour Movement, 1886. The Knights, however, collapsed abruptly after 1887. Discouraged about not getting a full professorship at Hopkins, Ely, moving through his old student Frederick Jackson Turner, who was teaching at Wisconsin, managed to land not only a professorship at that university in 1892, but also became director, with the highest salary on campus, of a new institute, a school of economics, political science and history. A gifted academic empire builder, he managed to acquire funding for an assistant professor, a graduate fellow, and a large library at his institute. Ely brought his favourite former students to Wisconsin, and Ely and his former and later students became the key advisers to the administration of Robert M. LaFollette, born 1855, who became the progressive governor of Wisconsin in 1900. Through La Follette, Ely and the others pioneered welfare state programs on a state level. Significantly, La Follette had gotten his start in Wisconsin politics as an ardent prohibitionist. The key to Ely's thought was that he virtually divinized the state. God, he declared, works through the state in carrying out his purposes, 
more universally than through any other institution. Once again, Professor Quant sums up Ely best. Quote, In Ely's eyes, government was the God-given instrument through which we had to work. Its preeminence as a divine instrument was based on the post-Reformation abolition of the division between the sacred and the secular, and on the state's power to implement ethical solutions to public problems. The same identification of sacred and secular enabled Ely to both divinize the state and socialize Christianity. He thought of government as God's main instrument of redemption. End quote. It must not be thought that Ely's vision was totally secular. On the contrary, the kingdom was never far from his thoughts. It was the task of the social sciences to teach the complexities of the Christian duty of brotherhood. Through such instruments as the Industrial Revolution, the universities and the churches, through the fusion of religion and social science, there will arrive, Ely believed, the new Jerusalem, which we are all eagerly awaiting. And then the earth will become a new earth, and all its cities, cities of God. And that kingdom, according to Ely, was approaching rapidly. A striking example of the secularization of a post-millennial progressive leader is the famed founder of pragmatist philosophy and progressive education, the prophet of atheistic higher democracy, philosopher John Dewey, born 1859. It is little known that in an early stage of his seemingly endless career, Dewey was an ardent preacher of post-millennialism and the coming of the kingdom. Addressing the Students' Christian Association at Michigan, Dewey argued that the biblical notion of the kingdom of God come to earth was a valuable truth which had been lost to the world. But now the growth of modern science and the communication of knowledge has made the world ripe for the temporal realization of the kingdom of God, the common incarnate life, the purpose animating all men and binding them together into one harmonious whole of sympathy. Science and democracy, exhorted Dewey, marching together, reconstruct religious truth. And with this truth, religion could help bring about the spiritual unification of humanity, the realization of the brotherhood of man, all that Christ called the kingdom of God on earth. For Dewey, democracy was a spiritual fact. Indeed, it is the means by which the revelation of truth is carried on. It was only in democracy, asserted Dewey, that the community of ideas and interest through community of action, that the incarnation of God in man, man that is to say as an organ of universal truth, becomes a living, present thing. Dewey concluded with a call to action. Quote, Can anyone ask for better or more inspiring work? Surely to fuse into one the social and religious motive, to break down the barriers of pharisaism and self-assertion, which isolate religious thought and conduct from the life of man, to realize the state as one commonwealth of truth, surely this is a cause worth battling for. End quote. Thus, with Dewey, the final secularization is at hand. The truth of Jesus Christ was the unfolding truth brought to man by modern science and modern democracy. Clearly it was but one small step for John Dewey 
as well as for other similarly situated progressives, to abandon Christ and to keep his ardent faith in government, science and democracy to bring about an atheized kingdom of God on earth. Footnote Dewey, as H. L. Mencken put it, was born of indestructible Vermont stock and a man of the highest bearable sobriety. Dewey was the son of a small-town Vermont grocer. His mother was an ardent evangelical congregationalist. End footnote. If Richard T. Ely was the leading PMP and progressive in economics and the social sciences, the leading progressive activist was his indefatigable and beloved number two man, Professor John Rogers Commons, born 1862. Commons was a student of Ely at Johns Hopkins Graduate School, but even though he flunked out of graduate school, he continued ever afterward as Ely's right-hand man and perpetual activist, becoming Professor of Economics at the University of Wisconsin. Commons was a major force in the National Civic Federation, which was the leading progressive organization pushing for statism in the country. The National Civic Federation was a big business financed outfit that wrote and lobbied for model legislation on a state and federal level favoring state unemployment insurance, federal regulation of trade, and regulation of public utilities. Further, it was the dominant force for progressive policies from 1900 until U.S. entry into World War I. Not only that, Commons was a founder and the leading force in the even more explicitly leftist American Association for Labor Legislation, AALL, powerful from 1907 on in pushing for public works, minimum wages, maximum hours, and pro-union legislation. The AALL, financed by Rockefeller and Morgan industrialists, was highly influential in the 1920s and 1930s. The executive secretary of the AALL was for many decades John B. Andrews, who began as a graduate assistant of Commons at the University of Wisconsin. John R. Commons was a descendant of the famed English Puritan martyr John Rogers. His parents moved from rural Vermont to the heavily Yankee, rapidly PMP, Western Reserve section of northeastern Ohio. His father was a farmer, his extremely energetic mother a schoolteacher and graduate of the virtual PMP headquarters, Oberlin College. The family moved to northeastern Indiana. Commons's mother, the financial mainstay of the family, was a highly religious, pietist Presbyterian and an ardent, lifelong Republican and Prohibitionist. Ma Commons was anxious for her son to become a minister, and when Commons enrolled in Oberlin in 1882, his mother went with him, mother and son founding and editing a Prohibitionist magazine at Oberlin. Although a Republican, Commons voted Prohibitionist in the national election of 1884. Commons felt himself lucky to be at Oberlin, and to be in at the beginnings there of the Anti-Saloon League, the single-issue pressure group that was to become the greatest single force in bringing prohibition to America. The national organiser of the League was Howard H. Russell, then a theological student at Oberlin. At Oberlin, Commons found a beloved mentor, James Munro, Professor of Political Science and History, 
who managed to get two Oberlin trustees to finance Commons graduate studies at Johns Hopkins. Monroe himself was a deeply religious PMP, a protectionist and prohibitionist, and for 30 years had been a Republican congressman from the Western Reserve. Commons was graduated from Oberlin in 1888 and proceeded to Johns Hopkins. Before going to Wisconsin, Commons taught at several colleges, including Oberlin, Indiana University and Syracuse, and helped found the American Institute for Christian Sociology on behalf of Christian Socialism. Not only did Commons go on to Wisconsin to become the major inspirer and activist of the Wisconsin Idea, helping to set up the welfare and regulatory state in that region, several of his doctoral students at Wisconsin were to become highly influential in the Roosevelt New Deal. Selig Perlman, who was appointed to the Commons chair at Wisconsin, was, following his mentor, the major theoretician for the policies and practices of Commons' beloved American Federation of Labour. And two of Commons' other Wisconsin students, Arthur J. Altermeyer and Edwin E. Witt, were both high officials in the Industrial Commission of Wisconsin, founded by Commons to administer that state's pro-union legislation. Both Altermeyer and Witt went on from there to be major founders of Franklin Roosevelt's social security legislation. 5. Yankee Women Progressives The Ely's, Commonses and Dewey's might have been more notable, but the Yankee Women Progressives provided the shock troops of the progressive movement, and hence the burgeoning welfare state. As in the case of the males, gradual but irresistible secularization set in over the decades. The abolitionist and slightly later cohort were fanatically post-millennial Christian, but the later progressive cohort, born as we have seen around 1860, were no less fanatical but more secular and less Christian kingdom-oriented. The progression was virtually inevitable. After all, if your activism as a Christian evangelist had virtually nothing to do with Christian creed or liturgy or even personal reform, but was focused exclusively in using the force of government to shape up everyone, stamp out sin and usher in a perfect society, if government is really God's major instrument of salvation, then the role of Christianity in one's practical activity began to fade into the background. Christianity became taken for granted, a background buzz. One's practical activity was designed to use the government to stamp out liquor, poverty, or whatever is defined as sin, and to impose one's own values and principles on the society. Not only that, but by the late 19th century, as the 1860 cohort came of age, there arose greater and more specialised opportunities for female activism on behalf of statism and government intervention. The older groups, the women's crusades, were short-run activities, and hence could rely on short bursts of energy by married women. However, as female activism became professionalised and became specialised into social work and settlement houses, there was little room left for any women except upper-class and upper-middle-class spinsters, who answered the call in droves. The settlement houses, it must be emphasised, were not simply centres for private help to the poor, 
they were quite consciously spearheads for social change and government intervention and reform. The most prominent of the Yankee progressive social workers and emblematic of the entire movement was Jane Adams, born 1860. Her father, John H. Adams, was a pietist Quaker who settled in northern Illinois, constructed a sawmill, invested in railroads and banks, and became one of the wealthiest men in northern Illinois. John H. Adams was a lifelong Republican who attended the founding meeting of the Republican Party at Ripon, Wisconsin in 1854 and served as a Republican state senator for 16 years. Graduating from one of the first all-women colleges, the Rockford Female Seminary in 1881, Jane Adams was confronted by the death of her beloved father. Intelligent, upper-class and energetic, she was faced with the dilemma of what to do with her life. She had no interest in men, so marriage was not in the cards. Indeed, in her lifetime she seems to have had several intense lesbian affairs. Footnote Recent feminist historians have been happy to overcome the reluctance of older historians and have proudly outed the lesbianism of Adams and many other spinster Yankee progressive activists of that epoch. Probably these feminists are right, and the pervasive lesbianism of the movement is crucial to a historical understanding of why this movement got underway. At the very least, they could not simply follow other women and make a career of marriage and homemaking. End footnote. After eight years of indecision, Jane Addams decided to devote herself to social work and founded the famed settlement house Hull House in the Chicago slums in 1889. Jane was inspired by reading the highly influential English art critic John Ruskin, who was an Oxford professor, Christian socialist, and bitter critic of laissez-faire capitalism. Ruskin was the charismatic leader of Christian socialism in England, which was influential in the ranks of the Anglican clergy. One of his disciples was the historian Arnold Toynbee, in whose honour Canon Samuel A. Barnett, another Ruskinian, founded the settlement house of Toynbee Hall in London in 1884. In 1888, Jane Addams went to London to observe Toynbee Hall, and there she met Canon W.H. Fremantle, close friend and mentor of Canon Barnett, and this visit settled the matter, inspiring Jane Addams to go back to Chicago to found Hull House, along with her former classmate and intimate lesbian friend Ellen Gates Starr. The major difference between Toynbee Hall and its American counterparts is that the former was staffed by male social workers, who stayed for a few years and then moved on to build their careers, whereas the American settlement houses almost all constituted lifelong careers for spinster ladies. Jane Addams was able to use her upper-class connections to acquire fervent supporters, many of them women who became intimate and probably lesbian friends of Miss Addams. One staunch financial supporter was Mrs. Louise de Coven Bowen, born 1859, whose father John de Coven, a Chicago banker, had amassed a great fortune. Mrs. Bowen became an intimate friend of Jane Adams. She also became the treasurer and even built a house for the settlement. Other society women supporters of Hull House included Mary Rosett Smith, who had a lesbian affair with Jane Adams 
and Mrs. Russell Wright, the mother of the future renowned architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Mary Rossett Smith, indeed, was able to replace Ellen Starr in Jane Addams's lesbian affection. She did so in two ways: by being totally submissive and self-deprecating to the militant Miss Addams, and by supplying copious financial support to Hull House. Mary and Jane proclaimed themselves married to each other. One of Jane Addams's close colleagues and probable lesbian lover at Hull House was the tough, truculent Julia Clifford Lathrop, born 1858, whose father William had migrated from upstate New York to Rockford in northern Illinois. Footnote: It is all too clear that in her 1910 autobiography. Jane Addams lied by ennobling her motivation for founding Hull House, claiming that it was the sheer horror of watching a bullfight in Spain. None of that alleged horror shines through her letters at the time. End footnote. William Lathrop, an attorney, was a descendant of the eminent English Nonconformist and Yankee minister, the Reverend John Lathrop. William became a trustee of the Rockford Female Seminary. And was elected Republican U.S. Senator from Illinois. His daughter Julia graduated from the seminary earlier than Adams, and then went on to Vassar College. Julia Lathrop moved to Hull House in 1890, and from there developed a lifelong career in social work and government service. Julia founded the first juvenile court in the country in Chicago in 1899. And then moved on to become the first female member of the Illinois State Board of Charities and president of the National Conference of Social Work. In 1912, Lathrop was appointed by President Taft as head of the first U.S. Children's Bureau. Ensconced in the federal government, the Children's Bureau became an outpost of the welfare state and social work, engaging in activities that eerily and unpleasantly. Remind one of the modern era. Thus, the Children's Bureau became an unremitting centre of propaganda and advocacy of federal subsidies, programmes, and propaganda on behalf of the nation's mothers and children—a kind of grisly foreshadowing of family values and Hillary Rodham Clinton's concerns for the children and the Children's Defence Fund. Thus, the Children's Bureau proclaimed Baby Week in March 1916. And again in 1917, and designated the entire year 1918 as the Year of the Child. After World War One, Lathrop and the Children's Bureau lobbied for and pushed through Congress in late 1921 the Shepherd Towner Maternity and Infancy Protection Act, providing federal funds to states that set up child hygiene or child welfare bureaus. As well as providing public instruction in maternal and infant care by nurses and physicians, here we had the beginnings of socialized medicine as well as the socialized family. This public instruction was provided in home conferences and health centres, and to healthcare professionals in each area. It was also chillingly provided that these states, under the carrot of federal subsidy, would remove children from the homes of parents providing. Inadequate home care, the standard of adequacy to be determined, of course, by the government and its alleged professionals. There was also to be compulsory birth registration for every baby, and federal aid for maternity and infancy. 
Julia Lathrop was instrumental in persuading Shepherd Towner to change the original bill from a welfare measure to those unable to pay into a bill designed to encompass everyone. As Lathrop put it, The bill is designed to emphasise public responsibility for the protection of life, just as already through our public schools we recognise public responsibility in the education of children. The logic of cumulative government intervention was irresistible. It's unfortunate that no one turned the logic the other way and instituted a drive for the abolition of public schooling. If none of the opponents of Shepherd Tower went so far as to call for the abolition of public schooling, James A. Reed, Democrat Missouri, the staunch laissez-faire senator, did well enough. Caustically, Senator Reed declared that it is now proposed to turn the control of the mothers of the land over to a few single ladies holding government jobs in Washington. We would better reverse the proposal and provide for a committee of mothers to take charge of the old maids and teach them how to acquire a husband and have babies of their own. Perhaps Senator Reed thereby cut to the heart of the motivation of these Yankee progressives. At about the same time that Jane Addams and friends were founding Hull House, settlement houses were being founded in New York and Boston, also by spinster Yankee females, and also under the inspiration of Toynbee Hall. Actually, the founder of the first ephemeral settlement in New York was the male Stanton Coit, born 1857, born in northern Ohio to a prosperous merchant and a descendant of the Puritan Massachusetts Yankee John Coit. Coit obtained a PhD from the University of Berlin, worked at Toynbee Hall, and then established the short-lived Neighborhood Guild settlement in New York in 1886. It failed the following year. Inspired by this example, however, three Yankee lesbians followed by founding the College Settlement Association in 1887, which established college settlements in New York in 1889 and in Boston and Philadelphia several years later. The leading female founder was Vida Dutton Scudder, born 1861, a wealthy Bostonian and daughter of a congregational missionary to India. After graduating from Smith College in 1884, Vida studied literature at Oxford and became a disciple of Ruskin and a Christian socialist, ending up teaching at Wellesley College for over 40 years. Vida Scudder became an Episcopalian, a Frank Socialist, and a member of the Women's Trade Union League. The two other founders of the college settlements were Catherine Coman, born 1857, and her longtime lesbian lover, Catherine Lee Bates. Catherine Coman was born in northern Ohio to a farmer who had been an ardent abolitionist and teacher in upstate New York and who moved to a farm in Ohio as a result of wounds suffered in the Civil War. Graduating from the University of Michigan, Coman taught history and political economy at Wellesley, and later became chairman of the Wellesley Department of Economics. Coman and Bates travelled to Europe to study and promote social insurance in the United States. Catherine Bates was a professor of English at Wellesley. Coman became a leader of the National Consumers League, and of the Women's Trade Union League. The founder of the concept of the Children's Bureau, Florence Kelly, who lobbied for both the Children's Bureau and Shepherd Towner, 
was one of the few women activists who was in some way unique and not paradigmatic. In many ways, she did share the traits of other progressive ladies. She was born in 1859. Her father was a wealthy, lifelong Republican congressman from Philadelphia, William D. Kelly, whose devotion to protective tariffs, especially for the Pennsylvania iron industry, was so intense as to earn him the sobriquet Pig Iron Kelly. A Protestant Irishman, he was an abolitionist and radical Republican. Florence Kelly differed from her colleagues on two counts. One, she was the only one who was an outright Marxist, and two, she was married and not a lesbian. However, in the long run, these differences did not matter very much, for Kelly's open Marxism was not, in practice, very different in policy conclusions from the less systematic Fabian socialism or progressivism of her sisterhood. As such, she was able to take her place at the end of a spectrum that was not really very far from the mainstream of non-Marxian ladies. On the second count, Florence Kelly managed to dispose of her husband in fairly short order, and to palm off the raising of her three children onto doting friends. Thus, home and hearth proved no obstacle to Florence Kelly's militancy. Graduating from Cornell, Florence went to study at the University of Zurich. There, she promptly became a Marxist and translated Engels's Condition of the Working Class in England into English. In Zurich, Florence met and married a Russian Jewish Marxist medical student, Lazar Wisniewski, in 1884, moving with her husband to New York and having three children by 1887. In New York, Florence promptly formed the New York Consumers League and got a law passed for inspecting women in factories. In 1891, Florence fled her husband with her kids and went to Chicago for reasons that remain unknown to her biographers. In Chicago, she gravitated inevitably to Hull House, where she stayed for a decade. During this time, the large, volcanic, and blustery Florence Kelly. Helped to radicalize Jane Adams. Kelly lobbied successfully in Illinois for a law creating a legal maximum eight-hour workday for women. She then became the first chief factory inspector in the state of Illinois, gathering about her an all-socialist staff. Florence Kelly's husband, Dr. Wisniewski, had been pushed off the pages of history, but what about her children? While Florence went about the task of socializing Illinois, she was able to pass off the raising of her children onto her friends Henry Demarest Lloyd, prominent leftist Chicago Tribune journalist, and his wife, the daughter of one of the owners of the Tribune. In 1899, Florence Kelly returned to New York, where she resided for the next quarter century at what was by then the most prominent settlement house in New York City. The Henry Street settlement on the Lower East Side. There, Kelly founded the National Consumers League and was the chief lobbyist for the Federal Children's Bureau and for Shepherd Towner. She battled for minimum wage laws and maximum hours laws for women, fought for an equal rights amendment to the Constitution, and was a founding member of the NAACP. When accused of being a Bolshevik in the 1920s. Florence Kelly disingenuously pointed to her Philadelphia blue blood heritage. How could someone of such a family possibly be a Marxist? Another prominent and very wealthy Yankee woman in New York City 
was Mary Melinda Kingsbury Simkovich, born 1867. Born in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, Mary Melinda was the daughter of Isaac Kingsbury, a prominent Congregationalist and Republican merchant. She was the niece of an executive of the Pennsylvania Railroad and a cousin of the head of Standard Oil of California. Graduating from Boston University, Mary Melinda toured Europe with her mother, studied in Germany, and was deeply moved by socialism and Marxism. Becoming engaged to Vladimir Simkovich, a Russian scholar, she joined him in New York when he acquired a post at Columbia. Before marrying Simkovich, Mary Melinda became head resident of the college settlement in New York, studied socialism further, and learned Yiddish so as to be able to communicate better with her Lower East Side neighbours. Even after marrying Simkovich and acquiring two children, Mary Melinda founded her own settlement at Greenwich House, joined the New York Consumers League and Women's Trade Union League, and fought for government old-age pensions and public housing. Particularly important for New York's statism and social reform were the wealthy and socially prominent Dreer family, which gave rise to several active daughters. The Dreers were German-Americans, but they could just as well have been Yankees, since they were fervent, if not fanatical, German evangelical pietists. Their father, Theodore Dreher, was an emigrant from Bremen, who had risen to become a successful merchant. During the Civil War, he returned to Bremen and married his younger cousin, Dorothy Dreher, the daughter of an evangelical minister. Every morning, the four Dreher daughters and their brother, Edward, born 1872, were swathed in Bible readings and the singing of hymns. In 1898, Father Dreher died, leaving several million dollars to his family. Eldest daughter Margaret, born 1868, was able to dominate her siblings into engaging in radical and philanthropic activities at her beck and call. Footnote. The one sister who slightly broke the Dreher mould was Catherine, born 1877, an artist and patroness of modern art who, interested in organic philosophy, became pro-Nazi during the 1930s. End footnote. To dramatise her altruism and alleged sacrifice, Margaret Dreyer habitually wore shoddy clothes. Active in the Consumers League, Margaret joined and heavily financed the new Women's Trade Union League in late 1904 joined by her sister Mary. Soon, Margaret was president of the New York WTUL and treasurer of the national WTUL. Indeed, Margaret Dreyer presided over the WTUL from 1907 until 1922. In the spring of 1905, Margaret Dreyer met and married the Chicago-based progressive adventurer Raymond Robbins, born 1873. They had met, appropriately enough, when Robbins delivered a lecture on the social gospel at an evangelical church in New York. The Robbinses became the country's premier progressive couple. Margaret's activities scarcely slowed down, since Chicago was at least as active a center for the welfare reformers as New York. Raymond Robbins had a checkered career as a wanderer and nomad. Born in Florida, deserted by his father and absent a mother, Robbins wandered around the country and managed to earn a law degree in California, where he became a pro-union progressive. 
Prospecting gold in Alaska, he saw a vision of a flaming cross in the Alaska wilds and became a social gospel-oriented minister. Moving to Chicago in 1901, Robbins became a leading settlement house worker, associating, of course, with Hull House and St. Jane Adams. Two years after the Robbins-Dreyer marriage, Sister Mary Dreyer came to Robbins and confessed her overwhelming love. Robbins persuaded Mary to transmute her shameful secret passion on the altar of leftist social reform, and the two of them engaged in a lifelong secret correspondence based on their two-person Order of the Flaming Cross. Perhaps the most important function of Margaret Dreyer for the cause was her success in bringing top female wealth into financial and political support of the leftist and welfare state programs of the Women's Trade Union League. Included among WTUL supporters were Anne Morgan, daughter of J. Pierpont Morgan, Abby Aldrich Rockefeller, daughter of John D. Rockefeller Jr., Dorothy Whitney Strait, heiress to the Rockefeller-oriented Whitney family, Mary Eliza McDowell, born 1854, a Hull House alumnus whose father owned a steel mill in Chicago, and the very wealthy Anita McCormick Blaine, daughter of Cyrus McCormick, inventor of the Mechanical Reaper, who had already been inducted into the movement by Jane Adams. We should not leave the Chicago scene without noting a crucial activist and academic transition to the next generation. An important academic wealthy spinster was Sophonisba Breckenridge, born 1866, who came from a prominent Kentucky family and was the great-granddaughter of a U.S. senator. She, too, was not a Yankee, but she was pretty clearly a lesbian. Unhappy as a lawyer in Kentucky, Sophonisba went to the University of Chicago Graduate School and became the first woman Ph.D. in political science in 1901. She continued to teach social science and social work at the University of Chicago for the rest of her career, becoming the mentor and probable long-time lesbian companion of Edith Abbott, born 1876. Edith Abbott, born in Nebraska, had been secretary of the Boston Trade Union League and had studied at the London School of Economics, where she was strongly influenced by the Webbs, leaders of Fabian Socialism. She lived and worked, predictably, at a London settlement house. Then Edith studied for a PhD in economics at the University of Chicago, which she earned in 1905. Becoming an instructor at Wellesley, Edith soon joined her slightly younger sister Grace at Hull House in 1908, where the two sisters lived for the next dozen years, Edith as social research director of Hull House. In the early 1920s, Edith Abbott became dean of the University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration and co-edited the school's Social Service Review with her friend and mentor, Sophonisba Breckenridge. Grace Abbott, two years younger than Edith, took more of an activist route. The Abbott sister's mother had come from upstate New York and graduated from Rockford Female Seminary. Their father was an Illinois lawyer who became lieutenant governor of Nebraska. Grace Abbott, also living at Hull House and a close friend of Jane Adams, became Julia Clifford Lathrop's assistant at the Federal Children's Bureau in 1917, and in 1921 succeeded her mentor Lathrop as head of the Children's Bureau.
If the female social reform activists were almost all Yankee, by the late 19th century Jewish women were beginning to add their leaven to the lump. Of the crucial 1860s cohort, the most important Jewess was Lillian D. Wald, born 1867. Born to an upper-middle-class German and Polish Jewish family in Cincinnati, Lillian and her family soon moved to Rochester, where she became a nurse. She then organised in the Lower East Side of New York the Nurses' Settlement, which was soon to become the famed Henry Street Settlement. It was Lillian Wald who first suggested a federal children's bureau to President Theodore Roosevelt in 1905, and who led the agitation for a federal constitutional amendment outlawing child labour. While she was not a Yankee, Lillian Wald continued in the dominant tradition by being a lesbian, forming a long-term lesbian relationship with her associate, Lavinia Dock. Wald, while not wealthy herself, had an uncanny ability to gain financing for Henry Street, including top Jewish financiers such as Jacob Schiff and Mrs. Solomon Loeb of the Wall Street investment banking firm of Kuhn Loeb, and Julius Rosenwald, then head of Sears Roebuck. Also prominent in financing Henry Street was the Millbank Fund, of the Rockefeller-affiliated family who owned the Borden Milk Company. Rounding out the important contingent of socialist activist Jews were the four Goldmark sisters, Helen, Pauline, Josephine and Alice. Their father had been born in Poland, became a physician in Vienna and was a member of the Austrian parliament. Fleeing to the United States after the failed revolution of 1848, Dr. Goldmark became a physician and chemist, became wealthy by inventing percussion caps, and helped organise the Republican Party in the 1850s. The Goldmarks settled in Indiana. Dr. Goldmark died in 1881, leaving eldest daughter Helen as the head of the family. Helen married the eminent Felix Adler, philosopher and founder of the Society for Ethical Culture in New York, a kind of Jewish Unitarianism. Alice married the eminent Boston Jewish lawyer, Louis Dembetz Brandeis helping to radicalise Brandeis from moderate classical liberal to socialistic progressive. Pauline, born 1874, after graduating from Bryn Mawr in 1896, remained single, did graduate work at Columbia and Barnard in botany, zoology and sociology, and then became assistant secretary of the New York Consumers League. Even more successful an activist was Josephine Clara Goldmark, born 1877 who graduated from Bryn Mawr in 1898, did graduate work in education at Barnard, and then became publicity secretary of the National Consumers League and author of the NCL's annual handbooks. In 1908, Josephine became chairman of the new NCL Committee on Legislation, and she, her sister Pauline and Florence Kelly, along with Alice, persuaded Brandeis to write his famed Brandeis Brief in the case of Muller v. Oregon, 1908, claiming that the Oregon Maximum Hours Law for Women was constitutional. In 1919, Josephine Goldmark continued her rise by becoming secretary of the Rockefeller Foundation's Committee for the Study of Nursing Education. Josephine Goldmark culminated her career by writing the first hagiographical biography of her close friend and mentor in socialistic activism, Florence Kelly.
Six, the New Deal. It was not long before these progressives and social reformers exerted an impact on American national politics. The Progressive Party was launched in 1912 by the Morgans. The party was headed by Morgan partner George W. Perkins in a successful attempt to nominate Theodore Roosevelt and thereby destroy President William Howard Taft, who had broken with his predecessor Roosevelt's pro-Morgan policies. The Progressive Party included all the spearheads of this statist coalition: academic progressives, Morgan businessmen, social gospel Protestant ministers, and of course our subjects, the leading progressive social workers. Thus, delegates to the National Progressive Convention of 1912 in New York City included Jane Adams, Raymond Robbins, and Lillian D. Wald. As well as Henry Moskowitz of the New York Society of Ethical Culture and Mary Kingsbury Simcovich of New York's Greenwich House, true to its feminist stance, the Progressive Party was also the first, except for the Prohibition Party, to include women delegates to the convention, and the first to name a woman elector, Helen J. Scott of Wisconsin. After the success of the Progressive Party in the 1912 elections. The social workers and social scientists who had flooded into the party were convinced that they were bringing their pristine values, or rather non-values, of science to political affairs. Their statist proposals were scientific, and any resistance to such measures was therefore narrow and opposed to the spirit of science and social welfare. In its permanent organization of 1913. The Progressive Party adopted a plan of work proposed by Jane Adams just after the election. Its major division was Progressive Science, headed by New York social worker, attorney, and sociologist Francis A. Keller. Assisting Francis Keller as director of the Legislative Reference Bureau, a department of the Progressive Science Division, was Chicago pro-union labor lawyer Donald Richburg. Later to be prominent in the Railway Labor Act of the 1920s and in the New Deal, prominent in the party's Bureau of Education was none other than John Dewey. But particularly important was the party's Department of Social and Industrial Justice, headed by Jane Adams. Under her, Henry Moskowitz headed the Men's Labor Committee, and upper-class philanthropist Mary E. McDowell headed Women's Labor. The Social Security Insurance Committee was headed by Paul Kellogg, editor of the leading social work magazine Survey, while Lillian Wald played a prominent role in the Child Welfare Committee. More important than the heady few years of the Progressive Party, however, was the accelerating accumulation of influence and power in state and federal government. In particular, the Ladies' Settlement House movement. Exerted enormous influence in shaping the New Deal, an influence that has been generally underrated. Take, for example, Mary H. Wilmarth, daughter of a gas fixture manufacturer and one of the upper-class Chicago socialites who had been brought into the group of wealthy supporters of Hull House. Soon, Mary Wilmarth was to become one of the major financial supporters of the Radical Women's Trade Union League. Mary's sister, Anne Wilmarth. Married a progressive Chicago attorney, the curmudgeon Harold L. Ikes, who soon became legal counsel for the WTUL. 
During the New Deal, Ikes was to become Franklin Roosevelt's high-profile Secretary of the Interior. At the other end of the social and ethnic spectrum from the Wilmarth sisters was the short, fiery, aggressively single Polish-American Jewess Rose Schneiderman, born 1882. One of the most frankly left-wing figures among the female agitators, Miss Schneiderman emigrated to New York in 1890 with her family and at the age of 21 became the organiser of the first women's local of the Jewish Socialist United Cloth Hat and Cap Makers Union. Rose was prominent in the WTUL and played a key role in organising the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, landing on that union's executive board. Rose Schneiderman was appointed to the Labour Advisory Board during the New Deal. From Florence Kelly's National Consumers League, there came into the New Deal Molly Dewson, who became a member of Franklin Roosevelt's Social Security Board, and Josephine Roche, who became Assistant Secretary of the Treasury in the New Deal. But there were significantly bigger fish to fry than these few lesser figures. Perhaps the leading force emerging from the women's statist social welfare movement was none other than Eleanor Roosevelt, born 1884, perhaps our first bisexual first lady. Eleanor fell under the influence of the passionately radical London prep school headmistress, Madame Mary Suvestra, who apparently set Eleanor on her lifelong course. Back in New York, Eleanor joined Florence Kelly's National Consumers League and became a lifelong reformer. During the early 1920s, Eleanor was also active in working for, and financially supporting, Lillian Wald's Henry Street Settlement and Mary Simkovich's Greenwich House. In the early 1920s, Eleanor joined the WTUL and helped to finance that radical organisation, agitating for maximum hour and minimum wage laws for women. Eleanor became a close friend of Molly Dewson, who later joined the Social Security Board, and of Rose Schneiderman. Eleanor also brought her friend, Mrs. Thomas W. Lamont, wife of the then most powerful Morgan partner, into her circle of social reform agitators. The woman who rose highest in rank during the New Deal, and who was highly influential in its social legislation, was Madame Frances Perkins, born 1880, Secretary of Labour and first female cabinet member in US history. Frances Perkins was born in Boston. Both parents, who came from Maine, were active Congregationalists, and her father, Fred, was a wealthy businessman. Frances went to Mount Holyoke in 1898, where she was elected class president. At Mount Holyoke, Frances was swept up in the intense religious pietist wave sweeping that college. Every Saturday night, each class would conduct a prayer meeting. The leader of what we might call the religious left on the campus was American history professor Annabel May Sowell, who organised the Mount Holyoke chapter of the National Consumers League, urging the abolition of child labour and of low-wage sweatshops, another prominent statist cause. It was a talk at the Mount Holyoke by the charismatic Marxist and national leader of the NLC, Florence Kelly, that changed Francis Perkins's life and brought her on the road to lifelong welfare state reform. In 1913, Frances Perkins was married, in a secret ceremony, to economist Paul C. Wilson. 
Wilson was a wealthy, cheerful, but sickly social reformer, providing Francis a good entry into municipal reform circles. While the marriage was supposed to be a love match, it is doubtful how much the marriage meant to the tough-minded Perkins. Her friend, the unmarried welfare activist Pauline Goldmark, lamented that Francis had married, but added that she did it to get it off her mind. In a gesture of early feminism, Francis refused to take her husband's name. When she was named Secretary of Labour by Franklin Roosevelt, she rented a house with a close friend, the powerful and prodigiously wealthy Mary Harriman Rumsey, daughter of the great tycoon E. H. Harriman. The Harriman family was extremely powerful in the New Deal, an influence that has been largely neglected by historians. Mary Harriman Rumsey, who had been widowed in 1922, was head of the Maternity Center Administration in New York, and under the New Deal, she was chairman of the Consumer Advisory Committee of the National Recovery Administration. The close interrelation between social work, female activism, and extremely wealthy financiers is seen in the career of Francis Perkins's close friend Henry Brewer, born 1882, who had been Wilson's best friend. Brewer was born to a physician in St. Charles, Missouri, went to the University of Chicago, attended a couple of law schools, and then did graduate work in political science at Columbia. After graduate school, Brewer resided at College Settlement and then at University Settlement, and then went on from there to become personnel director at Morgan's International Harvester Corporation. From then on, Brewer's life was a revolving door. Going from social agencies to private corporations and back again. Thus, after Harvester, Brewer founded the Bureau of Municipal Research in New York and became president of the New York City Board of Social Welfare. From there, it was on to vice president of Metropolitan Life and the CEO of Bowery Savings Bank, which became his operating base from the late 1920s until the early 1950s. But Henry Brewer still had plenty of time for good works. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, Brewer was a member of the executive committee and board of the Welfare Council of New York City, leading the drive for government unemployment relief. Brewer was appointed by Perkins as chairman of the New York State Committee on the Stabilization of Industry in 1930, which presaged the National Recovery Administration idea. Of coerced government cartelization of industry, during the New Deal, Brewer also became an advisor to the Federal Homeowners Loan Corporation, Federal Credit Association, to unemployment and old age insurance, and was an advisor to the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. Brewer also became executive assistant to William Woodin, Roosevelt's first Secretary of the Treasury. In the meanwhile, however. And this should be underscored. In addition to the high federal posts and social welfare jobs, Brewer also hobnobbed with the financial greats, becoming a director of Harriman's Union Pacific Railroad and a treasurer of Edward A. Feline's Left Liberal Twentieth Century Fund. Feline was the millionaire retailer who was the major sponsor of the legal activities of his friend and off-time counselor Louis D. Brandeis. As we can see from the case of Henry Brewer, after Yankee women pioneered in welfare and social work organizations, 
men began to follow suit. Thus, heavily influenced by their stays at Hull House, were the prominent journalist Francis Hackett, the distinguished historian and political scientist Charles A. Beard, who had also stayed at Toynbee House in London, the man who had become one of the most preeminent state cartelists in American industry, Gerard Swope, head of the Morgan's General Electric Company, and the man who would become one of the major social and labour activists for John D. Rockefeller Jr. And eventually, the Rockefellers' man as Liberal Premier of Canada for many years, William Lyon Mackenzie King. But perhaps the most important of the male social workers who became prominent in the New Deal was the man who became Roosevelt's brain truster, Secretary of Commerce, and eventually the shadowy, virtual, if unofficial, Secretary of State, Harry Lloyd Hopkins, born 1890. Hopkins, along with Eleanor Roosevelt, might be considered the leading statist social worker and activist of the 1880s cohort, the generation after the 1860s founders. Hopkins was born in Iowa, the son of a harness maker who later operated a general store. Following in the Yankee pietist social gospel mold, Hopkins's Canadian mother, Anna Pickett Hopkins, was a gospel teacher. And had become president of the Methodist Home Mission Society of Iowa. Hopkins graduated from Grinnell College in Iowa in 1912 in the social sciences. Moving to New York, Hopkins promptly married the first of three wives, the Jewish heiress Ethel Gross. Hopkins plunged into the settlement house movement, becoming a resident of the Christadora House in New York before his marriage. He then went to work for the Association for Improving the Condition of the Poor (AICP) and became a protege of the general director of the AICP, John Adams Kingsbury, born 1876. Kingsbury, no relation to the wealthy Mary Kingsbury Simcovich, had been born in rural Kansas to a father who became a socialist high school principal in Seattle. Kingsbury, on graduation from Teachers College, Columbia, in 1909, went into professional social work. During the Reform Administration of New York Mayor John Peroy Mitchell, Kingsbury became Commissioner of Public Charities in New York, and Hopkins was Executive Secretary of the Board of Child Welfare, serving on the board together with such rising social reform luminaries as Henry Brewer, Molly Dewson, and Francis Perkins. From 1917 to 1922, Hopkins administered the Red Cross in the South, returning to New York to become assistant director of the AICP, while Kingsbury became CEO of the highly influential Millbank Fund, which financed many medical and health projects and was in the Rockefeller orbit. Kingsbury funded a major project for the New York Tuberculosis Association after Hopkins became its director in 1924. Kingsbury became more and more openly radical, praising to the skies the alleged medical achievements of the Soviet Union, and agitating for compulsory health insurance in the United States. Kingsbury became such an outspoken agitator of the American Medical Association that the AMA threatened a boycott of Borden's Milk, the major business of the Milbank family, and succeeded in getting Kingsbury fired in 1935. But not to worry. Harry Hopkins promptly made his old friend Kingsbury a consultant to Hopkins's make-work 
Networks Progress Administration. How did Harry Hopkins rise from being a settlement house worker to one of the most powerful people in the New Deal? Part of the answer was his close friendship with W. Averill Harriman, scion of the Harriman family. His friendship with John Hertz, partner of the powerful investment banking firm of Lehman Brothers, and his association with the rising political leader of the powerful Rockefeller family, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller. Indeed, when Hopkins was made Secretary of Commerce in the New Deal, he offered the assistant secretary post to Nelson Rockefeller, who turned it down. Seven, the Rockefellers and social security. The Rockefellers and their intellectual and technocratic entourage were indeed central to the New Deal. In a deep sense, in fact, the New Deal itself constituted a radical displacement of the Morgans, who had dominated the financial and economic politics of the 1920s, by a coalition led by the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, Kuhn Loeb, and the Lehman Brothers investment banking firms. The Business Advisory Committee of the Department of Commerce, for example, which proved highly influential in drawing up New Deal measures, was dominated by the scion of the Harriman family, W. Averill Harriman, and by such Rockefeller satraps as Walter Teagle, head of Standard Oil of New Jersey. Here we have space to trace only the influence of the Rockefellers, allied with the Wisconsin progressives and the graduates of the settlement houses, in creating and imposing on America the social security system. Here too was the end product of a gradual but sure process of secularization of the messianic ideal of the post-millennial pietists. Perhaps it is only fitting that a movement that began with post-millennial Yankee harridans going out into the streets and trying to destroy saloons would conclude with Wisconsin social scientists, technocrats, and Rockefeller-driven experts manipulating the levers of political power to bring about a top-down revolution in the form of the welfare state. Footnote. The Rockefellers were originally ardent post-millennialist Baptists, John D. Sr. hailing originally from upstate New York. John D. Jr. headed the moral as well as the philanthropic wing of the Rockefeller Empire, heading a grand jury in New York City in 1920 dedicated to stamping out vice in that city. After World War I, however, the Rockefeller family's hand-picked personal minister, the Reverend Harry Emerson Fosdick, spearheaded the drive of liberal Protestantism, a secularized version of post-millennialism, in order to repel a rising tide of pre-millennialist fundamentalism in the church. Harry Fosdick became head of the Federal Council of Churches of Christ, the mainstream liberal Protestant organization. In the meanwhile, John D. Jr. made Fosdick's brother, Raymond Blaine Fosdick, head of the Rockefeller Foundation, and eventually John D. Jr.'s official biographer. Fosdick had been a settlement house worker. The Fosdicks were born in Buffalo to a New England Yankee family. End footnote. Social security began in 1934, when President Franklin Roosevelt commissioned a triad of his top officials to select the membership of a Committee on Economic Security, CES which would draw up the legislation for the social security system. The three officials were Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins, 
Director of the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, Harry Hopkins, and Secretary of Agriculture, Henry A. Wallace. The most important of this triad was Perkins, whose department came closest to jurisdiction over Social Security, and who presented the administration's viewpoints at congressional hearings. Perkins and the others decided to entrust the all-important task to Arthur Altmeyer, a commons disciple at Wisconsin, who had been secretary of the Wisconsin Industrial Commission and had administered Wisconsin's system of unemployment relief. When Roosevelt imposed the Corporatist Collectivist National Recovery Administration, NRA, in 1933, Altmeyer was made director of the NRA Labor Compliance Division. Corporatist businessmen heartily approved of Altmeyer's performance on the task, notably Marion Folsom, head of Eastman Kodak and one of the leading members of the Business Advisory Council. Altmeyer's first choice to become chairman of the CES was none other than Dr. Bryce Stewart, Director of Research for the Industrial Relations Councillors, IRC. The IRC had been set up in the early 1920s by the Rockefellers, specifically John D. Jr., in charge of ideology and philanthropy for the Rockefeller Empire. The IRC was the flagship scholarly and activist outfit to promote a new form of corporatist labour management cooperation, as well as promoting pro-union and pro-welfare state policies in industry and government. The IRC also set up influential industrial relations departments in Ivy League universities, notably Princeton. Bryce Stewart, however, was hesitant about so openly taking charge of the social security effort on behalf of the IRC and the Rockefellers. He preferred to remain behind the scenes, do advisory consulting to the CES, and co-direct a study of unemployment insurance for the council. Turned down by Stewart, Altmeyer turned to his successor as Secretary of the Wisconsin Industrial Commission, Commons disciple Edwin E. Witt. Witt became Executive Secretary of the CES, with the task of appointing the other members. At the suggestion of FDR, Altmeyer consulted with powerful members of the BAC, namely Swope, Teagle, and John Raskob of DuPont and General Motors, about the makeup and policies of the CES. Altmeyer and Witt also prepared names for FDR to select an advisory council to the CES, consisting of employer, union and citizen members. In addition to Swope, Folsom and Teagle, the advisory council included two other powerful corporatist businessmen. The first, Morris Leeds, was president of Leeds and Northrop and a member of the corporate, pro-union, pro-welfare state American Association for Labor Legislation. The second, Sam Lewison, was vice president of Miami Copper Company and former president of the AALL. Selected to head the advisory council was an academic frontman, the much-beloved Southern liberal Frank Graham, president of the University of North Carolina. Altmeyer and Witt appointed as the members of the key technical board of the CES three distinguished experts, Murray Webb Latimer, J. Douglas Brown, and Barbara Natchtride Armstrong, who was the first female law professor at the University of California at Berkeley. All three were IRC affiliates, 
and Latimer and Brown were indeed eminent members of the Rockefeller IRC network. Latimer, chairman of the Railroad Retirement Board, was a long-time employee of the IRC and had compiled the IRC's study of industrial pensions, as well as having hammered out the details of the Railroad Retirement Act. Latimer was a member of the AALL and helped administer insurance and pension plans for Standard Oil of New Jersey, Standard Oil of Ohio, and Standard Oil of California. J. Douglas Brown was head of Princeton's IRC-created Industrial Relations Department and was the point man for the CES in designing the old-age pension plan for Social Security. Brown, along with the big business members of the Advisory Council, was particularly adamant that no employers escape the taxes for the old-age pension scheme. Brown was frankly concerned that small business not escape the cost-raising consequences of these social security tax obligations. In this way, big businesses, who were already voluntarily providing costly old-age pensions to their employees, could use the federal government to force their small business competitors into paying for similar, costly programs. Thus, Brown explained in his testimony before the Senate Finance Committee in 1935 that the great boon of employer contribution to old age pensions is that, quote, it makes uniform throughout industry a minimum cost of providing old age security and protects the more liberal employer now providing pensions from the competition of the employer who otherwise fires the person without a pension when superannuated. It levels up the cost of old age protection on both the progressive employer and the unprogressive employer. End quote. In other words, the legislation deliberately penalizes the lower cost unprogressive employer and cripples him by artificially raising his costs compared to the larger employer. Also injured, of course, are the consumers and the taxpayers who are forced to pay for this largesse. It is no wonder, then, that the bigger businesses almost all backed the social security scheme to the hilt, while it was attacked by such associations of small business as the National Metal Trades Association, the Illinois Manufacturing Association, and the National Association of Manufacturers. By 1939, only 17% of American businesses favoured repeal of the Social Security Act, while not one big business firm supported repeal. Big business, indeed, collaborated enthusiastically with Social Security. When the Social Security Board faced the formidable task of establishing 26 million accounts for individuals, it consulted with the BAC, and Marion Folsom helped plan the creation of regional SSB centres. The BAC got the board to hire the director of the Industrial Bureau of the Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce to serve as head registrar, and J. Douglas Brown was rewarded for his services by becoming chairman of the new expanded Advisory Council for the Social Security Administration. The American Association for Labor Legislation was particularly important in developing the social security system. This leftist social welfare outfit founded by Commons and headed for decades by his student John B. Andrews, was financed by Rockefeller, Morgan, and other wealthy corporate liberal financial and industrial interests. 
The AALL was the major developer of disability and health insurance proposals during the 1920s, and then in 1930 turned to work on model state bills for unemployment insurance. In 1932, Wisconsin adopted the AALL's plan, and under the force of AALL lobbying, the Democratic Party incorporated it into its platform. In developing Social Security, key CES technical board and advisory council posts were staffed with AALL members. Not only that, but in early 1934, Secretary Perkins asked none other than Paul Rauschenbusch. The AALL's Washington lobbyist to draft a bill for Social Security, which became the basis for further discussions in the CES. The AALL was also closely associated with Florence Kelly's National Consumers League. Paul Rauschenbusch had a fascinating pedigree in his own right. Paul was the son of the leading Social Gospel Baptist minister Walter Rauschenbusch. Paul studied under John R. Commons and was the principal author of the Wisconsin Unemployment Insurance Law. There was even more of a progressive cast to Rauschenbusch, for he married none other than Elizabeth Brandeis, daughter of the famed progressive jurist. Elizabeth also studied under Commons and received a PhD from Wisconsin. What's more, she was also a close friend of the Marxist Florence Kelly. And helped edit her aunt Josephine Goldmark's loving biography of Kelly. Elizabeth also helped write the Wisconsin unemployment compensation law. She taught economics at Wisconsin, rising to the post of full professor. We can conclude by noting with historian Erwin Yellowitz that all these reform organizations were dominated and funded by a small group of wealthy patricians. Professional men and social workers, wealthy women, including some from New York society, were indispensable to the financing and staffing. Chapter Twelve: War Collectivism in World War One. More than any other single period, World War One was the critical watershed for the American business system. It was a war collectivism, a totally planned economy run largely by big business interests through the instrumentality of the central government, which served as the model, the precedent, and the inspiration for state corporate capitalism for the remainder of the 20th century. That inspiration and precedent emerged not only in the United States, but also in the war economies of the major combatants of World War One. War collectivism showed the big business interests of the Western world that it was possible to shift radically from the previous largely free market capitalism to a new order marked by strong government and extensive and pervasive government intervention and planning for the purpose of providing a network of subsidies and monopolistic privileges to business and especially to large business interests. In particular, the economy could be cartelized under the aegis of government, with prices raised and production fixed and restricted in the classic pattern of monopoly, and military and other government contracts could be channeled into the hands of favored corporate producers. Labor, which had been becoming increasingly rambunctious, could be tamed and bridled into the service of this new state monopoly capitalist order. Through the device of promoting a suitably cooperative trade unionism 
and by bringing the willing union leaders into the planning system as junior partners. In many ways, the new order was a striking reversion to old-fashioned mercantilism, with its aggressive imperialism and nationalism, its pervasive militarism, and its giant network of subsidies and monopolistic privileges to large business interests. In its twentieth-century form, of course, the new mercantilism was industrial rather than mercantile, since the industrial revolution had intervened to make manufacturing and industry. The dominant economic form, but there was a more significant difference in the new mercantilism. The original mercantilism had been brutally frank in its class rule and its scorn for the average worker and consumer. Footnote: On the attitudes of the mercantilists toward labour, see Edgar S. Furness, The Position of the Labourer in a System of Nationalism. Thus, Furness cites the English mercantilist William Pettit. Who spoke of labour as a capital material, raw and undigested, committed into the hands of supreme authority, in whose prudence and disposition it is to improve, manage, and fashion it to more or less advantage? Furness adds that it is characteristic of these writers that they should be so readily disposed to trust in the wisdom of the civil power to improve, manage, and fashion. The economic raw material of the nation. End footnote. Instead, the new dispensation cloaked the new form of rule in the guise of promotion of the overall national interest of the welfare of the workers through the new representation for labour and of the common good of all citizens. Hence, the importance for providing a much-needed popular legitimacy and support of the new ideology of twentieth-century liberalism. Which sanctioned and glorified the new order. In contrast to the older laissez-faire liberalism of the previous century, the new liberalism gained popular sanction for the new system by proclaiming that it differed radically from the old exploitative mercantilism in its advancement of the welfare of the whole society. And in return for this ideological buttressing by the new corporate liberals, the new system furnished the liberals the prestige, the income. And the power that came with posts for the concrete, detailed planning of the system, as well as for ideological propaganda on its behalf. For their part, the liberal intellectuals acquired not only prestige and a modicum of power in the new order; they also achieved the satisfaction of believing that this new system of government intervention was able to transcend the weaknesses and the social conflicts that they saw in the two major alternatives. Laissez-faire capitalism or proletarian Marxian socialism. The intellectuals saw the new order as bringing harmony and cooperation to all classes on behalf of the general welfare under the aegis of big government. In the liberal view, the new order provided a middle way, a vital centre for the nation, as contrasted to the divisive extremes of left and right. One, big business and war collectivism. We have no space here to dwell on the extensive role of big business and business interests in getting the United States into World War One. The extensive economic ties of the large business community with England and France, through export orders and through loans to the Allies, especially those underwritten by the politically powerful J.P. Morgan and Co. 
which also served as agent to the British and French governments, allied to the boom brought about by domestic and allied military orders, all played a leading role in bringing the United States into the war. Furthermore, virtually the entire Eastern business community supported the drive toward war. Apart from the role of big business in pushing America down the road to war, business was equally enthusiastic about the extensive planning and economic mobilization that the war would clearly entail. Thus, an early enthusiast for war mobilization was the United States Chamber of Commerce, which had been a leading champion of industrial cartelization under the aegis of the federal government since its formation in 1912. The Chamber's monthly, The Nation's Business, foresaw in mid-1916 that a mobilized economy would bring about a sharing of power and responsibility between government and business. And the chairman of the U.S. Chamber's Executive Committee on National Defense wrote to the DuPonts at the end of 1916 of his expectation that this munitions question would seem to be the greatest opportunity to foster the new spirit of cooperation between government and industry. The first organization to move toward economic mobilization for war was the Committee on Industrial Preparedness, which in 1916 grew out of the Industrial Preparedness Committee of the Naval Consulting Board, a committee of industrial consultants to the Navy dedicated to considering the ramifications of an expanding American Navy. Characteristically, the new CIP was a closely blended public-private organization officially an arm of the federal government, but financed solely by private contributions. Moreover, the industrialist members of the committee, working patriotically without fee, was thereby able to retain their private positions and incomes. Chairman of the CIP, and a dedicated enthusiast for industrial mobilization, was Howard E. Coffin, vice president of the important Hudson Motor Company of Detroit. Under Coffin's direction, the CIP organized a national inventory of thousands of industrial facilities for munitions making. To propagandize for this effort, christened Industrial Preparedness, Coffin was able to mobilize the American Press Association, the Associated Advertising Clubs of the World, the August New York Times, and the great bulk of American industry. Footnote the leading historian of World War I mobilization of industry, Grosvenor B. Clarkson, himself a leading participant and director of the Council of National Defense, writes with scorn that the scattered exceptions to the chorus of business approval revealed a considerable lack of that unity of will to serve the nation that was essential to the fusing of the faggots of individualism into the unbreakable bundle of national unity. Clarkson's book, incidentally, was subsidized by Bernard Baruch, the head of industrial war collectivism. The manuscript was checked carefully by one of Baruch's top aides. Clarkson, a public relations man and advertising executive, had begun his effort by directing publicity for Coffin's industrial preparedness campaign in 1916. End footnote. The CIP was succeeded in late 1916 by the fully governmental Council of National Defense, whose advisory commission, largely consisting of private industrialists, was to become its actual operating agency, 
The council proper consisted of several members of the cabinet. President Wilson announced the purpose of the CND as organizing the whole industrial mechanism in the most effective way. Wilson found the council particularly valuable because it opens up a new and direct channel of communication and cooperation between business and scientific men and all departments of the government. He also hailed the personnel of the council's advisory commission as marking the entrance of the non-partisan engineer and professional man into American governmental affairs on an unprecedented scale. These members, declared the president grandiloquently, were to serve without pay, efficiency being their sole object and Americanism their only motive. Exulting over the new CND, Howard Coffin wrote to the Duponts in December 1916 that it is our hope that we may lay the foundation for that closely knit structure, industrial, civil, and military. Which every thinking American has come to realize is vital to the future life of this country, in peace and in commerce, no less than in possible war. Particularly influential in establishing the CND was Secretary of the Treasury William Gibbs McAdoo, son-in-law of the President and formerly promoter of the Hudson and Manhattan Railroad and associate of the Ryan interests in Wall Street. Footnote. Originating the idea of the CND was Dr. Hollis Godfrey, president of the Drexel Institute, an industrial training and management education organization. Also influential in establishing the CND was the Joint Military-Civilian Kernan Board, headed by Colonel Francis J. Kernan, and including its civilian members Benedict Crowell, chairman of Crowell and Little Construction Company of Cleveland. And later, Assistant Secretary of War, and R. Goodwin Rett, President of the People's Bank of Charleston, and President as well of the Chamber of Commerce of the United States. End footnote. Head of the Advisory Commission was Walter S. Gifford, who had been one of the leaders of the Coffin Committee and had come to government from his post as Chief Statistician of the American Telephone and Telegraph Company. A giant monopoly enterprise in the Morgan ambit. The other non-partisan members were Daniel Willard, president of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, Wall Street financier Bernard M. Baruch, Howard E. Coffin, Julius Rosenwald, president of Sears Roebuck and Company, Samuel Gompers, president of the AFL, and one scientist and one leading surgeon. Months before American entry into the war, the advisory commission of the CND designed what was to become the entire system of purchasing war supplies, the system of food control, and censorship of the press. It was the advisory commission that met with the delighted representatives of the various branches of industry and told the businessmen to form themselves into committees for sale of their products to the government. And for the fixing of the prices of these products, Daniel Willard was unsurprisingly put in charge of dealing with the railroads. Howard Coffin with munitions and manufacturing, Bernard Baruch with raw materials and minerals, Julius Rosenwald with supplies, and Samuel Gompers with labor. The idea of establishing committees of the various industries to get their resources together. 
began with Bernard Baruch. CND commodity committees, in their turn, invariably consisted of the leading industrialists in each field. These committees would then negotiate with the committees appointed by industry. Footnote: As one of many examples, the CND's Cooperative Committee on Copper consisted of the president of Anaconda Copper, the president of Calumet and Heckler Mining, the vice president of Phelps Dodge, the vice president of Kennecott Mines, the president of Utah Copper, the president of United Verde Copper. And Murray M. Guggenheim of the powerful Guggenheim family interests, and the American Iron and Steel Institute furnished the representatives of that industry. End footnote. At the recommendation of the advisory commission, Herbert Clark Hoover was named head of the new Food Administration. By the end of March 1917, the CND appointed a purchasing board to coordinate government's purchases from industry. Chairman of this board, the name of which was soon changed to the General Munitions Board, was Frank A. Scott, a well-known Cleveland manufacturer and president of Warner and Swayze Company. Yet centralized mobilization was proceeding, but slowly, through the tangle of bureaucracy, and the United States Chamber of Commerce urged Congress that the director of the CND should be given power and authority in the economic field. Analogous to that of the chief of state in the military field. Finally, in early July, the raw materials, munitions, and supplies departments were brought together under the new War Industries Board, with Scott as chairman. The board that was to become the central agency for collectivism in World War One. The functions of the WIB soon became the coordinating of purchases, the allocation of commodities. And the fixing of prices and priorities in production. Administrative problems beset the WIB, however, and a satisfactory autocrat was sought to rule the entire economy as chairman of the new organization. The willing autocrat was finally discovered in the person of Bernard Baruch in early March 1918. With the selection of Baruch, urged strongly on President Wilson by Secretary McAdoo. War collectivism had achieved its final form. Footnote: Scott and Willard had successively been chairman, which post was then offered to Homer Ferguson, president of the Newport News Shipbuilding Company, and later head of the United States Chamber of Commerce. End footnote. Baruch's credentials for the task were unimpeachable. An early supporter of the drive toward war. Baruch had presented a scheme for industrial war mobilization to President Wilson as early as 1915. The WIB developed a vast apparatus that connected to the specific industries through commodity divisions, largely staffed by the industries themselves. The historian of the WIB, himself one of its leaders, exulted that the WIB had established. Quote, A system of concentration of commerce, industry, and all the powers of government that was without compare among all the other nations. It was so interwoven with the supply departments of the army and navy, of the allies, and with other departments of the government that, while it was an entity of its own, its decisions and its acts were always based on a conspectus of the whole situation. At the same time, through the commodity divisions. 
and sections in contact with responsible committees of the commodities dealt with, the War Industries Board extended its antennae into the innermost recesses of industry. Never before was there such a focusing of knowledge of the vast field of American industry, commerce, and transportation. Never was there such an approach to omniscience in the business affairs of a continent. End quote. Big business leaders permeated the WIB structure from the board itself down to the commodity sections. Thus, Vice Chairman Alexander Legg came from International Harvester Company. Businessman Robert S. Brookings was the major force in insisting on price fixing. George N. Peake, in charge of finished products, had been Vice President of Deer and Company, a leading farm equipment manufacturer. Robert S. Lovett, in charge of priorities, was chairman of the board of Union Pacific Railroad, and J. Leonard Replogle, steel administrator, had been president of the American Vanadium Company. Outside of the direct WIB structure, Daniel Willard of the Baltimore and Ohio was in charge of the nation's railroads, and big businessman Herbert C. Hoover was the food czar. In the granting of war contracts, there was no nonsense about competitive bidding. Competition in efficiency and cost was brushed aside, and the industry-dominated WIB handed out contracts as it saw fit. Any maverick individualistic firm that disliked the mandates and orders of the WIB was soon crushed between the coercion wielded by government and the collaborating opprobrium of his organized business colleagues. Thus, Grosvenor Clarkson writes, quote, Individualistic American industrialists were aghast when they realized that industry had been drafted much as manpower had been. Business willed its own domination, forged its bonds, and policed its own subjection. There were bitter and stormy protests here and there, especially from those industries that were curtailed or suspended, but the rents in the garment of authority were amply filled by the docile and cooperative spirit of industry. The occasional obstructor fled from the mandates of the board only to find himself ostracized by his fellows in industry. End quote. One of the most important instrumentalities of wartime collectivism was the Conservation Division of the WIB, an agency again consisting largely of leaders in manufacturing. The Conservation Division had begun as the Commercial Economy Board of the CND, the brainchild of its first chairman, Chicago businessman A.W. Shaw. The board, or division, would suggest industrial economies and encourage the industry concerned to establish cooperative regulations. The board's regulations were supposedly voluntary, a voluntarism enforced by the compulsion of trade opinion, which automatically policed the observance of the recommendations. For a practice adopted by the overwhelming consent and even insistence of a man's fellows, especially when it bears the label of patriotic service in a time of emergency, is not lightly to be disregarded. In this way, in the name of wartime conservation, the conservation decision set out to rationalize, standardize, and cartelize industry in a way that would hopefully continue permanently after the end of the war. Arch W. Shaw summed up the division's task as follows. 
to drastically reduce the number of styles, sizes, etc. of the products of industry, to eliminate various styles and varieties, and to standardize sizes and measures. That this ruthless and thoroughgoing suppression of competition in industry was not thought of as a purely wartime measure is made clear in this passage by Grosvenor Clarkson. Quote, the World War was a wonderful school. It showed us how so many things may be bettered that we are at a loss to know where to begin with permanent utilization of what we know. The Conservation Division alone showed that merely to strip from trade and industry the lumber of futile custom and the encrustation of useless variety would return a good dividend on the world's capital. It is perhaps too much to hope that there will be any general gain in time of peace from the triumphant experiment of the Conservation Division. Yet now the world needs to economize as much as in war. End quote. Looking forward to future cartelization, Clarkson declared that such peacetime economizing implies such a close and sympathetic affiliation of competitive industries as is hardly possible under the decentralization of business that is compelled by our antitrust statutes. Bernard Baruch's biographer summarized the lasting results of the compulsory conservation and standardization as follows. Quote, Wartime conservation had reduced styles, varieties, and colors of clothing. It had standardized sizes. It had outlawed 250 different types of plow models in the U.S., to say nothing of 755 types of drills. Mass production and mass distribution had become the law of the land. This, then, would be the goal of the next quarter of the 20th century, to standardize American industry, to make of wartime necessity a matter of peacetime advantage. End quote. Not only the Conservation Division, but the entire structure of wartime collectivism and cartelization constituted a vision to business and government of a future peacetime economy. As Clarkson frankly put it, quote, It is little wonder that the men who dealt with the industries of a nation meditated with a sort of intellectual contempt on the huge hit-and-miss confusion of peacetime industry, with its perpetual cycle of surfeit and dearth and its internal attempt at adjustment after the event. From their meditations arose dreams of an ordered economic world. They conceived of America as commodity-sectioned for the control of world trade. They beheld the whole trade of the world, carefully computed and registered in Washington, requirements noted, American resources on call, the faucets opened or closed according to the circumstances. In a word, a national mind and will, confronting international trade and keeping its own house in business order. End quote. Heart and soul of the mechanism of control of industry by the WIB were its 60-odd commodity sections, committees supervising the various groups of commodities, which were staffed almost exclusively by businessmen from the respective industries. Furthermore, these committees dealt with over 300 war service committees of industry, appointed by the respective industrial groupings under the aegis of the Chamber of Commerce of the United States. 
It is no wonder that in this cosy atmosphere there was a great deal of harmony between business and government. As Clarkson admiringly described it, quote, Businessmen wholly consecrated to government service, but full of understanding of the problems of industry, now faced businessmen wholly representative of industry, but sympathetic with the purpose of government. End quote. And, quote, the commodity sections were business operating government business for the common good. The war committees of industry knew, understood, and believed in the commodity chiefs. They were of the same piece. End quote. All in all, Clarkson exulted that the commodity sections were industry mobilized and drilled, responsive, keen, and fully staffed. They were militant and in serried ranks. The Chamber of Commerce was particularly enthusiastic over the War Service Committee system, a system that was to spur the trade association movement in peacetime as well. Chamber President Harry A. Wheeler, Vice President of the Union Trust Company of Chicago, declared that, quote, Creation of the War Service Committees promises to furnish the basis for a truly national organization of industry whose preparations and opportunities are unlimited. The integration of business, the expressed aim of the National Chamber, is in sight. War is the stern teacher that is driving home the lesson of cooperative effort. End quote. The result of all this newfound harmony within each industry and between industry and government was to substitute cooperation for competition. Competition for government orders was virtually non-existent, and competition in price was practically done away with by government action. Industry was for the time in a golden age of harmony, and freed from the menace of business losses. One of the crucial functions of wartime planning was price-fixing, set in the field of industrial commodities by the Price-Fixing Committee of the War Industries Board. Beginning with such critical areas as steel and copper early in the war, and then inexorably expanding to many other fields, the price fixing was sold to the public as the fixing of maximum prices in order to protect the public against wartime inflation. In fact, however, the government set the price in each industry at such a rate as to guarantee a fair profit to the high cost producers thereby conferring a large degree of privilege and high profits on the lower-cost firms. Footnote. As an example, the government fixed the price of copper free on board New York at 23.5 cents per pound. The Utah Copper Company, which produced over 8% of the total copper output, had estimated costs of 11.8 cents per pound. In this way, Utah Copper was guaranteed nearly 100% profit on costs. End footnote. Clarkson admitted that this system, quote, was a tremendous invigoration of big business and hard on small business. The large and efficient producers made larger profits than normally, and many of the smaller concerns fell below their customary returns. End quote but the higher-cost firms were largely content with their fair profit guarantee. The attitude of the price-fixing committee was reflected in the statement of its chairman, Robert S. Brookings, a retired lumber magnate, addressed to the nickel industry 
Quote, We are not in an attitude of envying you, your prophets. We are more in the attitude of justifying them, if we can. That is the way we approach these things. End quote. Typical of the price-fixing operation was the situation in the cotton textile industry. Chairman Brookings reported in April 1918 that the Cotton Goods Committee had decided to get together in a friendly way to try to stabilise the market. Brookings appended the feeling of the larger cotton manufacturers that it was better to fix a high long-run minimum price than to take full short-run advantage of the very high prices then in existence. The general enthusiasm of the business world, and especially big business, for the system of war collectivism can now be explained. The enthusiasm was a product of the resulting stabilisation of prices, the ironing out of market fluctuations, and the fact that prices were almost always set by mutual consent of government and the representatives of each industry. It is no wonder that Harry A. Wheeler, President of the United States Chamber of Commerce, wrote in the summer of 1917 that war is giving business the foundation for the kind of cooperative effort that alone can make the US economically efficient. Or that the head of American Telephone and Telegraph hailed the perfecting of a coordination to ensure complete cooperation not only between the government and the companies, but between the companies themselves. The wartime cooperative planning was working so well, in fact, opined the chairman of the board of Republic Iron and Steel in early 1918, that it should be continued in peacetime as well. The vitally important steel industry is an excellent example of the workings of war collectivism. The hallmark of the closely knit control of the steel industry was the close cooperation between government and industry, a cooperation in which Washington decided on broad policy and then left it up to Judge Elbert Gary, head of the leading steel producer, United States Steel, to implement the policy within the industry. Gary selected a committee representing the largest steel producers to help him run the industry. A willing ally was present in J. Leonard Replogle, head of American Vanadium Company and chief of the steel division of the WIB. Replogal shared the long-standing desire of Gary and the steel industry for industrial cartelization and market stability under the aegis of a friendly federal government. Unsurprisingly, Gary was delighted with his new powers in directing the steel industry and urged that he be given total power to thoroughly mobilize and, if necessary, to commandeer. And Iron Age, the magazine of the iron and steel industry, exalted that, quote, It has apparently taken the most gigantic war in all history to give the idea of cooperation any such place in the general economic program as the country's steel manufacturers sought to give it in their own industry nearly ten years ago. End quote with the short-lived Entente Cordiale between Judge Gary and President Roosevelt. Footnote. In his important study of business-government relations in the War Industries Board, Professor Robert Cuff has concluded that federal regulation of industry was shaped by big business leaders, and that relations between government and big business were smoothest in those industries such as steel 
whose industrial leaders had already committed themselves to seeking government-sponsored cartelization. End footnote. It is true that wartime relations between government and steel companies were sometimes strained, but the strain and the tough threat of government commandeering of resources was generally directed at smaller firms, such as Crucible Steel, which had stubbornly refused to accept government contracts. In the steel industry, in fact, it was the big steel makers, US Steel, Bethlehem, Republic, etc., who, early in the war, had first urged government price-fixing, and they had to prod a sometimes confused government to adopt what eventually became the government's programme. The main reason was that the big steel producers, happy at the enormous increase of steel prices in the market as a result of wartime demand, were anxious to stabilise the market at a high price and thus ensure a long-run profit position for the duration of the war. The government steel industry price-fixing agreement of September 1917 was therefore hailed by John A. Topping, President of Republic Steel, as follows. Quote, the steel settlement will have a wholesome effect on the steel business because the principle of cooperative regulation has been established with government approval. Of course, present abnormal profits will be substantially reduced, but a runaway market condition has been prevented and prosperity extended. Furthermore, stability in future values should be conserved. End quote. Furthermore, the large steel firms were happy to use the fixed prices as a rationale for imposing controls and stability on wages, which were also beginning to rise. The smaller steel manufacturers, on the other hand, often with higher costs, and who had not been as prosperous before the war, opposed price-fixing because they wished to take full advantage of the short-run profit bonanza brought about by the war. Under this regime, the steel industry achieved the highest level of profits in its history, averaging 25% per year for the two years of war. Some of the smaller steel companies, benefiting from their lower total capitalization, did almost twice as well. The most thoroughgoing system of price controls during the war was enforced not by the WIB, but by the separate Food Administration over which Herbert Clark Hoover presided as food czar. The official historian of wartime price control justly wrote that the food control program was the most important measure for controlling prices which the United States had ever taken. Herbert Hoover accepted his post shortly after American entry into the war, but only on the condition that he alone have full authority over food, unhampered by boards or commissions. The Food Administration was established without legal authorization, and then a bill backed by Hoover was put through Congress to give the system the full force of law. Hoover was also given the power to requisition necessaries, to seize plants for government operation, and to regulate or prohibit exchanges. The key to the Food Administration's system of control was a vast network of licensing. Instead of direct control over food, the FA was given the absolute power to issue licenses for any and all divisions of the food industry and to set the conditions for keeping the license. Every dealer, manufacturer, distributor and warehouser of food commodities 
was required by Hoover to maintain its federal license. A notable feature introduced by Hoover in his reign as food czar was the mobilization of a vast network of citizen volunteers as a mass of eager participants in enforcing his decrees. Thus, Herbert Hoover was perhaps the first American politician to realize the potential in gaining mass acceptance and in enforcing government decrees in the mobilizing of the masses through a torrent of propaganda to serve as volunteer aides to the government bureaucracy. Mobilization proceeded to the point of inducing the public to brand as a virtual moral leper anyone dissenting from Mr. Hoover's edicts. Thus, quote, The basis of all control exercised by the Food Administration was the educational work which preceded and accompanied its measures of conservation and regulation. Mr. Hoover was committed thoroughly to the idea that the most effective method to control foods was to set every man, woman and child in the country at the business of saving food. The country was literally strewn with millions of pamphlets and leaflets designed to educate the people to the food situation. No war board at Washington was advertised as widely as the U.S. Food Administration. There were Food Administration insignia for the coat lapel, store window, the restaurant, the train, and the home. A real stigma was placed upon the person who was not loyal to Food Administration edicts. Through pressure by the schools, churches, women's clubs, public libraries, merchants' associations, fraternal organizations, and other social groups. End quote. The method by which the Food Administration imposed price control was its requirement that its licensees should receive a reasonable margin of profit. This reasonable margin was interpreted as a margin over and above each producer's costs, and this cost plus reasonable profit for each dealer became the rule of price control. The program was touted to the public as a means of keeping profits and food prices down. Although the administration certainly wished to stabilize prices, the goal was also, and more importantly, to cartelize. Industry and government worked together to make sure that individual maverick competitors did not get out of line. Prices in general were to be set at a level to guarantee a reasonable profit to everyone. The goal was not lower prices, but uniform, stabilized, non-competitive prices for all. The goal was far more to keep prices up than to keep them down. Indeed, any overly greedy competitor who tried to increase his profits above pre-war levels by cutting his prices was dealt with most severely by the Food Administration. Let us consider two of the most important food control programs during World War I wheat and sugar. Wheat price control, the most important program, came in the wake of wartime demand, which had pushed wheat prices up very rapidly to their highest level in the history of the United States. Thus, wheat increased by $1 a bushel in the course of two months at the start of the war, reaching the unheard-of price of $3 a bushel. Control came in the wake of agitation that government must step in to thwart speculators by fixing maximum prices on wheat. Yet, under pressure by the agriculturalists, the government program fixed by statute not maximum prices for wheat, but minima. The Food Control Act of 1917 
fixed a minimum price of $2 a bushel for the next year's wheat crop. Not content with this special subsidy, the president proceeded to raise the minimum to $2.26 a bushel in mid-1918, a figure that was then the precise market price for wheat. This increased minimum effectively fixed the price of wheat for the duration of the war. Thus, the government made sure that the consumers could not possibly benefit from any fall in wheat prices. To enforce the artificially high price of wheat, Herbert Hoover established the Grain Corporation, headed by practical grain men, which purchased the bulk of the wheat crop in the United States at the fair price and then resold the crop to the nation's flour mills at the same price. To keep the millers happy, the Grain Corporation guaranteed them against any possible losses from unsold stocks of wheat or flour. Moreover, each mill was guaranteed that its relative position in the flour industry would be maintained throughout the war. In this way, the flour industry was successfully cartelized through the instrument of government. Those few mills who balked at the cartel arrangement were dealt with handily by the Food Administration. As Garrett put it, their operations were reasonably well controlled by the license requirements. The excessively high costs of wheat and flour also meant artificially high costs to the bakers. They, in turn, were taken under the cosy cartel umbrella by being required, in the name of conservation, to mix inferior products with wheat flour at a fixed ratio. Each baker was of course delighted to comply with the requirement that he make inferior products, which he knew was also being enforced upon his competitors. Competition was also curtailed by the Food Administration's compulsory standardization of the sizes of bread loaves, and by prohibiting price cutting through discounts or rebates to particular customers, the classic path toward the internal breakup of any cartel. In the particular case of sugar, there was a much more sincere effort to keep down prices, due to the fact that the United States was largely an importer rather than a producer of sugar. Herbert Hoover and the Allied governments duly formed an international sugar committee, which undertook to buy all of their country's sugar, largely from Cuba, at an artificially low price, and then to allocate the raw sugar to the various refiners. Thus, the Allied governments functioned as a giant buying cartel to lower the price of their refiners' raw material. Herbert Hoover instigated the plan for the International Sugar Committee, and the US government appointed the majority of the five-man committee. As chairman of the committee, Hoover selected Earl Babst, president of the powerful American Sugar Refining Company and the other American members also represented refiner interests. The ISC promptly fixed a sharp reduction of the price of sugar, lowering the New York price of Cuban raw sugar from its high market price of 6 and 3 quarter cents per pound in the summer of 1917 to 6 cents per pound. When the Cubans understandably balked at this artificially forced price reduction of their cash crop, the United States State Department and the Food Administration collaborated to coerce the Cuban government into agreement. Somehow, the Cubans were unable to obtain import licenses for needed wheat and coal from the United States Food Administration, and the result was a severe shortage of bread, flour and coal 
in Cuba. Finally, the Cubans capitulated in mid-January 1918, and the import licenses from the United States were rapidly forthcoming. Cuba was also induced to prohibit all sugar exports except to the International Sugar Committee. Apparently, Mr. Babst ensured an extra bonus to his American sugar refining company, for shortly, officials of competing American refineries were to testify before Congress that this company had particularly profited from the activities of the International Sugar Committee and from the price that it fixed on Cuban sugar. Although the American government pursued with great diligence the goal of pushing down raw material prices for U.S. refiners, it also realised that it could not force down the price of raw sugar too low since the government had to consider the marginal U.S. cane and beet sugar producers, who had to receive their duly appointed fair return. Jointly to harmonise and subsidise both the sugar refiners and the sugar growers in the United States, Mr. Hoover established a sugar equalisation board that would simultaneously keep the price of sugar low to Cuba while keeping it high enough for the American producers. The board accomplished this feat by buying the Cuban sugar at the fixed low price and then reselling the crop to the refiners at a higher price to cover the American producers. The result of the artificially low prices for sugar was, inevitably, to create a severe sugar shortage by reducing supplies and by stimulating an excessive public consumption. The result was that sugar consumption was then severely restricted by federal rationing of sugar. It is not surprising that the food industries were delighted with the wartime control programme. Expressing the spirit of the entire war collectivist regime, Herbert Hoover, in the words of Paul Garrett, quote, maintained as a cardinal policy from the beginning a very close and intimate contact with the trade. The men whom he chose to head his various commodity sections and responsible positions were, in a large measure, tradesmen. The determination of the policies of control within each branch of the food industry was made in conference with the tradesmen of that branch. It might be said that the framework of food control, as of raw material control, was built upon agreements with the trade. The enforcement of the agreements once made, moreover, was entrusted in part to the cooperation of constituted trade organisations. The industry itself was made to feel responsible for the enforcement of all rules and regulations. End quote. Also separate from the War Industries Board were the nation's railroads, which received the greatest single ministration of government dictation as compared to any other industry. The railroads, in fact, were seized and operated directly by the federal government. As soon as the United States entered the war, the administration urged the railroads to unite as one in behalf of the war effort. The railroads were delighted to comply and quickly formed what became known as the Railroads War Board, promising faithfully to pursue a goal that they had long sought in peacetime to cease competitive activities and to coordinate railroad operations. Daniel Willard, president of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and Bernard Baruch's predecessor as head of the WIB, happily reported that the railroads had agreed to vest their war board with complete authority to override individual railroad interests. 
Under its chairman, Fairfax Harrison of the Southern Railroad, the War Board established a Committee on Car Service to coordinate national car supplies. Aiding the coordination effort was the Interstate Commerce Commission, the longtime federal regulatory body for the railroads. Once again, the government promoted monopoly was an inspiration to many who were looking ahead to the peacetime economy. For several years, the railroads had been agitating for scientific management as a means of achieving higher rates from the ICC and a governmentally imposed cartelization. But they had been thwarted by the pressure of the organized shippers, the industrial users of the railroads. But now even the shippers were impressed. Max Thielen, chairman of the California Railroad Commission, president of the National Association of Railroad and Utilities Commissions, and the leading spokesman for the organized shippers, agreed that the critical railroad problem was duplication and the irrational lack of complete inter-railroad coordination. And Senator Francis G. Newlands, Democrat Nevada, the most powerful congressman on railroad affairs as the chairman of a joint committee on transportation regulation, opined that the wartime experience was somewhat shattering our old views regarding antitrust laws. Soon, however, it became clear that the system of voluntary private coordination was not really working well. Traffic departments of individual roads persisted in competitive practices. The railroad brotherhood unions were persistently demanding substantial wage increases. And the railroads and organized shippers locked horns over railroad demands for an across-the-board rate increase. All groups felt that regional coordination and overall efficiency would best be achieved by outright federal operation of the railroads. The shippers first proposed the scheme as a method of achieving coordination and to forestall higher freight rates. The unions seconded the plan in order to obtain wage increases from the government. And the railroads cheerfully agreed when President Wilson assured them that each road would be guaranteed its 1916-17 profits, two years of unusually high profits for the railroad industry. With the federal government offering to take on the headaches of wartime dislocation and management, while granting the roads a very high guaranteed profit for doing nothing, why shouldn't the railroads leap to agreement? The most enthusiastic administration proponent of federal operation of the railroads was Secretary of the Treasury McAdoo a former New York Railroad executive and close associate of the Morgan interests, who in turn were the leading underwriters and owners of railroad bonds. McAdoo was rewarded by being named head of the United States Railroad Administration after Wilson seized the roads on December 28, 1917. Federal rule by the Morgan-oriented McAdoo proved to be a bonanza for the nation's railroads. Not only were the railroads now fully monopolized by direct government operation, but also the particular railroad executives now found themselves armed with the coercive power of the federal government. For McAdoo chose as his immediate assistants a group of top railroad executives, and all rate-setting powers of the ICC were shifted to the railroad-dominated Railroad Administration for the duration. Footnote. McAdoo's cabinet which assisted him in running the railroads, included Walker D. Hines and Edward Chambers, respectively chairman of the board and vice president of the Santa Fe Railroad. 
Henry Walters, chairman of the board of the Atlantic Coast Railroad, Hale Holden of the Burlington Railroad, A. H. Smith, president of the New York Central Railroad, John Barton Payne, formerly chief counsel of the Chicago Great Western Railroad, and comptroller of the currency John Skelton Williams, formerly chairman of the board of the Seaboard Railroad. Hines was to be McAdoo's principal assistant. Payne became head of traffic. The division of operation was headed by Carl R. Gray, president of the Western Maryland Railroad. One unionist, W. S. Carter, head of the Brotherhood of Firemen and Engineers, was brought in to head the division of labor. End footnote. The significance of the shift is that the railroads, although largely responsible for the inception and growth of the ICC as a cartelizing agency for the railroad industry, had seen control of the ICC slip into the hands of the organized shippers in the decade before the war. This meant that the railroads had found it very difficult to win freight rate increases from the ICC. But now the wartime federal control of the railroads was shunting the shippers aside. McAdoo's brazen appointment of railroad men to virtually all the leading positions in the railroad administration, to the virtual exclusion of shippers and academic economists, greatly angered the shippers, who had launched an intense barrage of criticism of the system by midsummer of 1918. This barrage came to a head when McAdoo increasingly turned the direction of the RA, including the appointment of regional directors, over to his principal assistant. Railroad Executive Walker D. Hines, shippers and ICC commissioners complained that quote, railroad lawyers from the entire country descended on Washington, told their troubles to other railroad lawyers serving on McAdoo's staff, and were told to go into an adjoining room and dictate what orders they want. End quote. As in the case of the War Industries Board. The railroad executives used their coercive governmental powers to deal a crippling blow to diversity and competition on behalf of monopoly in the name of efficiency and standardization. Again, over the opposition of shippers, the RA ordered the compulsory standardization of locomotive and equipment design, eliminated duplicate, i.e., competitive passenger service and coal transportation. Shut down offline traffic offices and ordered the cessation of competitive solicitation of freight by the railroads. All of these edicts reduced railroad services to the hapless shippers. There were still other coerced reductions of service. One ended the shippers' privileges of specifying freight routes and thereby of specifying the cheapest routes for shipping their goods. Another upset the peacetime practice of making the railroads liable for losses and damages to shipments. Instead, the entire burden of proof was placed on the shippers. Another RA ruling, the Sailing Day Plan, ordered freight cars to remain in their terminals until filled, thus sharply curtailing service to small town shippers. The granting of absolute power to the railroad-dominated RA. Was cemented by the Federal Control Act of March 1918, which ex post facto legalized the illegal federal takeover. Working closely with railroad lobbyists, the RA, backed by the full support of President Wilson, 
was able to drive through Congress the transfer of rate-making powers to itself from the ICC. Furthermore, all power was taken away from the invariably shipper-dominated state railroad commissions. The RA hastened to exercise its rate-setting powers, announcing freight rate increases of 25% across the board in the spring of 1918, an act that permanently cemented shipper hostility to the system of federal operation. To add insult to injury, the new higher rates were set without any public hearings or consultation with other agencies or interests involved. 2. Intellectuals and the Legacy of War Collectivism Historians have generally treated the economic planning of World War I as an isolated episode dictated by the requirements of the day and having little further significance. But on the contrary, the war collectivism served as an inspiration and as a model for a mighty army of forces destined to forge the history of 20th century America. For big business, the wartime economy was a model of what could be achieved in national coordination and cartelization, in stabilizing production, prices and profits, and in replacing old-fashioned competitive laissez-faire by a system that they could broadly control and that would harmonize the claims of various powerful economic groups. It was a system that had already abolished much competitive diversity in the name of standardization. The wartime economy especially galvanized such business leaders as Bernard Baruch and Herbert Hoover, who would promote the cooperative association of business trade groups as Secretary of Commerce during the 1920s, an associationism that paved the way for the cooperative statism of Franklin Roosevelt's AAA and NRA. The wartime collectivism also held forth a model to the nation's liberal intellectuals, for here was seemingly a system that replaced laissez-faire not by the rigours and class hatreds of proletarian Marxism, but by a new strong state, planning and organising the economy in harmony with all leading economic groups. It was, not coincidentally, to be a neo-mercantilism, a mixed economy, heavily staffed by these self-same liberal intellectuals. And finally, both big business and the liberals saw in the wartime model a way to organise and integrate the often unruly labour force as a junior partner in the corporatist system, a force to be disciplined by their own responsible leadership of the labour unions. For the rest of his life, Bernard Mans Baruch sought to restore the lineaments of the wartime model. Thus, in summing up the experience of the WIB, Baruch extolled the fact that, quote, Many businessmen have experienced during the war, for the first time in their careers, the tremendous advantages, both to themselves and to the general public, of combination, of cooperation and common action. End quote. Baruch called for the continuance of such corporate associations in inaugurating rules to eliminate waste, i.e. competition to exchange trade information, to agree on the channeling of supply and demand among themselves, to avoid extravagant forms of competition, and to allocate the location of production. Completing the outlines of a corporate state, Baruch urged that such associations be governed by a federal agency, 
either the Department of Commerce or the Federal Trade Commission. Quote, an agency whose duty it should be to encourage, under strict government supervision, such cooperation and coordination. End quote. Baruch also envisioned a federal board for the retraining and channeling of labor after the war. At the very least, he urged standby legislation for price control and for industrial coordination and mobilization in the event of another war. During the 1920s and 1930s, Bernard Baruch served as a major inspiration of the drive toward a corporate state. Moreover, many of the leaders of this drive were men who had served under him during the heady days of the WIB, and who continued to function, frankly, as Baruch's men in national affairs. Thus, aided by Baruch, George N. Peak of the Moline Plough Company launched in the early 1920s the drive for farm price supports through federally organized farm cartels that was to culminate in President Hoover's Federal Farm Board in 1929 and then in Roosevelt's AAA. Peak's farm equipment business, of course, stood to benefit greatly from farm subsidies. Hoover appointed as first chairman of the FFB none other than Baruch's old top aide from World War I, Alexander Legg of International Harvester, the leading farm machinery manufacturer. When Franklin Roosevelt created the AAA, he first offered the job of director to Baruch, and then gave the post to Baruch's man, George Peake. Neither was Baruch laggard in promoting a corporate system for industry as a whole. In the spring of 1930, Baruch proposed a peacetime reincarnation of the WIB as a Supreme Court of Industry. In September of the following year, Gerard Swope, head of General Electric and brother of Baruch's close confidant, Herbert Bayard Swope, presented an elaborated plan for a corporate state that essentially revived the system of wartime planning. At the same time, one of Baruch's oldest friends, former Secretary William Gibbs McAdoo, was proposing a similar plan for a Peace Industries Board. After Hoover dismayed his old associates by rejecting the plan, Franklin Roosevelt embodied it in the NRA, selecting Gerard Swope to help write the final draft and picking another Baruch disciple and World War aide, General Hugh S. Johnson, also of the Moline Plough Company, to direct this major instrument of state corporatism. When Johnson was fired, Baruch himself was offered the post. Other leading NRA officials were veterans of war mobilization. Johnson's chief of staff was another old friend of Baruch's, John Hancock, who had been paymaster general of the Navy during the war and had headed the Naval Industrial Programme for the War Industries Board. Other high officials of the NRA were Dr. Leo Wallman, who had been head of the Production Statistics Division of the WIB, Charles F. Homer, leader of the wartime Liberty Loan Drive, and General Clarence C. Williams, who had been Chief of Ordnance in charge of Army War Purchasing. Other WIB veterans highly placed in the New Deal were Isidore Lubin, United States Commissioner of Labor Statistics in the New Deal, Captain Leon Henderson of the Ordnance Division of the WIB, and Senator Joseph Guffey, Democrat Pennsylvania, who had worked in the WIB on conservation of oil, and who helped pattern the oil and coal controls of the New Deal on the wartime fuel administration.
Another leading promoter of the new cooperation, subsequent to his experience as wartime planner, was Herbert Clark Hoover. As soon as the war was over, Hoover set out to reconstruct America along the lines of peacetime cooperation. He urged national planning through voluntary cooperation among businessmen and other economic groups, under the central direction of the government. The Federal Reserve System was to allocate capital to essential industries, and thereby to eliminate the competitive wastes of the free market. And in his term as Secretary of Commerce during the 1920s, Hoover assiduously encouraged the cartelization of industry through trade associations. In addition to inaugurating the modern program of farm price supports in the Federal Farm Board, Hoover urged the coffee buyers to form a cartel to lower buying prices, established a buying cartel in the rubber industry, led the oil industry in working toward restrictions on oil production in the name of conservation, tried repeatedly to raise prices, restrict production, and encourage marketing co-ops in the coal industry, and tried to force the cotton textile industry into a nationwide cartel to restrict production. Specifically in furtherance of the wartime abolition of thousands of diverse and competitive products, Hoover continued to impose standardization and simplification of materials and products during the 1920s. In this way, Hoover managed to abolish, or simplify, about a thousand industrial products. This simplification was worked out by the Department of Commerce in collaboration with committees from each industry. Grosvenor Clarkson hailed the fact that, quote, It is probable that there will never again be such a multiplicity of styles and models in machinery and other heavy and costly articles as there was before the restrictions necessitated by the war. The ideas conceived and applied by the War Industries Board in war are being applied in peace by the Department of Commerce. End quote. Not the least of the influential groups dazzled and marked by the experience of war collectivism were the liberal intellectuals. Never before had so many intellectuals and academicians swarmed into government to help plan, regulate and mobilise the economic system. The intellectuals served as advisers, technicians, framers of legislation and administrators of bureaus. Furthermore, apart from the rewards of newly acquired prestige and power, the war economy held out to such intellectuals the promise of transforming the society into a third way, completely different from the laissez-faire past that they scorned or the looming proletarian Marxism that they reviled and feared. Here was a planned corporate economy that seemed to harmonise all groups and classes under a strong and guiding nation-state with the Liberals themselves at or near the helm. In a notable article, Professor Luchtenberg saw the war collectivism as a logical outgrowth of the progressive movement. He demonstrated the enthusiasm of the progressive intellectuals for the social transformation affected by the war. Thus, the New Republic hailed the revolutionising of society by means of the war. John Dewey hailed the replacement of production for profit and the absoluteness of private property by production for use. Economists were particularly enchanted by the notable demonstration of the power of war to force concert of effort and collective planning, 
and looked for the same sort of centralized directing now employed to kill their enemies abroad for the new purpose of reconstructing their own life at home. Rexford Guy Tugwell, ever alert to the advance of social engineering, was soon to look back wistfully on America's wartime socialism. Lamenting the end of the war, he declared that only the armistice prevented a great experiment in control of production, control of price, and control of consumption. For during the war, the old system of industrial competition had melted away in the fierce new heat of nationalistic vision. Footnote. It was very similar considerations that also brought many liberal intellectuals, especially including those of the New Republic, into at least temporary admiration for Italian fascism. End footnote. Not merely the NRA and AAA, but virtually the entire New Deal apparatus, including the bringing to Washington of a host of liberal intellectuals and planners, owed its inspiration to the war collectivism of World War I. The Reconstruction Finance Corporation, founded by Hoover in 1932 and expanded by Roosevelt's New Deal, was a revival and expansion of the old War Finance Corporation, which had loaned government funds to munitions firms. Furthermore, Hoover, after offering the post to Bernard Baruch, named as first chairman of the RFC Eugene Meyer Jr., an old protégé of Baruch's who had been managing director of the WFC. Much of the old WFC staff and method of operations were taken over bodily by the new agency. The Tennessee Valley Authority grew out of a wartime government nitrate and electric power project at Muscle Shoals, and in fact included the old nitrate plant as one of its first assets. Moreover, many of the public power advocates in the New Deal had been trained in such wartime agencies as the power section of the Emergency Fleet Corporation, and even the innovative government corporate form of the TVA was based on wartime precedent. Wartime experience also provided the inspiration for the public housing movement of the New Deal. During the war, the Emergency Fleet Corporation and the United States Housing Corporation were established to provide housing for war workers. The war established the precedent of federal housing and also trained architects like Robert Kahn, who functioned as chief of production for the housing division of the United States Shipping Board. After the war, Kahn exulted that the war has put housing on the map in this country. And in 1933, Kahn was duly named by President Roosevelt to be the director of the New Deal's first venture into public housing. Furthermore, the Emergency Fleet Corporation and the United States Housing Corporation established large-scale public housing communities on planned Garden City principles. Yorkship Village, New Jersey, Union Park Gardens, Delaware, Black Rock and Crane Tracts, Connecticut. Principles finally remembered and put into effect in the New Deal and afterward. The oil and coal controls established in the New Deal also rested on the precedent of the wartime fuel administration. Indeed, Senator Joseph Guffey, Democrat Pennsylvania, leader in the coal and oil controls, had been head of the petroleum section of the War Industries Board. 
Deeply impressed with the national unity and mobilization achieved during the war, the New Deal established the Civilian Conservation Corps to instill the martial spirit in America's youth. The idea was to take the wandering boys off the road and mobilize them into a new form of American expeditionary force. The army, in fact, ran the CCC camps. CCC recruits were gathered at army recruiting stations, equipped with World War I clothing, and assembled in army tents. The CCC, the New Dealers exalted, had given a new sense of meaning to the nation's youth in this new forestry army. Speaker Henry T. Rainey, Democrat Illinois of the House of Representatives, put it this way, quote, They, the CCC recruits, are also under military training, and as they come out of it improved in health and developed mentally and physically, and are more useful citizens, they would furnish a very valuable nucleus for an army. End quote. Footnote. Roosevelt named union leader Robert Fechner, formerly engaged in war labor work, as director of the CCC to provide a civilian camouflage for the program. End footnote. 3. The Drive to Prolong War Collectivism Particularly good evidence of the deep imprint of war collectivism was the reluctance of many of its leaders to abandon it when the war was finally over. Business leaders pressed for two post-war goals. Continuance of government price-fixing to protect them against an expected post-war deflation and a longer-range attempt to promote industrial cartelization in peacetime. In particular, businessmen wanted the price maxima, which had often served as minima instead, to be converted simply into outright minima for the post-war period. Wartime quotas to restrict production, furthermore, needed only to remain in being to function as a frank cartelizing for raising prices in time of peace. Accordingly, many of the Industrial War Service Committees and their WIB section counterparts urged the continuance of the WIB and its price-fixing system. In particular, section chiefs invariably urged continued price control in those industries that feared post-war deflation, while advocating a return to a free market wherever the specific industry expected a continuing boom. Thus, Professor Himmelberg concluded, quote, Section chiefs in their recommendations to the board consistently followed the wishes of their industries in urging protection if the industry expected price declines and release of all war controls when the industry expected a favorable post-war market. End quote. Robert S. Brookings, chairman of the price-fixing committee of the WIB, declared that the WIB should be as helpful during the reconstruction period as we have during the war period, in stabilizing values. From the big business world, meanwhile, Harry A. Wheeler, President of the United States Chamber of Commerce, presented to Woodrow Wilson in early October 1918 an ambitious scheme for a Reconstruction Commission to be composed of all the economic interests of the nation. The WIB itself concurred and urged the President to allow it to continue after the war. Baruch himself urged on Wilson the continuation of at least the minimum price-fixing policies of the WIB. 
However, Baruch was gulling the public when he foresaw a post-war WIB as guarding against both inflation and deflation. There was no inclination to impose maximum prices against inflation. The great problem with these ambitious plans of both industry and government was President Wilson himself. Perhaps a lingering attachment to the ideals, or at least to the rhetoric, of free market competition prevented the president from giving any favourable attention to these post-war schemes. The attachment was particularly nourished by Secretary of War Newton D. Baker, of all Wilson's advisers, the closest to a believer in laissez-faire. Throughout October 1918, Wilson rejected all of these proposals. The response of Baruch and the WIB was to put further pressure on Wilson during early November by publicly predicting and urging that the WIB would definitely be needed during demobilization. Thus, the New York Times reported the day after the armistice that, quote, War Industries Board officials declared that there would be much work for that organization to do. They foresee no serious industrial dislocation with the government's grip on all war industries and material held tight. End quote. The president remained adamant, however, and on November 23rd he ordered the complete disbanding of the WIB by the end of the year. The disappointed WIB officials accepted the decision without protest, partly because of expected congressional opposition to any attempt to continue, partly from the hostility to continued controls by those industries anticipating a boom. Thus the shoe industry particularly chafed at any continuing controls. Footnote. Favouring continued price controls were such industries as the chemical, iron and steel, lumber and finished products generally. Opposing industries included abrasives, automotive products and newspapers. End footnote. The industries favouring controls, however, urged the WIB at least to ratify their own price minima and agreements for restricting production for the coming winter and to do so just before the disbandment of the agency. The board was sorely tempted to engage in this final exploit, and indeed was informed by its legal staff that it could successfully continue such controls beyond the life of the agency, even against the will of the president. The WIB, however, reluctantly turned down requests to this effect by the acid, zinc and steel manufacturers on December 11th. It only rejected the price-fixing plans, however, because it feared being overturned by the courts should the Attorney General challenge such a decision. One of the most ardent advocates of continued WIB price control was the great steel industry. Two days after the armistice, Judge Gary of US Steel urged the WIB to continue its regulations and declared that the members of the steel industry desire to cooperate with each other in every proper way. Gary urged a three-month extension of price-fixing, with further gradual reductions that would prevent a return to the destructive competition. Baruch replied that he was personally willing to go to the very limit, but he was blocked by Wilson's attitude. If the WIB itself could not continue, perhaps the wartime cartelization could persist in other forms. During November, Arch W. Shaw, 
Chicago industrialist and head of the conservation division of the WIB, whose wartime work in fostering standardization was being transferred to the Department of Commerce, and Secretary of Commerce William Redfield, agreed on a bill to allow manufacturers to collaborate in the adoption of plans for the elimination of needless waste in the public interest, under the supervision of the Federal Trade Commission. When this proposal fizzled, Edwin B. Parker, Priorities Commissioner of the WIB, proposed in late November a frankly cartelizing bill that would allow the majority of the firms in any given industry to set production quotas that would have to be obeyed by all the firms in that industry. The Parker Plan won the approval of Baruch, Peak, and numerous other government officials and businessmen, but WIB's legal counsel warned that Congress would never give its consent. Another proposal that interested Baruch was advanced by Mark Requa, Assistant Food Administrator, who proposed a United States Board of Trade to encourage and regulate industrial agreements that promoted the national welfare. Whatever the reason, Bernard Baruch failed to press hard for these proposals, and so they died on the vine. If Baruch failed to press matters, however, his associate George Peake, head of the Finished Products Division of the WIB, was not so reticent. By mid-December 1918, Peake wrote Baruch that the post-war era must retain the benefits of proper cooperation. In particular, quote, Proper legislation should be enacted to permit cooperation in industry, in order that the lessons we have learned during the war may be capitalized in peacetime. Conservation, standardization of products and processes, price fixing under certain conditions, etc., should continue with government cooperation. End quote. By late December, Peake was proposing legislation for quote, some kind of an emergency peace bureau, in order that businessmen may, in conjunction with such a bureau, have an opportunity to meet and cooperate with governmental cooperation. End quote. The leading business groups endorsed similar plans. In early December, the Chamber of Commerce of the United States called a meeting of the various industrial war service committees to convene as a Reconstruction Congress of American Industry. The Reconstruction Congress called for revision of the Sherman Act to permit reasonable trade agreements under a supervisory body. Furthermore, a nationwide chamber referendum in early 1919 approved such a proposal by an overwhelming majority, and President Wheeler urged the cordial acceptance by organized business of regulation that would ratify business agreements. The National Association of Manufacturers, before the war devoted to competition, warmly endorsed the same goals. The last gasp of wartime cartelization came in February 1919, with the establishment by the Department of Commerce of the Industrial Board. Secretary of Commerce William C. Redfield, formerly President of the American Manufacturers Export Association, had long championed the view that government should promote and coordinate industrial cooperation. Redfield saw an entering wedge with the transfer of the WIB's Conservation Division to his department shortly after the armistice. Redfield continued the wartime stimulation of trade associations 
and to that end established an advisory board of former WIB officials. One of these advisors was George Peak. Another was Peake's assistant on the WIB, Ohio Lumber Executive William M. Ritter. It was Ritter, in fact, who originated the idea of the Industrial Board. The Industrial Board, conceived by Ritter in January 1919 and enthusiastically adopted and pushed by Secretary Redfield, was a cunning scheme. On its face, and as promoted to President Wilson and to others in the administration and Congress, the board was merely a device to secure large price reductions and thereby to lower the inflated level of general prices and to stimulate consumer demand. It was therefore seemingly unrelated to the previous cartelizing drive and hence won the approval of the president, who established the new board in mid-February. At Ritter's urging, George Peake was named chairman of the IB. Other members included Ritter himself, head of a major Memphis dry goods concern and former chief of the cotton and cotton linters section of the WIB, Lewis B. Reed, vice president of the U.S. Silica Company and another former assistant to Peak, steel castings manufacturer Samuel P. Bush, former head of the WIB's facilities division, Atlanta steel fabricating manufacturer Thomas Glenn, also a veteran of the WIB, and two outsiders, one representing the Labor Department and the other the Railroad Administration. No sooner did the IB get underway than it pursued its real but previously camouflaged purpose, not to reduce but rather to stabilise prices at existing high levels. Moreover, the method of stabilisation would be the longed-for but previously rejected path of ratifying industrial price agreements arrived at in collaboration with the board. Deciding on this cartelizing policy in early March, the IB moved toward the first application in a conference with, unsurprisingly, the steel industry on March 19th to 20th, 1919. Opening the conference, Chairman George Peake grandly declared that the event might prove epoch-making, especially in establishing real genuine cooperation between government, industry and labour so that we may eliminate the possibility of the destructive forces. The steel men were, of course, delighted, hailing the great chance to come into close contact with the government itself. Footnote. Professor Yurovsky surmised from the orderly and very moderate price reductions in steel during the first months of 1919 that Robert S. Brookings had quietly given the steel industry the green light to proceed with its own price-fixing. End footnote. The IB told the steel industry that any agreement to sustain prices agreed upon by the conference would be immune from the antitrust laws. Not only was the price list offered by the IB to the steel men still very high, even if moderately lower than existing prices, but Peak agreed to announce to the public that steel prices would not be lowered further for the remainder of the year. Peak advised the steel men that his statement would be their biggest asset. For, I don't know what I would have given in times past if in my own business I could say that the government of the United States says this is as low price as you could get. The IB Steel Agreement lowered steel prices by a modest 10-14%. 
The small, high-cost steel producers were disgruntled, but the big steel firms welcomed the agreement as a coordinated orderly reduction of inflated prices, and especially welcomed the board's guarantee of the fixed price for the remainder of the year. The elated IB proceeded with similar conferences for the coal and building materials industries, but two dark clouds promptly appeared: the refusal of the government's own railroad administration to pay the fixed agreed-upon price for steel rails and for coal, and the concern of the Justice Department for the evident violation of the antitrust laws. The railroad men running the RA. Particularly balked at the reduced but still high price that they were going to be forced to pay for steel rails, at a rate that they declared was at least two dollars per ton above the free market price. Walker D. Hines, head of the RA, denounced the IB as a price-fixing agency dominated by steel and other industries, and he called for the abolition of the industrial board. This call was seconded by the powerful Secretary of the Treasury Carter Glass. The Attorney General concurred that the IB's policy was illegal price fixing and in violation of the antitrust laws. Finally, President Wilson dissolved the Industrial Board in early May 1919. Wartime industrial planning had at last been dissolved. Its formal cartelization to reappear. A decade and a half later, yet remnants of wartime collectivism still remained. The high wartime minimum wheat price of two dollars twenty-six a bushel was carried over to the 1919 crop, continuing until June 1920. But the most important carryover of war collectivism was the railroad administration, the government's operation of the nation's railroads. When William Gibbs Macadoo resigned as head of the RA at the end of the war, he was succeeded by the previous de facto operating head, railroad executive Walker D. Hines. There was no call for immediate return to private operation because the railroad industry generally agreed on drastic regulation to curb or eliminate wasteful railroad competition and coordinate the industry, to fix prices to ensure a fair profit. And to outlaw strikes through compulsory arbitration, this was the overall thrust of railroad sentiment. Furthermore, being in effective control of the RA, the roads were in no hurry to return to private operation and jurisdiction by the less reliable ICC. Although Macadoo's plan to postpone by five years the given 1920 date for return to private operation gained little support. Congress proceeded to use its time during 1919 to tighten the monopolization of the railroads. In the name of scientific management, Senator Albert Cummins, Republican Iowa, proceeded to grant the railroads fondest dreams. Cummins's bill, warmly approved by Hines and railroad executive Daniel Willard, ordered the consolidation of numerous railroads. And would set the railroad rates according to a fair, fixed return on capital investment. Strikes would be outlawed, and all labor disputes settled by compulsory arbitration. For their part, the Association of Railroad Executives submitted a legislative plan similar to the Cummins Bill. Also similar to the Cummins Bill was the proposal of the National Association of Owners of Railroad Securities. 
a group composed largely of savings banks and insurance companies. In contrast to these plans, the Citizens National Railroad League, consisting of individual railroad investors, proposed coerced consolidation into one national railroad corporation and the guaranteeing of minimum earnings to this new road. All of these plans were designed to tip the pre-war balance sharply in favour of the railroads and against the shippers, and as a result, the Cummins Bill, in passing the Senate, ran into trouble in the House. The trouble was fomented by the shippers, who demanded a return to the status quo ante when the shipper-dominated ICC was in charge. Furthermore, for their part, the wartime experience had embittered the shippers, who, along with the ICC itself, demanded a return to the higher quality service provided by railroad competition, rather than the increased monopolization provided by the various railroad bills. Unsurprisingly, however, one of the leading non-railroad business groups favouring the Cummins Bill was the Railway Business Association, a group of manufacturers and distributors of railroad supplies and equipment. The House of Representatives, in its turn, passed the Esch Bill, which essentially re-established the pre-war rule of the ICC. President Wilson had put pressure on Congress to make a decision by threatening the return of the railroads to private operation by the given date of January 1st, 1920. But under pressure of the railroads, who were anxious to push the Cummins Bill, Wilson extended the deadline to March 1st. Finally, the Joint Conference Committee of Congress reported out the Transportation Act of 1920, a compromise that was essentially the Esch Bill returning the railroads to the pre-war ICC, but adding the Cummins provision for a two-year guarantee to the railroads to set rates providing a fair return of 5.5% on investment. Furthermore, on the agreement of both shippers and the roads, the power to set minimum railroad rates was now granted to the ICC. This agreement was the product of railroads eager to set a floor under freight rates and shippers anxious to protect budding canal transportation against railroad competition. Furthermore, although railway union objections blocked the provision for the outlawing of strikes, a railroad labour board was established to try to settle labour disputes. With the return of the railroads to private operation in March 1920, war collectivism finally and at long last seemed to pass from the American scene. But pass it never really did, for the inspiration and the model that it furnished for a corporate state in America continued to guide Herbert Hoover and other leaders in the 1920s and was to return full-blown in the New Deal and in the World War II economy. In fact, it supplied the broad outlines for the corporate monopoly state that the New Deal was to establish seemingly permanently in the United States of America. Chapter 13. World War I as Fulfillment, Power and the Intellectuals in contrast to older historians who regarded World War I as the destruction of progressive reform, I am convinced that the war came to the United States as the fulfillment, the culmination, the veritable apotheosis of progressivism in American life. Footnote. 
The title of this paper is borrowed from the pioneering last chapter of Weinstein's excellent work, The Corporate Ideal in the Liberal State, 1900-1918. The last chapter is entitled, War as Fulfillment. End footnote. I regard progressivism as basically a movement on behalf of big government in all walks of the economy and society, in a fusion or coalition between various groups of big businessmen, led by the House of Morgan, and rising groups of technocratic and statist intellectuals. In this fusion, the values and interests of both groups would be pursued through government. Big business would be able to use the government to catalyze the economy, restrict competition, and regulate production and prices, and also to be able to wield a militaristic and imperialist foreign policy to force open markets abroad and apply the sword of the state to protect foreign investments. Intellectuals would be able to use the government to restrict entry into their professions and to assume jobs in big government, to apologize for and to help plan and staff government operations. Both groups also believe that, in this fusion, the big state could be used to harmonize and interpret the national interest and thereby provide a middle way between the extremes of dog-eat-dog laissez-faire and the bitter conflicts of proletarian Marxism. Also animating both groups of progressives was a post-millennial pietist Protestantism that had conquered Yankee areas of northern Protestantism by the 1830s and had impelled the pietists to use local, state and finally federal governments to stamp out sin to make America and eventually the world holy, and thereby to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. The victory of the Bryanite forces at the Democratic National Convention of 1896 destroyed the Democratic Party as the vehicle of liturgical Roman Catholics and German Lutherans devoted to personal liberty and laissez-faire, and created the roughly homogenized and relatively non-ideological party system we have today. After the turn of the century, this development created an ideological and power vacuum for the expanding number of progressive technocrats and administrators to fill. In that way, the locus of government shifted from the legislature, at least partially subject to democratic check, to the oligarchic and technocratic executive branch. World War I brought the fulfillment of all these progressive trends, militarism, conscription, massive intervention at home and abroad, a collectivized war economy, all came about during the war and created a mighty cartelized system that most of its leaders spent the rest of their lives trying to recreate, in peace as well as war. In the World War I chapter of his outstanding work Crisis and Leviathan, Professor Robert Higgs concentrates on the war economy and illuminates the interconnections with conscription. In this paper, I would like to concentrate on an area that Professor Higgs relatively neglects, the coming to power during the war of the various groups of progressive intellectuals. I use the term intellectual in the broad sense, penetratingly described by F.A. Hayek. That is, not merely theorists and academicians, but also all manner of opinion moulders in society, writers, journalists, preachers, scientists, activists of all sort what Hayek calls second-hand dealers in ideas. 
Most of these intellectuals, of whatever strand or occupation, were either dedicated messianic post-millennial pietists or else former pietists, born in a deeply pietist home who, though now secularized, still possessed an intense messianic belief in national and world salvation through big government. But in addition, oddly but characteristically, most combined in their thought and agitation messianic moral or religious fervor with an empirical, allegedly value-free and strictly scientific devotion to social science. Whether it be the medical professions combined scientific and moralistic devotion to stamping out sin or a similar position among economists or philosophers, this blend is typical of progressive intellectuals. In this paper, I will be dealing with various examples of individual or groups of progressive intellectuals exulting in the triumph of their creed and their own place in it as a result of America's entry into World War I. Unfortunately, limitations of space and time preclude dealing with all facets of the wartime activity of progressive intellectuals. In particular, I regret having to omit treatment of the conscription movement, a fascinating example of the creed of the therapy of discipline led by upper-class intellectuals and businessmen in the J.P. Morgan ambit. I shall also have to omit both the highly significant trooping to the war colours of the nation's preachers and the wartime impetus toward the permanent centralization of scientific research. There is no better epigraph for the remainder of this paper than a congratulatory note sent to President Wilson after the delivery of his war message on April 2, 1917. The note was sent by Wilson's son-in-law and fellow Southern pietist and progressive, Secretary of the Treasury William Gibbs McAdoo, a man who had spent his entire life as an industrialist in New York City, solidly in the J.P. Morgan ambit. McAdoo wrote to Wilson, You have done a great thing, nobly. I firmly believe that it is God's will that America should do this transcendent service for humanity throughout the world, and that you are his chosen instrument. It was not a sentiment with which the President could disagree. 2. Pietism and Prohibition One of the few important omissions in Professor Higgs's book is the crucial role of post-millennial pietist Protestantism in the drive towards statism in the United States. Dominant in the Yankee areas of the North from the 1830s on, the aggressive evangelical form of pietism conquered Southern Protestantism by the 1890s and played a crucial role in progressivism after the turn of the century and through World War I. Evangelical pietism held that requisite to any man's salvation is that he do his best to see to it that everyone else is saved, and doing one's best inevitably meant that the state must become a crucial instrument in maximising people's chances for salvation. In particular, the state plays a pivotal role in stamping out sin and in making America holy. To the pietists, sin was very broadly defined as any force that might cloud men's minds so that they could not exercise their theological free will to achieve salvation. Of particular importance were slavery, until the Civil War, demon rum, and the Roman Catholic Church, headed by the Antichrist in Rome. For decades after the Civil War, 
rebellion took the place of slavery in the pietist charges against their great political enemy, the Democratic Party. Footnote. Hence the famous imprecation hurled at the end of the 1884 campaign that brought the Democrats into the presidency for the first time since the Civil War, that the Democratic Party was the party of rum, Romanism and rebellion. In that one phrase, the New York Protestant minister was able to sum up the political concerns of the pietist movement. End footnote. Then in 1896, with the evangelical conversion of Southern Protestantism and the admission to the Union of the sparsely populated and pietist mountain states, William Jennings Bryan was able to put together a coalition that transformed the Democrats into a pietist party and ended forever that party's once proud role as the champion of liturgical, Catholic and High German Lutheran Christianity and of personal liberty and laissez-faire. Footnote. German Lutherans were largely high or liturgical and confessional Lutherans, who placed emphasis on the church and its creed or sacraments, rather than on a pietist, born-again, emotional conversion experience. Scandinavian Americans, on the other hand, were mainly pietist Lutherans. End footnote. The pietists of the 19th and early 20th centuries were all post-millennialist. They believed that the second advent of Christ will occur only after the millennium, a thousand years of the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, has been brought about by human effort. Post-millennialists have therefore tended to be statists, with the state becoming an important instrument of stamping out sin and Christianizing the social order so as to speed Jesus' return. Footnote. Orthodox Augustinian Christianity, as followed by the liturgicals, is amillennialist, i.e. it believes that the millennium is simply a metaphor for the emergence of the Christian church and that Jesus will return without human aid and at his own unspecified time. Modern fundamentalists, as they have been called since the early years of the 20th century, are premillennialists, i.e. they believe that Jesus will return to usher in a thousand years of the kingdom of God on earth, a time marked by various tribulations and by Armageddon until history is finally ended. Premillennialists, or millenarians, do not have the statist drive of the postmillennialists. Instead, they tend to focus on predictions and signs of Armageddon and of Jesus' advent. End footnote. Professor Timberlake neatly sums up this politico-religious conflict. Quote, Unlike those extremist and apocalyptic sects that rejected and withdrew from the world as hopelessly corrupt, and unlike the more conservative churches, such as the Roman Catholic, Protestant Episcopal and Lutheran, that tended to assume a more relaxed attitude toward the influence of religion and culture, Evangelical Protestantism sought to overcome the corruption of the world in a dynamic manner, not only by converting men to belief in Christ, but also by Christianizing the social order through the power and force of law. According to this view, the Christian's duty was to use the secular power of the state to transform culture so that the community of the faithful might be kept pure and the work of saving the unregenerate might be made easier. Thus, the function of law was not simply to restrain evil, but to educate and uplift. End quote.
Both prohibition and progressive reform were pietistic, and as both movements expanded after 1900, they became increasingly intertwined. The Prohibition Party, once confined, at least in its platform, to a single issue, became increasingly and frankly progressive after 1904. The Anti-Saloon League, the major vehicle for prohibitionist agitation after 1900, was also markedly devoted to progressive reform. Thus, at the League's annual convention in 1905, Reverend Howard H. Russell rejoiced in the growing movement for progressive reform, and particularly hailed Theodore Roosevelt as that leader of heroic mould, of absolute honesty of character and purity of life, that foremost man of this world. At the Anti-Saloon League's convention of 1909, Reverend Pearlie A. Baker lauded the labour union movement as a holy crusade for justice and a square deal. The League's 1915 convention, which attracted 10,000 people, was noted for the same blend of statism, social service and combative Christianity that had marked the National Convention of the Progressive Party in 1912. Footnote The Progressive Party Convention was a mighty fusion of all the major trends in the progressive movement. Statist economists, technocrats, social engineers, social workers, professional pietists and partners of J.P. Morgan & Co. Social gospel leaders Lyman Abbott, the Reverend R. Haber Newton and the Reverend Washington Gladden were leading Progressive Party delegates. The Progressive Party proclaimed itself as the recrudescence of the religious spirit in American political life. Theodore Roosevelt's acceptance speech was significantly entitled A Confession of Faith, and his words were punctuated by amens and by a continual singing of pietist Christian hymns by the assembled delegates. They sang Onward Christian Soldiers, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and especially the revivalist hymn Follow, follow, we will follow Jesus, with the word Roosevelt replacing Jesus at every turn. The horrified New York Times summed up the unusual experience by calling the progressive grouping a convention of fanatics, and it added, it was not a convention at all, it was an assemblage of religious enthusiasts. It was such a convention as Peter the Hermit held. It was a Methodist camp following done over into political terms. End footnote. And at the League's June 1916 convention, Bishop Luther B. Wilson stated, without contradiction, that everyone present would undoubtedly hail the progressive reforms then being proposed. During the progressive years, the social gospel became part of the mainstream of pietist Protestantism. Most of the evangelical churches created commissions on social service to promulgate the social gospel, and virtually all of the denominations adopted the social creed drawn up in 1912 by the Commission of the Church and Social Service of the Federal Council of Churches. The creed called for the abolition of child labour, the regulation of female labour, the right of labour to organise, i.e. compulsory collective bargaining, the elimination of poverty, and an equitable division of the national product and right up there as a matter of social concern was the liquor problem. The creed maintained that liquor was a grave hindrance toward the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, and it advocated the protection of the individual and society 
from the social, economic, and moral waste of the liquor traffic. The social gospel leaders were fervent advocates of statism and of prohibition. These included Reverend Walter Rauschenbusch and Reverend Charles Stelzel, whose tract Why Prohibition, 1918, was distributed after the United States' entry into World War I by the Commission on Temperance of the Federal Council of Churches to Labour leaders, members of Congress, and important government officials. A particularly important social gospel leader was Reverend Josiah Strong, whose monthly journal, The Gospel of the Kingdom, was published by Strong's American Institute of Social Service. In an article supporting prohibition in the July 1914 issue, the Gospel of the Kingdom hailed the progressive spirit that was at last putting an end to personal liberty. Quote, Personal liberty is at last an uncrowned, dethroned king, with no one to do him reverence. The social consciousness is so far developed and is becoming so autocratic that institutions and governments must give heed to its mandate and share their life accordingly. We are no longer frightened by that ancient bogey, paternalism in government. We affirm boldly it is the business of government to be just that, paternal. Nothing human can be foreign to a true government. End quote. Footnote. Or as the Reverend Stelzel put it in Why Prohibition, quote, There is no such thing as an absolute individual right to do any particular thing, or to eat or drink any particular thing, or to enjoy the association of one's own family, or even to live, if that thing is in conflict with the law of public necessity. End footnote. As true crusaders, the pietists were not content to stop with the stamping out of sin in the United States alone. If American pietism was convinced that Americans were God's chosen people, destined to establish a kingdom of God within the United States, surely the pietists' religious and moral duty could not stop there. In a sense, the world was America's oyster. As Professor Timberlake put it, once the kingdom of God was in the course of being established in the United States, quote, it was therefore America's mission to spread these ideals and institutions abroad, so that the kingdom could be established throughout the world. American Protestants were accordingly not content merely to work for the kingdom of God in America, but felt compelled to assist in the reformation of the rest of the world also. End quote. American entry into World War I provided the fulfilment of prohibitionist dreams. In the first place, all food production was placed under the control of Herbert Hoover, Food Administration Tsar. But if the US government was to control and allocate food resources, shall it permit the precious, scarce supply of grain to be siphoned off into the waste, if not the sin, of the manufacture of liquor? Even though less than 2% of American cereal production went into the manufacture of alcohol, think of the starving children of the world who might otherwise be fed. As the progressive weekly The Independent demagogically phrased it, shall the many have food or the few have drink? For the ostensible purpose of conserving grain, Congress wrote an amendment to the Lever Food and Fuel Control Act of August 10, 1917, that absolutely prohibited the use of foodstuffs, hence grain, 
in the production of alcohol. Congress would have added a prohibition on the manufacture of wine or beer, but President Wilson persuaded the Anti-Saloon League that he could accomplish the same goal more slowly and thereby avoid a delaying filibuster by the wets in Congress. However, Herbert Hoover, a progressive and a prohibitionist, persuaded Wilson to issue an order on December 8th both greatly reducing the alcoholic content of beer and limiting the amount of foodstuffs that could be used in its manufacture. The prohibitionists were able to use the Lever Act and war patriotism to good effect. Thus, Mrs. W.E. Lindsay, wife of the governor of New Mexico, delivered a speech in November 1917 that noted the Lever Act and declared, quote, Aside from the long list of awful tragedies following in the wake of the liquor traffic, the economic waste is too great to be tolerated at this time. With so many people of the Allied nations near to the door of starvation, it would be criminal ingratitude for us to continue the manufacture of whiskey. End quote. Footnote. Mrs. Lindsay, of course, showed no concern whatever for the German, Allied and neutral countries of Europe being subjected to starvation by the British naval blockade. The only areas of New Mexico that resisted the Prohibition Crusade in the referendum in the November 1917 elections were the heavily Hispanic Catholic districts. End footnote. Another rationale for prohibition during the war was the alleged necessity to protect American soldiers from the dangers of alcohol to their health, their morals, and their immortal souls. As a result, in the Selective Service Act of May 18, 1917, Congress provided that dry zones must be established around every army base, and it was made illegal to sell or even to give liquor to any member of the military establishment within those zones, even in one's private home. Any inebriated servicemen were subject to courts martial. But the most severe thrust toward national prohibition was the Anti-Saloon League's proposed 18th Constitutional Amendment, outlawing the manufacture, sale, transportation, import or export of all intoxicating liquors. It was passed by Congress and submitted to the states at the end of December 1917. Wet arguments that prohibition would prove unenforceable were met with the usual dry appeal to high principle. Should laws against murder and robbery be repealed simply because they cannot be completely enforced? And arguments that private property would be unjustly confiscated were also brushed aside with the contention that property injurious to the health, morals and safety of the people had always been subject to confiscation without compensation. When the Lever Act made a distinction between hard liquor, forbidden, and beer and wine, limited, the brewing industry tried to save their skins by cutting themselves loose from the taint of distilled spirits. The true relationship with beer, insisted the United States Brewers Association, is with light wines and soft drinks, not with hard liquors. The brewers affirmed their desire to sever once for all the shackles that bound our wholesome productions to ardent spirits. But this craven attitude would do the brewers no good. After all, one of the major objectives of the dries was to smash the brewers once and for all, 
they whose product was the very embodiment of the drinking habits of the hated German-American masses, both Catholic and Lutheran, liturgicals and beer drinkers, all. German-Americans were now fair game. Were they not all agents of the satanic Kaiser, bent on conquering the world? Were they not conscious agents of the dreaded Hun culture, out to destroy American civilization? And were not most brewers German? And so the Anti-Saloon League thundered that German brewers in this country have rendered thousands of men inefficient, and are thus crippling the Republic in its war on Prussian militarism. Apparently the Anti-Saloon League took no heed of the work of German brewers in Germany, who were presumably performing the estimable service of rendering Prussian militarism helpless. The brewers were accused of being pro-German and of subsidising the press. Apparently it was all right to be pro-English or to subsidise the press if one were not a brewer. The acme of the accusations came from one prohibitionist. We have German enemies, he warned, in this country too. And the worst of all our German enemies, the most treacherous, the most menacing, are Pabst, Schlitz, Blatz and Miller. In this sort of atmosphere, the brewers didn't have a chance, and the 18th Amendment went to the states outlawing all forms of liquor. Since 27 states had already outlawed liquor, this meant that only nine more were needed to ratify this remarkable amendment, which directly involved the federal constitution in what had always been, at most, a matter of police power of the states. The 36th state ratified the 18th Amendment on January 16, 1919, and by the end of February, all but three states, New Jersey, Rhode Island and Connecticut, had made liquor unconstitutional as well as illegal. Technically, the amendment went into force the following January, but Congress speeded up matters by passing the War Prohibition Act of November 21, 1918, which banned the manufacture of beer and wine after the following May and outlawed the sale of all intoxicating beverages after June 30, 1919, a ban to continue in effect until the end of demobilization. Thus, total national prohibition really began on July 1, 1919, with the 18th Amendment taking over six months later. The Constitutional Amendment needed a Congressional Enforcing Act, which Congress supplied with the Volstead, or National Prohibition Act, passed over Wilson's veto at the end of October 1919. With the battle against demon rum won at home, the restless advocates of pietist prohibitionism looked for new lands to conquer. Today America, tomorrow the world. In June 1919, the triumphant Anti-Saloon League called an international prohibition conference in Washington and created a World League against alcoholism. World prohibition, after all, was needed to finish the job of making the world safe for democracy. The prohibitionists' goals were fervently expressed by Reverend A.C. Bain at the Anti-Saloon League's 1917 convention, when victory in America was already in sight. To a wildly cheering throng, Bain thundered, quote, America will go over the top in humanity's greatest battle against liquor and plant the victorious white standard of prohibition upon the nation's loftiest eminence. 
Then, catching sight of the beckoning hand of our sister nations across the sea, struggling with the same age-long foe, we will go forth with the spirit of the missionary and the crusader to help drive the demon of drink from all civilization. With America leading the way, with faith in omnipotent God, and bearing with patriotic hands our stainless flag, the emblem of civic purity, we will soon bestow upon mankind the priceless gift of world prohibition. End quote. Fortunately, the prohibitionists found the reluctant world a tougher nut to crack. <laughs>